Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live and recorded on March 14th, 2019. The time right now, 9.07 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We have a free roll, which started at 8.50. You still have eight more minutes to get in there because there's 25 minutes of late registration through 9.15. You start with a full stack, no matter when you get in there. $50 prize this week. $25 is from Limitless, and $25 is from me. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. That's 25, 15, and 10 are the prizes this week. I can pay you in many ways. I can pay you by Bitcoin. I can pay you by bank transfer. I can send you money on the Cash app. Go to cash.me to sign up for that. And I can send it to you in another way you might be able to think of, a service that's been used for internet payments for almost 20 years. Those are the ways I can pay you. If you want to be patient, you can wait till the World Series. If you see me there, I can give you the money in person. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find that near the top of the screen. You need a separate account there, and the account needs to be validated only one time, but it needs to be validated by either me or Belly Buster. Uh, I prefer Belly Buster does it because he's the one who set the whole thing up. But uh, you go on the forum and PM Belly Space Buster to get validated on there. If he's non-responsive for a while, then let me know. And I'll validate you manually. But you do have to understand the rules to qualify for the free roll. That's PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. All lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Exactly as it sounds. No capital letters. That starts now. Well, it's already started, but you have six more minutes to get in or you will be shut out. It started at 8.50. The show is a day late. But I warned you guys last week that might happen uh, as I was doing the closing segment of the show last week with the All in the Family music playing in the background. I thought, oh, wait a minute, March 13th. No, I, I forgot I had something to do on March 13th. I wasn't 100% sure that I would be unavailable March 13th, but I thought I probably wouldn't be. Indeed, I was unavailable, so I'm doing it here on March 14th. I do plan to return to Wednesday uh, well, actually, you know what? We, we will return eventually. I hate to say this, but the, I may not be able to do it again next Wednesday. <laughs> so the goal is to return to Wednesday. It really is. I know we keep doing it Thursday, but the, the goal is to return to Wednesday. I guess if I'm having such a hard time getting back to Wednesday, maybe we'll just stick to Thursday. The goal is to be on a day that's consistent. And honestly, usually Wednesday is better for me. It just seems like every Wednesday recently I haven't been able to make it. So again, uh, next week, check the Twitter, twitter.com slash alert to see if we're doing it Wednesday or Thursday. Again, it'll be one of those two. I will give you the usual opening and the agenda, and then we will get going. We'll see if we can reach Trader Ruski tonight. If you want to call into the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55-775-372. 8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. That's an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there. Forwards to me wherever I go, 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. If you want to listen to the show, but let's say you're just driving through the hills or the mountains and you have poor reception or you 
you're out of data on your data plan and you go, oh, I wish I could listen live. Well, guess what? You can. The call to listen line is a number you just call up and listen to the show. Old school telephone style. You don't need a computer. You don't need the internet. You don't need a data plan. Don't need a smartphone. None of that stuff is necessary. All you need is any phone in the world that can dial. Even an old 70s rotary telephone. 605-313-0736 is the call to listen line. I know that's not an easy number to remember, but you can find that phone number and all the phone numbers associated with the show on the radio tab near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. They're all listed there. The call to listen line never buffers. A no-buffer guarantee. When you call it, it just works. It does not freeze. It does not buffer. It's a great way to listen to the show. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa. You just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn, and it'll play. If you want to hear the past show on Alexa, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast on TuneIn. Just add the word podcast. It'll play the last show. You can listen live through the TuneIn app on your phone. Download that, and you can search for Poker Fraud Alert. You'll find two entries. One is the live show and the streaming reruns. The other one is the archives, where you can just pick a show that's been done in the past, all the way back to 2012. When we're not live, the call to listen line and the radio page and the TuneIn app, they all play a randomly selected rerun. It picks a randomly selected rerun, runs it as if it's live, and then when that's over, it starts another one randomly. And it does this over and over and over again and again and again until we go back live. It has been crashing occasionally lately. I don't know why. But if it if you find it's down, other than right before radio, I do manually turn it off a few hours before radio to prevent confusion. Other than that, if you find it is down, please text me and I'll give you the text number, which you can use anytime during the show or before the show or after the show or whenever you feel like doing it. Whenever you want to text me, you can. 775-372-8355, the same as our main phone number. You can text me there and tell me that the call to listen line is having a problem, and I will put it back up. It's pretty easy for me to do remotely, even though it's located in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I have access to reset it, basically, when it uh, goes down. So if, if you want to use it and it's not working, don't feel shy. Text me and say, hey, it's not working. In fact, I'll appreciate it so I can get it back up, because a lot of people just don't bother texting. Almost a million minutes have been listened to on that line since I put it up in November 2015. Very popular method of listening. Even I use it to listen. Some people say, stop talking about the call to listen so much. I'm tired of hearing about it. And my answer is tough luck. This is just something I love so much, it's, it's hard for me to stop talking about it. Especially because people mocked me when I wanted to start it. I said... I'm going to start this call to listen thing. You can call up and listen to the show. And people made fun of me. People said this is useless. People said this is something like from 1985. Who would who would ever want this? I was really mocked for wanting to start the call to listen line. And I ignored the naysayers. And I built it anyway. And everyone loved it. I proved them all wrong. Okay, here's the agenda this week. By the way, you can go in the chat room if you're listening live, chat with other people. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads can get in, and you need a Poker Fraud Alert account in good standing on the forum to get in there. If you're listening in the archives, as most of you are, as most of you are there will be nobody there. It's only during the live show that there's anyone in the chat room, mainly to chat with other listeners. I only read it occasionally. 
Here's the agenda that we'll try to locate Trader Ruski, and then we will get going. I've got two personal stories at the beginning. First, I'm going to tell you about a major step that I took in an effort to basically finish or mostly finish my recovery from the crippling severe anxiety and depression disorder that I developed in late August 2018. Something that knocked me off this show for a while. Something that led to the worst week of my life. Not week, worst month of my life. I, w- I wish it was a week. It was a month. And then after that was not peachy either, but it was uh, slowly improving. But I've been battling with this since mid-August, and it's significantly improved, which is why I can do this show every week, why I sound normal again. But I don't feel completely normal yet, but I'm taking a step that might be one of the last ones I need to take before I'm very close to being psychologically normal again. And I'll tell you about a tweet I put out about this that got really an unexpected response, and I'm going to talk about that whole thing in general. Second personal topic, people have been asking, when are you going to put your pieces up for sale for the 2019 World Series of Poker? The answer, now. It is now for sale. There's been some pieces bought. The good news is there's still plenty left. I just put it up a few days ago. Don't sit and wait forever. Every year I have people after it's sold out saying, oh, you know, I just didn't act fast enough. Sorry about that. Can I have a piece, please? And I go, no, I can't do it. I'm not going to sell more than 40% because... I'm not one of these guys who wants to go play World Series events for a small percentage of himself. I I don't want to do that. I don't need to do that. And I'm not going to do that. So once it's sold, it's sold. But I'll give you the details. And obviously no hard feelings if you don't want to buy it. I, I have no expectation that any of you buy it. But there are some reasons why you might want to. Especially if you're not going to be in Vegas. Especially if you are a fan of the World Series of Poker. Especially if you're a fan of this show. Especially if you kind of want to feel like you're there when you're not really there. Kind of want to feel like you're sitting next to me as I'm playing and and watching all the action and all the antics at the table. Uh, I'm a good one to buy a piece of in that case. So I will uh, tell you all about that. It's very similar to other years. Kind of more similar to two years ago than last year, to be honest. But I'll tell you all about that in that segment. As we were approaching the show date, um, I, I was looking... I don't know, Tuesday night, I was thinking I might be doing the show Wednesday. And I was disappointed to see that there just weren't many interesting stories to talk about. There's very little to talk about this week. And I said, oh boy, this is going to be a very light topic show. I'm going have to have to really dig to find things to talk about. Well, the Twitter drama took care of that for me. <laughs> Lots of Twitter br- drama broke out. And then that gave me more to talk about. So the lead story after the personal stories will be about Danielle Anderson, also known as D-Moon Girl, involved in a girl-on-girl Twitter fight with a fairly unknown poker pro named Kirsten Oliberg. And basically, Danielle is accusing Kirsten of scamming her. Have you ever wondered about what would happen if you played on one of these legalized online poker sites using a VPN or, or, or TeamViewer or something like that where you can physically be standing in a location? I see we're trying to get calls. Don't, don't call in right now. The calls are closed at the moment. Anyway, imagine if you... 
I love how I, tr I tr tried to turn off Skype's the sound. Look at this. People just hammer. See, this is what I don't want. I don't want people hammering me if they can't get through. Now I have to go through and turn off incoming calls. Complete. I guess I can block that number. But don't call in, in unless I'm ready. You, all you're going to do is get your number blocked. I still hate those sound effects Skype does now. Still trying to look... There's no way to turn them off. They just change Skype. Anyway, uh, let me try it once again. <laughs> You're trying to play an online poker site, one of the legalized ones in the U.S., from a state where it's not allowed. Basically, a state where it is not present. There's only a few states you can play right now, legalized online poker. There's New Jersey. There is Delaware. There is Nevada. And uh, it's coming kind of in Pennsylvania. I don't think anything's live yet. But it's, it's very restricted, and you can only play on the sites that are in that particular state. So, like, for example, in California, you can't play the New Jersey online poker sites. You can't do it. But what if you do it? What if you do? I always wonder what would happen if you did and you were caught. Would they put you in prison? Would they confiscate your money? Both? Would they ban you from all the properties associated with that casino? I didn't know. It was something I was not going to find out myself the hard way. I, I don't want to get banned from all Caesars properties. I don't want to be arrested. <sighs> you know, some people just don't listen. Now I'm going to have to block that number. think I know who it is. I don't want to have to block them, but they're not listening. So I blocked them. We do have a problem on the show here where people, they don't listen and they just want to call in. And that, that it's kind of a problem because you can't just call because I don't take calls at all the time. And I've told you because of these Skype issues, it becomes a pain in the ass for me to just ignore these calls. It just interrupts me with that sound effect every time. And it, it's, it's very frustrating. But these, these people, they just go, okay, well, I, I guess he's not answering. I'm just going to call back 10 times, see if he picks up the phone finally. I, I keep telling people, don't do that. Do not call in unless I tell you that the phone lines are open or unless I tell you – or unless like between segments. But don't, don't interrupt my agenda and don't just take shots in calling in when you're not listening to the show. To the show. Otherwise, I have to block your number. And then I may forget to unblock you. Anyway, we found out what happens because a Californian named Vin Dow was caught playing the New Jersey legalized online poker sites from California. And I'll tell you exactly what happened to him and probably what would happen to you if you tried it. Jessica Dolly, a professional poker player, joined the Twitter drama train by accusing John Lee of a PayPal chargeback scam. We've talked about that scam before on the show. Jessica Dolly is accusing John Lee of doing that. I will tell you about what happened there. On a recent show, I covered the Jeff Boski situation where he double cashed. He took one cash that he got at the 2018 World Series and collected on it twice in what seems to have been intentional. Seems very likely it was intentional. And they caught it months later, and he was temporarily banned from all Caesars properties until he paid the money back. And he did a whole vlog about it. He's a, he has a fairly popular vlog. So he did a vlog about it. 
And I noticed some inconsistencies in his claims, especially a comment he posted and pinned on his video explaining what happened. It didn't make any sense. In fact, it contradicted the video itself. So I pointed this out, and he deleted my comment, and then when I called him out on Twitter for it, he blocked me. So I want to tell you a bit about what happened there and why this irritates me. This isn't a huge story. This isn't a huge deal. I'm not going to keep hassling Jeff Boski about it, but I think it speaks a lot about him. And I think it says a lot about how he can deal out the heat but can't take it. I'll get to all that in that segment. The Sugar House Casino in Pennsylvania, which often hosts Poker Night in America, they were fined $30,000 and people were fired over what seemed like a very innocent thing where Doug Polk and another player wanted to do a flip where they wager money before a hand is dealt and then the cards are just dealt out and they see who wins. It's called a flip. They did that one time. And the casino got fined and people got fired. I'll tell you about that whole mess. Mickey Kraft, a a fairly popular tournament player. People liked him. He appears to have passed away. Tell you a bit about Mickey Kraft. And the cause of death is unknown to me. But a lot of poker players, they they don't live that long. I'll tell you, this, this industry is not known for the longevity of its members, which is not good news for me. Here's a question. If you've ever played at the World Series and min-cashed, you have gone to the payout room, and then when you get there, they tell you at some point, congratulations. Now, if you barely squeaked into the money with a tiny stack, you probably feel, oh, you know, cool, congratulations. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of myself. But if you were kicking ass and you pictured yourself at the final table or maybe even winning the bracelet and you end up min-cashing because you go on an epic collapse of uh, bad cards, the last thing you want to hear is congratulations because the min-cash is quite disappointing, especially if you're in for more than one bullet and it's possible you lost money on the event. So should World Series of Poker players be congratulated by the staff there or is it almost like an unintentional needle? This matter was brought up and discussed and there were some arguments about it and there were some insults. I'll Tell you about that whole thing in that segment. Remember when Major League Baseball banned Pete Rose from baseball for life for betting on baseball? Well, I know this is a bit different, but Major League Baseball now thinks that sports betting is a positive thing for baseball. This is from the commissioner himself. I will tell you about that. Finally, I'm sure you have heard about the story, the college admissions scandal involving Celebrities Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman, along with many other very rich and successful people who bribed their way into having their children accepted to prestigious universities where their children otherwise did not qualify. This was very illegal, and people have been arrested for it, and this has become a very, very big story in the news over the last few days. I'm going to talk about that, but I'm not going to talk about it in the way everyone else is talking about it. I'm going to tell you the bigger issue and how it's being ignored. There's a much bigger issue to this whole thing that very few people are talking about. 
And that saddens me. I will tell you all about that as our final topic of the night. Try to locate Trader Ruski, and then we will get going. I think he's there. He says he's there. So we'll try to locate him. Ding, 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 ding. See, this is okay, because it's me making the call. When I'm making the call, this doesn't bother me. I, I wish it wasn't there, but it, it's, it's not as tilted. And, and I am here. What's happening, Jeff? Hi, Trader Ruski. Welcome to the show. So, Thank you. I want to start off talking about something that I did two nights ago that was really a big step and might be one of the final steps before I can say that while I'm not all better and while I may never be all better, I really may never be all better until I'm buried in the ground one day. But while I may not be able to ever say that, this step may be the final major step I have to take before I can say that everything's mostly back to normal, at least to where everything remaining I can live with. I don't want to rehash everything about my health issues because I've I've been over it a lot of times since this started. But my life changed on August 16th, 2018 when I felt a lump in my throat. Not a physical lump, like when I, I, like not touching my neck, feeling a lump, but actually like a lump feeling, like there's something stuck in my throat. And that touched off uh, a lot of problems. Some physical, which were, you know, this was a symptom of the physical issues, which is a condition known as LPR. You can Google it. And then about five days later, because I was having trouble sleeping and feeling like I was choking every time I was lying down, about five days later, some pretty severe psychological issues came on. I got severe anxiety and severe depression. And they really were severe. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not just saying because because it happened to me it was severe. It was severe. On, on an absolute basis, it was severe, and I had them both together. A- and the LPR problems. And it was hell. And I never got to feel any of that prior to August 16th, 2018. I never had anxiety or depression. Oh, I I had depressing instances in my life where something bad would happen and I would be temporarily depressed, but it wasn't the same thing. I had moments where I was anxious about something, but it wasn't the same thing. I'm talking about clinical anxiety, clinical depression related to chemical issues in your brain. And it makes you not yourself, And it makes life pretty much like a living hell to where uh, even though you can tell yourself rationally that there's no reason to feel this way, there's no way to overrule it. For about four weeks, maybe I'd say three to four weeks, the depression was so severe that there was no way for me to have any enjoyment of anything. And I don't just mean I was kind of down. I mean there was something wrong with my brain to where nothing could excite me, could make me laugh, could I enjoy. Any positive emotions, any kind of positive emotion was completely impossible. It was strange. 
I mean, let's let's say the the World Series of Poker happened to take place then, and I played it anyway. Let's say I won the main event. I know this can be hard to believe, but I really would not feel happy. I, I would know it was a good thing, but I would not have the excitement and all the positive emotions that would be feel be associated with something like that. My brain was incapable of having that, and I had a very very heavy anxiety, which I can best describe as a severe tension on my brain, where it just feels like something terrible is happening, even if nothing terrible is happening, and there's no way to reason my way out of it. And this would stay for hours and hours and hours. In fact, not just hours, it would stay the entire day, all day and all night, and sometimes it would be worse, sometimes it wouldn't be as bad, but it was always there. And more often than not, it was very severe. So I had those both together. Never having dealt with this before in my life. And this is the thing you just can't understand how it feels until you actually have it. I've, I've heard it described by other people. I had no idea how it actually felt until you've actually felt it. No way to reason your way out of it. No way to just put your chin up and say, I'm going to be happy. Can't, can't do it. And then there was the unknown. How long will I be stuck this way? Is this the rest of my life now? I didn't know. Is there a way to cure this or is there not? Well, while the physical LPR problems haven't gotten better aside from the choking stopping, which is that's the very big thing that stopped and that probably helped matters, but the psychological aspects have very much improved. The depression is almost gone. The anxiety is probably about 80% gone, maybe a little bit more, maybe 80 to 85% gone. Depression is probably about 95% gone. There is one remaining thing that I could not do, that the thought of doing was difficult. Even just thinking about doing it was difficult. It was something I wanted to do, something I used to do a few times a year, and I was no longer able to do. And that was taking a flight. Again, I had no problem taking flights prior to this. In fact, I had just taken a long flight to and from Alaska at the end of July 2018 with zero incident whatsoever. It's okay, here's a flight, get on, take the flight, occupy yourself for five hours each way, and... Great, it's over. I mean, it's just very, very normal and standard for me, as it had been my entire life. But then everything changed. And while now I'm able to function, while if you were to see me today, you would not see any signs outwardly there's any problem, while most of the day now I don't really feel the anxiety, and most of the day now I can go on normally and and not feel that much different than I used to, I still have some moderate moments of the anxiety there, and it just feels like getting on a plane where I'm trapped there. I have no option to get off if it's not going well. It meaning not the flight itself, but how I'm handling it. Me just kind of being stuck in that seat, a lot of times with my seatbelt on, and uh, the whole thing being out of my control, given these Anxiety issues that are not completely cured. That just seemed like something I couldn't do yet. But 
thought I would see pictures of beautiful vacation destinations. And it would sadden me because there's a lot of places I still want to go. In fact, I I had to cancel a trip all the way to Israel. I was going to go to Israel for the first time in almost 30 years. In October of 2018, that had to be canceled for sure. No way I could make that flight. But forget Israel. I I couldn't make a flight for an hour. And that was the last thing that I couldn't do anymore. I can stay in hotels. I've already done that. It's been fine. I can drive long distances. That's fine. I can play poker. That's fine. I've been to baseball games, other social type situations. Totally fine. Didn't have any social anxiety. That wasn't the problem. But uh, the one thing that just seemed like I wasn't sure if I could do was take a flight. And I kept wanting to do a test flight from L.A. to Vegas just, just to see how it goes. I don't. I never fly from L.A. to Vegas. It's a pain in the ass. Not worth doing. But just that, that's a good test flight to see, can I fly at all? But I kept putting it off. No, 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 I'm not ready. I couldn't get myself to click that button to book it. Well, finally, the early morning of March 13th, I did it. I booked a flight from LA to Vegas for April. Only one way. I'm going to drive back the other way. Why? Because I don't like flying to and from Vegas. It's a pain in the ass. So I'm going to rent a car and just drive that back. Just just a flight to test, just to see how it goes. And if I can do that successfully, then I can say that this is mostly cured. In what seems like a very just ordinary minor thing, booking a one-way short flight from L.A. to Vegas. For me, if I can complete that and not have a horrible experience, then I can say, all right, I'm pretty much back. Because then I can start taking longer flights. I can start going on trips again. There won't be any major thing left that I can't do that I could do before. I am still nervous and concerned about how it will go. I realize that my reactions to this are somewhat out of my control. I say somewhat because I can try to psych myself out out and not worry about it too much. Like if I try to overthink it, like, oh, I'm going to do something tough now. I'm going to do something that may be very psychologically difficult. For if, I, if I go in feeling that way, then I'm going to kind of, it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy is what will happen. But I'm not going to approach it that way. But then some of it's also out of my control. Some of this is unknown. I, it could be totally fine. I could just get through it super easily and go, wow, I can't believe I put this off all this time. Wow, this, this was actually pretty easy. I mean, for sure I couldn't have done it back in September, but yeah, maybe this is something I could have done in December just fine. That was the first time I started kind of thinking about doing it. But now I'm really going to do it. I bought the ticket. I reserved the cars. I'm going to do it. Even if uh, it's crappy for me, I will tolerate it for an hour. In the, and uh, I, I'm going to come prepared. I, I bought a little handheld fan. You may wonder why a handheld fan. I noticed that if there's air blowing on me, it just kind of feels better. So I want to bring a little handheld fan on there to blow air on my face. I 
was not a cheap Jew here and bought a first-class ticket, which isn't bad for me anyway because I'm tall. I can't really fit in regular coach seats anyway, but I do sit in Economy Plus, or I did before. I'm not going to do that anymore. i got to sit in first class now because uh, it gives kind of a more roomy feeling. It'd be a lot easier on me with these uh, these issues I have. And I'm going to bring Xanax with me and take 0.5 milligrams, which I haven't taken yet. I've only taken 0.25. I'm going to take 0.5 a few minutes before I step on the plane. And hopefully that makes things easier as well. That will also help really calm my brain so I don't overthink it. And if things don't go as well, then... I'll be less apt to go into any kind of panic. I haven't had any kind of panic attacks, by the way, since uh, September. And if that goes well, if it ends up being easy and simple and not problematic at all, then I'll say, good. We're just about done. I'm back. Something I... I remember saying to my dad, I I don't think it's ever going to come back. I don't think I'll be able to fly again. I don't think I'm going to be able to approve. And he said, oh, you will. You will. In a way, I'm one of the lucky ones who suffers from this in that mine is not a hereditary problem, which makes it much easier to beat. And I knew this because of the age that it appeared. I put out a tweet announcing this right after I booked the flight. And I almost deleted the tweet. I I posted the tweet, and I'm like, no, you know, this is kind of... It almost seems lame that I'm announcing, hey, everybody, I booked a flight. It seemed like... I don't know. I figure, who's going to care? Who's going to care that I'm just booking a one-hour flight to Vegas and trying to get over my anxiety problems with it? I mean, I almost... Deleted. I came very close to deleting it, and then just left it there. Well, it turned out to be the most favorited or liked tweet that I've ever made. It has the most likes of any tweet that I've written in my life, to my knowledge. There was overwhelming positive response to this. I actually thought I'd be getting a lot of trolls in response to that, too. But there actually weren't. There's like one guy. There was one guy who said that uh, he usually wouldn't say something like this, but you know, regarding my anxiety and depression issues. But uh, he heard that, you know, from what he remembers, he doesn't know me well. He doesn't remember me well. But from what he remembers, uh, from 2006, I was a nasty guy on and off the table. So this is karma. <laughs> uh, come on, he's not even sure he remembers me. It's karma, but he doesn't know what I did or what he remembers or, or it may not even be me he's remembering, but, but he thinks it's karma. But that was the only negative comment I got. Everything else was overwhelmingly positive and a, a surprising number of likes, a surprising number. Some, I think, were done out of like empathy, like people thought, okay, good for him, that's uh, good news. But some of it, I think some of the response I got on Twitter is because there's a lot more people dealing with this 
than most of you are aware. A lot of people suffer from these type of issues in silence. They, they don't want to talk about it, especially men. There's some people who think that admitting that you're suffering from anxiety or depression is a form of weakness. That if you were stronger, then this wouldn't happen to you. And that's just simply not true. This is something out of your control. Uh, unfortunately, your mind can do things that your conscious mind cannot overrule. And sadly, a, a chemical imbalance in your brain can really change who you are in a lot of ways. It can change the way you can function, change the way you can handle things, change your ability to enjoy things. I never thought it was possible that some abrupt chemical change in my brain could deprive me from being happy or excited about anything or finding anything funny. I'm like, how could that be? If, I, if I'm completely conscious and coherent, it's one thing if you're grogging out of it, but I, I wasn't. If you're, con- if you're very conscious and coherent as I was, then, then how can I not find things funny, entertaining, happy? How come I can't? Well, because I just couldn't. My brain would not let me do it. And it's easy to think when you're not suffering from these type of problems that if it were to happen to you, you wouldn't let it happen. But you can't. It's nothing that you can control, nothing that you can prevent. A lot of people suffer from anxiety and or depression because they have a hereditary problem where they inherited it from their parents and sometime in their teens or 20s, it shows up, often from something that happens that's bad or stressful, and sometimes just out of nowhere. And sometimes when it is from an event, they think, okay, this is just temporary because of this event, and then it just never goes away. And they go, wait a minute, what's, what's wrong here? How come now it's been a long time since this bad thing happened? How come I'm not getting better? And it's because it just kind of turns on the problem you've always had and it's just been sitting in the background. The reason I know that's probably not my case is because of the age that happened to me. If I was 25, I wouldn't know what to say here. I think maybe I do have some kind of uh, hereditary problem, even though this is not really in my family. But uh, if this just kind of appears over something like when you're 25, you're 22, 17, then this really may be something you deal with your whole life and it's very hard to get rid of. But I knew that if I had gone through age 46 without this occurring, that the chance was very, very small that this was something that was just part of me. And it was awakened. That's a, it's just the way human beings are, that these always show themselves, just about always show themselves, usually by age 28 and usually earlier. You don't get to 46 and then suddenly realize you had a, a hereditary anxiety and depression problem that just got triggered. It, it doesn't work that way. So mine was really a result of this physical issue I had, which, as I like to say, uh, broke my brain. And I, I've been slowly recovering from it. And there's there's a lot of people out there. I mean, 249 people liked it on Twitter. 249 people liked it. And I had some people responding about their own issues. 
and I know there's a lot of people who listen to this show who have or had anxiety and depression problems, and maybe you didn't tell many people about it. Maybe you're afraid it'll make you look bad or people will judge you. But there's there's no reason to feel that way, and you'll be surprised if you mention this, how many others will come up and say, you know what, I, I deal with that too, and I just don't talk about it. Like, a lot of people will come forward and tell you they have it too, and they can understand. And now I can understand. Fortunately, it looks like, at least if it continues in this direction, that I'm not going to have this as a lifelong problem. And I feel terrible for those who do. But I did experience a very severe version of both anxiety and depression. I know how it feels now. And if you're feeling that way, then I feel for you. And you you have the number to the text number to the the show, 775-372-8355. And if, if you are experiencing those problems and you just want to talk to someone, you can text me, even if I haven't talked to you before. And for every person, the solution is different. Some people, it's medication. Some people, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. Some people, it's uh, just being able to figure out what things to do, what not to do. I did learn over a few months of this what was helping, what was making it worse. Uh, I, I, I figured out what to do if I felt a panic attack coming on and to bring it down after where it would not come down any, come on anymore. If it would start to go that direction, I kind of figured out how to control it that much. But each person is different. And I hope that by taking that flight and doing so successfully, that I can say, all right, now... Now I'm really back. And I'll never forget that month I had. And I know there's people out there who are dealing with worse, even than that. But it was a terrible month for me. And for those of you that are living that all the time, I really feel for you. And all I can say is... Try to find what works for you, not what works for everybody else or other people or what people say should work. Find out what works for you. Like, for example, I found that caffeine helps me. Most people, if you have anxiety, you take caffeine and it gets worse. Okay, so that's not suggested. I didn't try it right away. But I, I have an unusual tolerance for caffeine, which which actually is hereditary because my parents both have it and my brother and sister have it. We, where basically we get all the good effects of caffeine and none of the bad. Caffeine doesn't keep me awake, but caffeine will stop me from being groggy. But if I want to sleep, I can take caffeine and go right to sleep. So I, I get the benefit from caffeine, but it never makes me jittery, never uh, keeps me awake. And my entire family is like that. So that might be why the caffeine's helping me with anxiety, whereas others, it, it actually makes them more anxious. So it's one of these things. I, I just figured out something that Helps me. That wasn't the only thing, but that was one factor of something I started doing. I take a caffeine pill every day now. That's something I learned makes things better. 
So I say, okay, it makes things better, I'm going to do it. And I know it's not harmful to do every day, like like Xanax, which I, I keep around too, but that's only in case I really need it. I only do that. haven't even taken one in quite some time. Though I will on the day of that flight. Okay, I don't want to belabor this whole thing, but I'm excited because I, I've made that reservation. And then I can start flying elsewhere. I can start going places that are much farther away that you can't really drive to. Okay, so this is actually a good segue to the next topic. And that is, since I have vastly improved psychologically since uh, the end of last summer, I will be in good enough physical and psychological shape by a wide margin to play the World Series of Poker. And as I've been doing every year, I'm going to sell pieces. And I want to tell you guys about what I'm playing, what I'm selling, how I'm doing it this year, because it kind of differs from year to year. This year is going to be pretty similar to 2017, uh, a little different from last year. So I'm going b- back more to the 2017 format. I'm going to be selling two different packages. One is a 19.76% markup package, and one is a 15% markup package. You may say, okay, well, why would I want to buy the more expensive package? Well, because the more expensive package, markup-wise, has the easier event. So I have the 1K to 3K event package, which is the 19.76% markup. And then there's the 10K event package, which is the 15% markup. I'm playing two 10K events which obviously adds up to 20,000 in buy-ins. And I'm playing uh, a bunch of 1K to 3K events, including two of them where I'll play two bullets if necessary, with a total buy-ins of 16,700 all added up together. I'm also playing three other events that I'm not selling. So I'm going to go over this quickly. If you want to buy pieces, you can either email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. That's dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, all lowercase. You can PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff. You can text me, 775-372-8355. You can send me uh, a message on Twitter. The only If you can DM me, only if you can DM me. If you can't, uh, don't just at me on Twitter, I may miss it. I prefer you either PM it to me on the forum or text me or email me. That's one of those three. The ways you can pay me involve the Cash App. You can do that for free. It's very easy to sign up for. You can link it to your debit card and you can pay me for no fee. So you can do it through the Cash App. Uh, You can do a bank transfer to me. You can send it to me on that other service that's been around for a long time that I've been referring to. You could send it by Bitcoin. Let me know what way you want to pay. I'm not accepting Venmo. I don't have Venmo. But most other ways you'd want to pay, I'll probably accept. If you have a way to get cash to me, you can do that. The event list is as follows. So here, here's the 1K to 3K events. These are all the 1K to 3K events I'll be playing. 
On May 30th, the $1,500 limit Omaha 8 or better. I cashed 59th place out of like 1,100-something people last year. Did pretty well on that one. June 3rd, sorry, June 5th, not June 3rd. June 5th, the limit 08 satellite to the 10K limit 08. And I'm going to treat that as if it's a cash event. So if I win a seat, you just I'm just going to convert it directly to cash at full value and pay you your share of that, which is great for you. This way you don't have to worry about me uh, playing the next event and seeing how I do there. If, if, I, if I win a seat, then you get the full value of your piece of that seat, just right on the spot. June 7th or 8th, depending on... Uh, how far I, I get in the uh, in a different event the, the day before, which I'll tell you about shortly. The I'm going to play the Millionaire Maker, the $1,500 Millionaire Maker No Limit Hold'em. If I don't make day two of that, then I will play the $1,000 No Limit Hold'em D- Double Stack event. Then June 25th, 16 days later, I will be playing $1,500 PLO8, I will play two bullets if necessary, just to let you know. Last year, on one bullet, I cashed. June 27th, the $1,500 Mixed Omaha event, which is 08, PL08, and Big O, rotates between those games. I will fire fire two bullets if necessary. Last year, I did fire two bullets, and it's too bad. I, re- I almost cashed with both bullets, believe it or not. How do I say that? Well, because the first bullet, I would have had a huge stack, and I got horribly beat in a three-way pot where I had both people crushed. And it's hard to have both people crushed in in in, uh, in Big O, of all things. But I did. In Big O, I actually had two opponents crushed, which is quite hard to do. There's usually so many ways you can get bad beat in that game. No. I had really everybody down to very few outs, and, and I took a beat on the river. Not only that... Uh, um, the guy who had the bigger stack that busted me, he uh, he got it in really bad and should have laid it, laid it down. So that was very disappointing. And had I won that hand, as I should have, then I would have had a huge stack and very likely to cash. Then the second bullet, I lost a four-outer on the river heads up. So again, I would have had a huge stack, and I was it was fairly close to the money, too. So I didn't cash either of those, but I was close. So as you can see, these Omaha events, uh, I've been doing quite well as far as running deep. June 29th, 1,500 limit hold'em. Usually I'm very competitive at that one, and usually at some point in the event I'm the chip leader. It's been going that way for like the entire decade, except last year I was terrible. Last year I was like one of the first ones out. Trader Ruski cashing it, though. July 1st, $1,100... Limit Hold'em Satellite. That is, it's $1,100 buy-in to a satellite to the 10K event. Treat it the same way as the 08 satellite. Anything I win in that gets converted directly to cash and you get the full value. And finally, if I'm not in like day five of the main event or whatever it is that day, uh, July 8th, $3,000 Limit Hold'em 6 Max. So if you add up all of that, including the two bullets for the Mixed Omaha and the PL08... Because what you're doing is you're paying for two bullets in advance. That's the only way to do it fairly. Uh, if, you, if you think about it, you'll realize why I can't just do the first bullet and then adjust it after that. That doesn't work. 
So the only way to do this fairly is to charge this in advance and then refund it if I don't use a second bullet. But any refund I give you, you get your full markup back too. So it's, it's as if it wasn't part of the package. Anything I don't play for any reason, either I, I don't fire a second bullet or I, I don't play or I, I miss something because I make a day two, anything that I do not play, anything you pay for that I do not use for a buy-in to that specific event, then you get back in full, including any markup you paid. So it's like we just erase it like it never existed. So you pay the two bullets in advance for those two events. Everything else I listed there is only one bullet, either by rule or by what I'm going to do. All those buy-ins together, 16700 0.5% of that would be $83.50. I call it, Each share is 0.5% of me. That's the minimum you can buy. And you can't buy individual events. You've got to buy this entire package I just listed to you. If you, you can't, it's either all of this or nothing. So 0.5 of all of that, 0.5% of all of that is $83.50. But there's a markup. And I was going to do 20% markup, but then that makes it like $100 and something cents. I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to do that. So that's why it's 19.76. Strangely enough, it's exactly what happened last year. I think it's exactly the buy-ins I had last year was 16700 in, in this uh, package. So... Uh, after markup, $100 exactly. It goes from 83.50 per share to 100 after markup. So it's just very simple. Every 0.5% you want of those events I just listed, $100 even. So if you want 1%, it's 200 bucks. The most I will let you buy is 4%, which is 800 bucks. So the least you can buy is 0.5. The most you can buy is 4%. It has to be in multiples of 0.5. So it's each share is 0.5. You have to buy one to eight shares. If you want to buy something, hundred bucks each. Package number two is very simple. It's the two 10K limit events I'm going to play. On June 6th, there's the 10K limit 08. And on July 2nd, the 10K limit Holden. The total buy ins 20,000 for the two combined. 0.5% before markup would be 100 bucks, obviously. And then after the 15% markup, it's 115. I'm making these only 15% markup for the first time ever because I realize these are 10K events, and even though there are a surprising number of fish in these events, you wouldn't expect there to be, but there are. But the truth is, after the fish fall out at the beginning, then you're left with a lot of good players, and you have to navigate through those. So I said, all right, I'm not going to mark this up more than 15%. I could could sell it out at 20%, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be fair to people here and charge a lesser markup. Despite the fact that I have more expenses this year and last year, to be honest, than I did before, because now I don't get free hotel rooms, and I don't get free food. So these are real expenses there to stay in Vegas for this length of time to play here. It really does cost me money out of my pocket. But I'm not raising the price. In fact, I've lowered it. So I'm not passing that cost along to you guys. Only reason I'm doing... Well, there's a few reasons I'm doing this. I'm doing this to bring down the variance because I'm not a regular tournament player. And I'm doing it to create some excitement for those who listen to this show and read the forum. Because you guys know me and maybe you have some interest in and maybe you can't be at the World Series and you want to have some piece of it in some way and something to root for. So that's why I'm doing it. I don't have to do it. In fact, if none of you buy anything... I'm going to play everything I listed anyway. I, 
I'm not saying, hey, you guys have to buy 40% or I can't play. No. I'm going to play every single thing I list here, even if 0% gets bought of me. This is only to bring down variance, and what I sell, I sell. What I don't sell, I don't sell. That's, that's always been my attitude. I am playing three other events I'm not selling. The Big 50, the $500 event, the new event this year at the beginning that has no rake for the first bullet only. I'm going to play one bullet for that reason. And if I do well, I do well. If I bust, I bust. That's uh, sometime between May 31st and June 2nd, I'll play my, my one and only bullet. On June 30th, if I don't make day two of the 1500 limit hold'em, which I hope I do, but if I don't make it, I'll play the $888 Crazy Eights eight-handed no-limit event. Why is that not in the in the first package? Because it's it's under 1K. I decided both of those are the buy-ins are too small for me to want to sell pieces. It, it just gets to a point where I, I don't want to sell pieces because I'm playing for too little at that point, unless I really really get super deep. But I don't want to get to the point where I, I min cash and I'm, I'm barely pocketing any money because I've sold too much of a small event. So anything under 1K I'm not selling anymore. And that includes this. And then there's the main event, which I never sell, July 4th. So there's those three I'm not selling. It's all very clearly listed on the 2019 World Series of Poker Forum on PokerFrodAlert.com. Just to be clear, if you buy any piece of me, there is no makeup. So if I play the event and don't cash, the money's gone forever. It's a direct piece buy-in, so whatever percentage you have of me, you get that percentage of whatever I cash in those events you've bought. It's that simple. If you, you add up my caches in all those events you bought, and let's say you had two shares, you're going to get 1% of it. I will need your social security number, which I'll keep very, very private, don't worry, if, you, if I end up having to send you a profit of more than $600. That's the law in the United States. And I'm not saying if I cash... 600 for your share. I mean, if your profit is. So whatever you buy, if I send you back more than $600 over what you bought, then I'll need to get your social security number. Otherwise, I do not. I will be using tastysteaks.com, which is CalWatt's site, to keep track of the events I'm selling. You don't have to make an account there. You don't need to use it, but that's where I'm going to be keeping track of all the events and all the pieces that are sold, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is going to be used for record-keeping. You will not be paying me through that site. In fact, you can't pay me through that site, but don't look for a way to pay through that site, and don't worry about having to pay through that site because that's not how it's going. You're going to pay me directly. That site's just for record-keeping, but it's a great site to use for that. If you are selling pieces, I suggest you use tastysteaks.com. That's tastysteaks, S-T-A-K-E-S dot com. It's a very, very useful and free site run by CalWatt, who hopefully will return to host the show sometime soon. Do not tell me you're reserving pieces. I always get people say, okay, I'm reserving uh, 3%. No, unless I know you really well, and I'm 100% sure you're going to actually pay me, I don't want to reserve things because I don't want to commit you to it if you haven't actually paid me the money. I, I want to give you the right to change your mind. So I actually the, the way I I know a piece is taken is when I have the money in my hands. Now, if I know you really well, like let's say Trader Ruski said he wants to reserve a piece. I wouldn't say, no, you can't reserve a piece. I told you Trader Ruski, no. I wouldn't say that. I'd, I've known Trader Ruski. I know him personally. So I, I'd say, sure. I, I know if he says he wants to reserve a piece, then he's really buying a piece. 
but you know, the rest of you, well, I'm, I'm very happy to have you dry pieces of me. And in fact, it, uh, it makes me happy when you guys do. Uh, because I don't know most of you that well personally. Uh, no offense, but I, I can't actually hold any peace for you until I actually have the money. Uh, one other thing I want to say, if I do decide to play other events other than what I listed, or I fire additional bullets in events where I said I'm only going to fire one, uh, then that's 100% me, because you didn't pay for it. Anything you don't pay for in advance, you don't have. Now, you may wonder, what if I pull a shenanigan? What if I uh, play an event which you can fire multiple bullets, but you only paid for one, and I bust the, the first buy-in, and then or no, th- then I get really deep, and I tell you I bought in twice. So when I got really deep on the second one, you get nothing. Well, if that's really what happened, that would be true, But because you didn't pay for it. But how do you know I really busted the first one? Well, I can prove that. They, they, they keep these records in Caesars. I'll be happy to supply proof to anyone if this were to occur. I don't think this is even going to happen. I, I think it's unlikely that I will decide to fire a second bullet when I said I won't. Because if I wanted to fire a second bullet, I would, I would incorporate that in the price here in the package. But there's only two I'm planning to fire a second bullet. I'm just saying I reserve the right to do it for other ones where it's available. A lot of these you just can't do it by the rules. But the, the few that you can that are not listed that we're going to be doing more than one bullet, if I do it, I'm on my own. And that's just, it's just common sense. And uh, it, it may feel crappy. Like, th- take the millionaire maker. I could fi- fire additional bullets there, and I'm, I'm not charging you for more than one, and I'm not going to fire more than one. But if, for whatever reason, I just say, hey, I want to do it, and then let's say I want it, and then I say, well, yeah, I know you had a piece of you, let's say you had 4% of me for the millionaire maker. And then I win it for all that money for a million bucks. And then I say, your share is zero point zero. I mean, it'll feel crappy. Like you have a share of me and then you get zero. So it feels like you got ripped off, but you didn't because if I, if this was on my second bullet that I paid for myself that you never paid for, then it really would be all me. Just like if I lose and don't cash anything, that's entirely the $1,500 out of my pocket and it doesn't come from you. So that's that's how it works. But of course, you probably want proof at that point if I really did fire two bullets. And I would be happy to provide that. And in fact, you could even come with me physically or send someone you trust to come with me physically to the cage at the Rio to verify that I fired two bullets in that event. Like I can walk up to the cage, have them verify it. You can even choose the cashier so you don't think I've bribed someone to lie about it. Or whatever. Not that I would. I'll just say, you, whatever way you want to do it to verify it, I will do it to show you if, if that's what really happens. And I won't be offended. I won't be insulted. Just to let you guys know. But this is very unlikely to come up because I, I really do stick to this. The only reason I'm mentioning this is because last year I found that the mixed Omaha you could rebuy. And I didn't even realize this until I was actually at the event and I just busted. And I was like, oh, crap, what do I do now? I want to rebuy, but I, that wasn't part of the package. So I ended up just rebuying on my own and... Almost cash, but didn't. So you guys were better off that you didn't have a piece of that. So this year, we're incorporating the two bullets in that. But just in case something like that happens again, it'll be all me. I'll put up all the money on my own, out of my own pocket, and anything I cash will be just mine. Uh, There's a a few facts for you about me at the World Series. Uh, First, 
I'm not trying to promote this as some great investment opportunity for you to make all kinds of big money, or I'm not trying to say this is positive expectation. This is for entertainment purposes only. This is something you'll do because you know me and because you want to have a piece of someone at the main event, at the, main, at, at the World Series events. Uh, I will provide you with frequent and detailed updates of all the action at my tables on Twitter, on the special Twitter I have for poker play only, which is uh, twitter.com slash dandruffpoker. It's a special second Twitter I have. And you'll be able to see a lot of updates there of hands I'm winning, hands I'm losing, uh, notable people at the table, interesting things that happen at the table, even if they don't involve me. Uh, notable players that may be around me. Uh, just anything interesting that's going on, either involving my poker play or just stuff that's happening in the event, you will see tweeted on twitter.com slash dandruffpoker. Of course, you can see that without buying pieces of the event, but it's, it's more interesting when you have a piece of it all. I, I probably update more and more detailed stuff than just about anybody. So if you really want to have a piece of someone who's really, really giving you the action as it happens then I'm a good one to invest in. It's, it's kind of tilting to buy a piece of someone and they, they tweet they're starting the event and then you hear nothing for like seven hours and they're like, oh, uh, got it in, uh, aces versus king, king flopped, out, gone. Well, I'll be back tomorrow. You're like, well, this isn't very fun. I got, like, I got no sweat. I got no updates. <laughs> you know, it's just, you're just getting your results. Well, that's not me. I'm the opposite. I, you, you get all the details the whole way. And you can look at previous years. Look at the other World Series forums on PokerFraudAlert.com from the other years. You can see, because it actually automatically reposts from my Twitter to PokerFraudAlert. That's a feature that I wrote into the site to do that. And you can see how much detail I gave. So if you want to have someone that you get a piece of that you feel like you're sitting right there next to them from all the descriptions they give of everything happening, I'm, I'm a good one to invest in. Uh, in case you're concerned about the Omaha events, as I said before, I've, I've been very competitive in the Omaha. I've, I've vastly improved my Omaha game in the last few years. And not only did I run deep in all those 08 events and uh, PL08 and Big O, not, not only did I do well in those last year, but in fact, I did much better than that than I did Limit Hold'em, where I bricked everything. But also, since then, I've played exactly two 08 events of uh, the highest buy-in possible. Uh, one at the bike and one at uh, Commerce. And the one at the bike, I was 10th place out of 91, which somehow was the bubble. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I was the bubble stone bubble boy with for the final table and the uh, and also caching. And then I just did one at Commerce in February at the LAPC, the 1100 event, that I was 7 from the money. So again, close to caching. So you see, I'm just, I, I seem to be running deep every time. That's not going to happen every time. I'm going to run bad some of these times and uh, not run deep at all, but you see that I'm obviously with all these deep runs that I know what I'm doing now with the Omaha events. And there are a lot of players who are not very good in these 1500 events. And I kind of laugh at some of their starting hand selections. <laughs> I laugh at some of the things they call down and chase. So uh, there's a lot of value in those events. Uh 
I've been competitive in the no limit event. Some some people think, okay, well, Druff, I could see him being good at limit hold'em. I could see him even being good at 08, but uh, no limit hold'em will get crushed these days against these uh, internet wizards and other frequent tournament players that play no limit hold'em all the time. You know, it's, I bet Druff, this uh, 47-year-old guy who who doesn't even play that much no limit is going to get destroyed. Well, if you put me in a field with just like all guys like that of these like internet wizards and and people who just are tournament players for a living, yeah, I'd probably get destroyed. But that's not who's mainly against me. The The World Series has a, a wide array of people who play No Limit Hold'em. Last year, I played two preliminary No Limit Hold'em events. Preliminary meaning bracelet events. Just not the, I'm not talking about the main event. I'm saying t- I played two non-main event No Limit Hold'em events at the World Series. I cashed in both. Not only did I cash in both, but one of them, I got 33rd place out of like 1,100-something people. So I was in the final four tables. And if you go look at my Hinden mob, you'll see that you know, most years I have a, a no-limit hold'em cash, despite the fact that I only play a few events. Like last year, I played two other than the main event, and I cashed both of them. So yes, I'm competitive at the no-limit events. Am I, am I like the best player in the field? No, I'm not. Uh, I... I but I think the way these World Series of Poker fields are comprised, I am competitive. And I still am after all this time. I am the 12th biggest casher all time in Limit Hold'em in the World Series. Look it up. Add up all the Limit Hold'em caches at the World Series in the history of the World Series of Poker, which dates way back before I started, 35 years before I started. If you add up all the caches of all the Limit Hold'em events at the World Series... There's only 11 people in the world who've cashed more than me. Finally, I have cashed at least once in every single World Series of Poker I've played since 2005, which is when I first entered. There's never been a World Series of Poker I've played where I did not cash at least one event. Every year, 05 through 18, 14 in a row. Now, if I played 25 events each year, that would be nothing. That would be pretty obvious that would happen, unless I was horrible, or unless I had a huge terrible run. But most years I play fewer than 10 events. Once you account for the events I missed for uh, second days and stuff like that, that makes it where I can't play certain events. Most years I play fewer than 10 events. Even if I start off with more than 10 on my schedule. And only recently did they change it to where the top 15% cash. Usually it's been top 10%, but I have been cashing every single year. Which, if you've played tournaments, you know how long, how easy it is to go on a streak of like 10 events you don't win. When I say win, I don't mean win, I mean like cash. You know how easy it is to do 10 bricks in a row. And, and so far I've avoided that. So that, shows, that should show you something too. That should show you that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to do the, the Alan Kessler min cash. I, I, I do try to win. I do try to play to win. But, but it shows that I'm at least competitive enough at these to where every single year I've had at least one cash despite not playing that many events. So what do I need? I, I just needed to click one year. I, I just needed to where one of those caches at least runs super deep. I thought I was going to have it last year at that uh, one no limit event, that one of those 1500s that I you know, got to 30, 33rd place. That was very exciting. I, I really thought at one point 
I remember going to dinner on day two with average chips and like 60-something people left. And I thought, wow, this could be it. This could be my first uh, No Limit Hold'em World Series of Poker final table since 06. Didn't happen. But just needed, just kind of things need things to, to fall the right way in the late stages. It's going to happen one of these years. So that's my schedule. Next year, in 2020, I may actually play horse, believe it or not. That might be a new thing for next year, but not this year. This year, I'm not good enough to do that yet. I will show up on time. I will show up rested. I will show up, uh, of course, not under the influence of any drugs or alcohol, since I never do those anyway. And when I say on time, by the way, I just want to make sure I, I clarify that. There, there are some events where it, it doesn't matter if you register you know, a little bit late because you're getting a full stack and the first level's meaningless. Uh, usually I, I do show up at the beginning anyway, but if you know if I buy in at, uh, the event starts at 2 o'clock and I buy in at, uh, at 2.20 and sit down with a full stack at 2.20 at a, at a limit event where the first level's meaningless, uh, I don't want someone creating a scandal. Oh my God, look what he's doing. So I, it's possible I'll do that just, just in case you're questioning that about that being done. There, there's great players out there like, like Phil Helmuth, like uh, Ronnie Barda, that intentionally buy uh, hours late. There's actually a strategy to doing that. There's, it's actually not necessarily negative expectation. It may even be positive expectation to buy in late. At least somewhat late. Because you do kind of skip over any run bad at the beginning. And you're fresher. I don't do it. I, there's some reasons not to do it, too. But I'm just saying that uh, showing up a little late for the event with a full stack is fine. As long as the structure is a certain way. If, the, if it's a fast-moving structure, that's stupid. Though some people still do it. Actually, it's not necessarily stupid. It's just you don't get much play. It's, it's actually never stupid. And I've gone over this before, why it's not stupid. I just don't do it. But anyway, that, that, that's what I mean by showing up on time, though. I'm not... Uh, I generally do show up in the first, uh, you know, early first level, usually before the event even deals one card. Uh, but just to show you, last year, last year I couldn't show up for the PLO eight on time because I made uh, day two of a different event, and my options were to either register a few hours late with a full stack or just not play it. And I, I went in there and I asked the floor man how much. Time is left. Or not how much time? How much? Uh, how many players are left? And I, I did some calculations, and I figured out that yes, I still had a very playable stack buying it with a full stack at this point, and did, and I cashed. So, you guys made money from me making that decision. But before I did it, I wanted to make sure at least I would be sitting down with a decent enough stack where I don't have to just get it in and, and hope to be lucky. I wanted to make sure there's pr- plenty of play at that point with the stack I would buy in with, and, and there was. So uh, that was an example of where I came in a few hours late, but uh, I had no choice. It was either that or don't play, and I, I had to make the right call. So I, I will make those calls. I just want to warn you guys, I will make those calls like uh, like in that spot. Do I buy in or not, or do I give people the refund? But I, I will only do it if I feel it's positive expectation to buy in at that point. If I feel it's not, I won't do it. But I, it's me who makes that decision. All right. Uh, for those that weren't buying a piece of me, this is probably a pretty boring segment, but uh, some of you are interested in it anyway. 
If you have any confusion about how to buy pieces of me, just text me, 775-372-8355. Okay, let's get to the good stuff now. Still with us, Trader Risky? I'm here. Couldn't get off of mute. Okay, well, now here comes the drama of the week. I, I enjoy poker drama. I enjoy Twitter drama. When I see it coming, I go, oh, look at this, especially if it doesn't involve me. Like, I, when I see it happening, I kind of like to get involved as a side character to, like, be someone who discusses it and analyzes it. I, I enjoy doing that. I'll admit that. But I don't like being so much on the hot seat myself. I don't want the drama to involve me, things that I did or things I'm accusing others of doing. That's stressful. But, but kind of being a commentator in others' drama, I, I do enjoy that. And even just talking about the drama or posting about it on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. So I ran into such drama on Twitter last night when I was reading Danielle Anderson under her D Moon Girl account that she uses on Twitter. Exactly as it sounds, D Moon Girl. It's letter D. And I saw her calling out a player I hadn't heard of before named Kirsten Oliberg. And Danielle, who usually does not get involved in drama, she's usually not someone who does that. She's just, you know, she's not a Kate Hall. She's not someone who's always looking for attention and saying outrageous things. This is totally not Danielle. Though I think, I think the two of them are kind of friendly. Not like close friends, but I think they're kind of friendly. And I say this because I remember when I, I, I was... Uh, making fun of Kate Hall, and then Andrew Barber, who is friendly with Kate Hall, uh, made some kind of snide comment back to me. And I remember Danielle Anderson liked the comment. Like, hmm. Like, she, she, must, uh, she must not be very happy with me either for what I was saying. But, but that doesn't really matter here. She has a good reputation. She's known as a nice person. She's known as a solid person. She's known as an honest person. She's a mother... She's married. She's a, a grinder. And she's kind of seen as one of the good people in poker. Just kind of like a good, normal person. She's from Minnesota, originally. Kind of a... Yeah, just a solid Minnesota family woman who also happens to be a poker grinder. And she's been around a while. A lot of people really like her. A lot of people really respect her. In fact, if you're going to pick someone to scam, she is not a good one. Because if she calls you out, your, your reputation is going to be trash unless you can defend yourself and prove that you didn't really do it. But she, Danielle's not the type to falsely accuse people of scamming. She's not the type to create drama for drama's sake. And she also is popular enough in poker and respected enough in poker that if she says you ripped her off and provides reasonable evidence to show this then your reputation is going to be screwed. There's going to be people, a lot of people really angry, like, oh my God, how, how could you do this to Danielle? She's so nice. She's, she's such a, a good, solid person. She's a, a married mom. You know, how can you do this to her? Like, people get mad. People, for example, if, if people scammed me, there would be much less outrage than if they had scammed uh, Danielle Anderson. She's just a, she's a, a sympathetic character in poker. She's just seen as... Uh, a non-confrontational, non-dramatic person. And 
they uh, it's just the type of person that a lot of people get angry if they hear they've been victimized. So that's really the wrong person to scam. But nonetheless, uh, it appears this might have happened. So who is this Kirsten Olliberg? I had never heard of her before. She claims to be a professional poker player in the Florida area. And the first I ever heard of her was from these tweets that Danielle Anderson put out. The way Danielle announced this whole situation was by doing the old writing stuff up on iPhone notepad and screenshotting several of them and then posting it up, which which I kind of don't like that format. It's kind of a pain in the ass to read, especially on Twitter. You've got to click through it and then you can't do the screenshot perfectly. So then the the next page, there's some sentences from the first page that are repeated there. You got to remember where you were. Yes, I can read it, but it's, I never liked that format. That's why I like forums. Like, if I've got a story to tell, I go, here's my story. Click here. You click on Poker for Alert. You see a, a, an article from beginning to end and then discussion. Like, it's, it's the perfect way to read this sort of thing. Uh, Twitter and these screenshotted notepad things are not ideal, but that's the way she chose to do it. So what I did on Poker Fraud Alert, I did an article about this, and I actually extracted her notepad uh, posts and uh, just put them one after the other, which makes it a little easier to read. You can find this on Poker Fraud Alert's uh, Scam, Scandals, and Shadiness forum. The Danielle Anderson accuses Kirsten Olliberg topic. So here's what Danielle wrote. By the way, I've never met her in person, Danielle. I knew of her. She knows of me. I don't think she likes me that much. She doesn't hate me. She doesn't like strongly dislike me. In fact, I, I actually had an interaction with her a few weeks ago, and I said something to her where we were disagreeing with something, and I said, I said something like, I know you never agree with me, something like that. And she said, oh, I don't remember that. So maybe that was just my impression, but it seems like she never agrees with me, and I know politically we're pretty opposite. And I think for that reason, she may not think that highly of me, but she, she doesn't think like really badly of me from what I can tell. She doesn't... Uh, like, she doesn't hate me or strongly dislike me. I think she might just kind of think I'm an asshole conservative, but that that's about the worst she'd probably think of me. Uh, we've never had any direct interactions at all in person or even on Twitter, aside from in, engaging in a few, like, multi-person political debates and maybe the Kate Hall thing that she liked when Andrew Barber made that snide comment. But we really haven't had direct interaction very much. I mention this only so you can get context in the way I'm approaching this story. So I'm not approaching this story as Danielle Anderson's friend. And she's not a listener to this show, to my knowledge. I have no reason to kiss her ass or to say nice things about her or to take her side. I really don't. And, and believe me, if I, if I could see some compelling evidence that she's wrong or partially wrong in this, I, I would definitely call it out. And I, I didn't even know this Kirsten Olliberg existed, so I, I definitely have nothing against her. So keep that all in mind. While Danielle Anderson has a lot of respect and a lot of friends in poker, I'm not one of them. I, I, I respect her as far as I know of her. Like a, She seems like a decent person. And I've never heard of anything bad she's done. But uh, I'm not a friend of hers. And as I said, I, I have a feeling she doesn't like me very much. So this is not someone I'm itching to defend. There, there are people out there that I really like in poker and that if, if I can find a way to defend them you know, while still being honest, I want to defend them. She's not one of them. She's not someone I, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I really want to defend Danielle. Like, no. I, not at all. She, I'm very neutral about my f- opinion on her regarding just uh, you know, personal feelings about her. 
So this is what she wrote. She wrote this March 13th at 2.31 p.m. So this is a little bit more than uh, a day old. I've never been free-rolled before or had a dispute in any casual poker bets made. So not sure the proper way to do this. But I feel the need to warn the, the community, as the poker community, against any financial deals or bets with Kirsten Oliberg at Panda Stacku. That's her name on Twitter, Kirsten. Panda Stacku. Exactly as it sounds. As I very strongly believe she owes me 2K and was free-rolling me in a bet. I believe she mostly plays at Seminole Hard Rock in Tampa, although I see on Twitter she has played in some Vegas as well. I, I'll provide a description of the issue here and then screenshots of the correspondence to back up my claims. In August 2018, during the Poker Night America Ladies Night cash game at Hard Rock in Hollywood, some silly bets were made at the table. Kirsten and myself were both playing in the game together. I let Kirsten know this via Twitter. She didn't respond. Wait, hold on. Yeah, this is the problem. <laughs> I think there's a skipped one here. There's definitely a skipped one here. Uh... Jeez. I, did, I See, this is the problem. I, one of these is missing in my repost. I'll have to fix this after the show. <laughs> ah, this is why. Just use a forum, Daniel. Come on. She may have, actually. I, I heard something about a 2 plus 2 thread I didn't check, so I, I shouldn't get on her for this. Let me go to the Twitter itself here, and I'll just read it directly from there. Okay, so Kirsten and myself... We're both playing the same game together when the wagers were made. One of the bets involved a mile race between Jamie Kerstetter and Lily Coletto. We talked about that on the show before. I posted on Twitter shortly after. This is, again, back in August 8, 2018. I was looking for some side action on Jamie, because those two were friends. Uh, Kirsten DM'd me saying she wanted Lily for 2K. I accepted the action, but made a clarification on the injuries, saying... I have Jamie, you have Lily. If either backs out because of injury, the other wins. That way neither can realize they're fucked and back out. That work? Kirsten confirmed that this was understood and the 2K bet was booked. So, not really knowing Kirsten very well, uh, and also just to clarify, Danielle did something smart. She thought, we're betting on them, but but we don't want someone feigning an injury. Because they're betting on two separate people, on uh, Jamie Kerstetter and Lily Coletto. They don't want one of the two saying, oh, no, I'm going to lose. I didn't train well enough. I think the other person is going to kill me. You know, I'm going to claim I rolled my ankle and, uh, and the bets, you know, the whole thing's off. So in order to prevent that from affecting the side bet, Danielle said, look, let's have an agreement that if one backs out because of injury, they lose. Even if the injury had nothing to do with all this, even if the you know, so, uh, someone hits them in a car accident that's not their fault and they, they injure their leg. It's too bad. You, you still lose if they can't run. So Kirsten supposedly confirmed that that's understood. Lily and Jamie were first set to run on October 8th. Lily twisted her ankle and it was pushed back to October 11th. I let Kirsten know this via DMs and she acknowledged it. When Lily's ankle was, ankle was more serious than initially thought, it was going to be pushed back Sorry about that. I sneeze. I was trying to. I tried to mute it. I couldn't. I couldn't get to the mute button in time. Uh, it, it was. It was pushed back to an undetermined time while she recuperated. I let Kirsten know this re- via Twitter. She didn't respond on February twentieth. 
I DM'd Kristen, Kirsten again, letting her know that Jamie and Lily had set a race day for February 28th, 2019. She did not respond. So just to stop here in case you got kind of lost here, especially with me sneezing in the middle. <laughs> this is the problem with the live show is that you have sneezes in the middle. If this, if this was recorded, then – well, it is being recorded. But if it was recorded and later edited, as many shows are, then there would be no sneeze. But since there was a sneeze here, basically the, the race was supposed to be in October – Lily hurt her ankle, and rather than call the whole thing off, they, they agreed, okay, let's just delay this for a while. So they delayed it, and then the race went off on uh, February 28th. That was the new date. So that we're back to a lot more recent now. We're a few, two weeks ago now. So now a long time had passed, and neither person had held the money with anybody else. It wasn't an escrow. They just... On their honor, both of them, Danielle and Kirsten, had agreed they're betting 2K on this. So Danielle said she messaged Kirsten saying, hey, uh, I just want to let you know the, the race is on February 28th now. The whole thing's still on. So please acknowledge. And she just didn't answer. On February 28th, they raced and Jamie won. I contacted Kirsten after Jamie to arrange payment. She responded a week later saying she doesn't think the bet was still on since the race didn't happen on the originally scheduled day. She claims she never would have made a bet that allowed so much preparation time, and she didn't reach out to cancel because she assumed it was already off. Seeing that we had already built in a clause that injury equals loss, this doesn't really make sense, as either bet was the act was active or I had won because it was pushed back due to Lily's injury. So that's a great point. The great point is it's one of two things. It's either the whole thing got delayed because of Lily's injury, which means it didn't go off due to Lily's injury, which means Danielle wins, as they agreed before, or... Since Danielle was acknowledging that it was delayed and wasn't claiming she won, that whoever won this race, you know, whichever person that they bet on won the race was going to be the winner of the side bet. And since it was Jamie, then Danielle won. So either way, she won. And I have to agree. So so far, it does not look very good for Kirsten here. Despite her now claiming she was under the impression that the bet was somehow silently canceled... She was texting Jamie that day of the race on February 28th. Jamie asked, is your bet with D-Moon still on? What if Lily doesn't show? Kirsten responded, we bet 2K for fastest one mile, with uh, some emojis. This is clear evidence she didn't truly believe the bet was off. This part's very important. Because on February 28th, the day of the actual race, Jamie and Kirsten were texting each other. And Jamie was curious, hey, are you still betting against me? Are you still betting on Lily? And so Jamie asked, is your bet with D-Moon Girl still on? Referring to Danielle. What if Lily doesn't show up? And Kirsten responded, we bet 2K for the fastest one mile. She didn't say, hey, I thought this bet was off. She, she didn't say, oh, no, no, this was canceled months ago. No, she didn't say that. She's like, yeah, we bet 2K for the fastest one mile. Danielle goes on to write, I offered multiple times to use an arbitrator to settle this. They should have used Eric Bensamokin. He would, he would have been available. Even saying she could pick the person, as long as they have a good, long-standing reputation in the poker world. She refused, saying it would be impossible to find an unbiased party. See, this, this is why you use Eric, by the way, because he is an unbiased party. He doesn't know any of these people. Like he's, he really is perfect for this sort of thing, but it wouldn't have mattered because Kirsten wasn't going to agree. I told her if finances were an issue, I'd be willing to work with her, but she just flat out won't admit to any fault whatsoever. Since she refused arbitration, I asked if she had any ideas how to move forward and fairly settle this. 
Her response was, my suggestion is to agree to disagree. (laughs) What does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, Yeah, you owe me $2,000. Yeah, let's just agree to disagree. That's not how it works when you owe someone money. I feel I've been more than understanding and patient when dealing with someone who clearly free-rolled me, but she's being accused... She's accused me of being a bully amongst other silly accusations. That's something really thrown around these days is the being a bully, and I I hate that. Whenever someone criticizes someone else, they're, quote, being a bully, even if the person being criticized deserves it, such as a scammer, such as someone who did something unethical, such as someone who said something they really shouldn't have. It's not bullying to call out someone for doing something wrong. Bullying is to pick on someone for no reason. Like if there's someone who's overweight and you tweet at them making fun of their weight just for no reason. Not that they haven't done anything to you. All, all they are is just a fat person and you make fun of them for being fat. That's bullying. If you make fun of someone for being ugly or, or, or being gay or, uh, or, or, or make fun of them because of their race. You know, these things, these could be bullying. But not calling out someone for something they've done wrong. Not calling out someone for not telling the truth. I had it before in chat rooms where I was accused of being a bully for calling out obvious fake accounts, obvious catfish, obvious dudes pretending to be chicks that I'm, quote, bullying that girl by saying it's really a man. (laughs) And I said, no, this person can prove me wrong in a second by showing a, a picture of themselves, like holding up a sign uh, you know, with, with a current date and time, they can disprove it. They won't. There, there, you know, there's this, this, and this suspicious things about them. These are my reasons. I'm stating this because I think this person's being dishonest and tricking people. This is not bullying. This is expressing a concern about someone screwing with you guys. That's not bullying. But, but a lot of people like to use the term bullying because what happened was that... Uh, there became a lot of concern about cyberbullying, where, especially like in middle schools and high schools, where kids were driven to suicide because mean kids in the school would write awful things about them online, and the kids wouldn't be able to cope, and, and they'd, they'd kill themselves. And there became a big concern about cyberbullying for that reason, and the consequences it has. Even if the kid doesn't kill themselves, it can cause emotional damage. I, I understand all that, but. Unfortunately, the term bullying has taken on a second meaning that it shouldn't, and that's basically anytime you criticize someone, anytime you call out someone, even if they have done something wrong, they'll accuse you of bullying, or their friends will accuse you of bullying, or idiots on the side who think any negativity equals bullying. No, sometimes negativity is good. Sometimes negativity is needed. If someone's done something that's negative, something's done something bad, then it is correct to write negative things about them. I just wanted to throw that in there. It kind of tilts me when people talk about bullying. Uh, it's a lot, but I'm going to provide all written correspondence so people can make their own judgment. She's referring to posting all the text messages. I will start with the text between her and Jamie on race day and then start at the beginning with my correspondence with her. I don't like being involved in any poker drama or negativity. I realize it's only 2K, but uh, it's the principle of it. I think as a community, we should all be active in self-police, self-policing scummy behavior. I believe this more than qualifies. 
And yes, I'm aware that some of the fault lies on me for making a bet with someone I didn't know all that well. I accepted that risk and I'm being punished for it. Lesson learned. Kirsten, I'm still hoping, uh, I'm still holding out hope that you will make things right. Now, I'm not going to read you all the text messages. You can find those on Poker Fraud Alert. I, I posted them there. There's a lot of them. Uh, it's basically the way Danielle says it was, so there's no point for me to read the full text here. It's going to bore you. But you, you have a good idea of what happened here. I'm sure you have a good idea that it looks to me, it looks like to any observer here, that in August, Danielle made a bet with Kirsten as to which person will win between Jamie and Lily in their race that's to take place in October of 2018. The bet was for 2K. Danielle took Jamie. Kirsten took Lily. And they had a clause in there about the injury, that if either backs out because of injury, then the other person wins. So they had that in there. They agreed. I see this in the first text message where... uh, Danielle says, sure thing, lady, 2K, I have Jamie, you have Lily. If either backs out because of injury, the other wins. That way, neither can realize they are fucked and back out. That work? Confirm and I'll consider it booked. And then Kirsten said back, confirmed, when do they run? Okay, done. That's it, confirmed. Then it got delayed because Lily did get hurt. They didn't cancel it, they just delayed it. And then the race finally went off on February 28th, and Jamie won anyway. So it's very simple. Either way... Danielle won. She either won by Lily backing out of the October date because of the injury or by delaying the date and losing anyway. Doesn't matter. Here's a simpler way of putting it. Let's say I have a bet on the Dodgers. And the day of the game... Um... It, uh, it gets suspended due to rain. Okay? And let's say before I place that bet... Or sorry, sorry. Let me change this again. Let's say I have a bet on the Dodgers, but, and, I, and I place it, and when I'm placing it, there's a very clear warning that uh, if, the, uh, if the Dodgers quit for any reason, not because of rain, but let's say they just... Uh, decide to quit because something happens and uh, they have to end the game, then the bet loses. So I bet I, I acknowledge that I bet on them anyway. And then when tied three to three in the seventh inning, the Dodgers, for whatever reason, they uh, this never really happens in baseball. Let's say it did. They they, they say uh, we can't continue. We have to we have to freeze the game. Let's say let's say there's one of their players had a heart attack or something and they didn't want to continue playing. Okay. And then I go, well, crap, this is crappy. Uh, I, I don't want to lose this. It's a tie game. It should just be canceled. But then uh, it's agreed that they're going to uh, finish the game off the next day anyway. And they do. They finish it off the next game, the next day, and the Dodgers lose. Well, either way, I've lost there. I couldn't complain because I already agreed that if the Dodgers halt play, that I lose the game. And then... Even if they didn't halt play, they lost the next day anyway. So there's no way I can claim that bet had no action. If I had already agreed that if they halt play, 
then it's then I lose. Either way, I'm losing, right? Well, same thing here. Same thing here. So this is very clear. So why was Lily doing this? Well, Lily was probably having money problems, and she, she really probably made the bet just like a degenerate wanting to win 2K. I, I, it, it's possible she was free-rolling in the first place. It's possible she was broke back in August, and she was just planning not to pay if she lost, and 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 was hoping to just get the 2K from Danielle, who's very reliable, if she won. That's possible. But it's also possible she had the money back in August. And then in uh, in October, when Lily got hurt, uh, this stalled it for several months. And it didn't go off until uh, several months later. It, it didn't go off till what is it, four, four and a half months later, at the end of February. So I think Lily got an idea at that point. First of all, she had already agreed if someone backs out because of injury that she loses if, if it's if it's Lily doing it. So Lily's like, ah, uh, sorry, I can't run because I'm injured. <laughs> and, uh, the last thing that Kirsten wants to say at that point is, oh boy, this means I lose. So she's probably hoping that it still goes off somehow and she'll she'll win maybe. Sorry about that. <coughs> I tried to take a quick... <clears throat> yeah, boy. <coughs> I tried to take a quick sip of water while I was in between words and it didn't go down well. <laughs> this is what happens on live radio. <coughs> Sorry about that, people. Okay, starting to feel better. <laughs> I tried to quickly get water down my throat, and that didn't work out. So, she was thinking to herself, all right, good, it didn't get canceled, and it doesn't seem like Danielle is calling it canceled. It seems, it seems like Danielle's okay with giving time for Lily to recover. So that was a, that was actually a big boon for Lily, or not for for, for Kirsten, because Kirsten kind of got a second life here. Because here they had the agreement, if there's an injury, then it's done. If one can't run. And then it got delayed. Now, actually, Danielle may have had a good case at that point to just say, hey, you already lost. But she was nice enough to say, okay, fine, since they're delaying it, we'll just delay the whole thing. And then when the race went off on February 28th, Kirsten said, well, okay, at least I have a shot. At least Lily had time to recover. And then Lily lost anyway. I think at that point, Kirsten was broke and thought to herself, well, okay, this is, this is perfect. If Lily wins, then I collect 2K. If he doesn't win, I say, hey, it, it didn't go off as scheduled, so I thought the whole thing was off. Very scummy. That's what it looks like. I can't say for sure I'm not in her head. But it seems pretty clear from the chain of messages and from the fact that Kirsten even told Jamie herself on the day of the race that it was on. And then once Lily lost, and then suddenly it wasn't on anymore. So it was really a big-time welching and free-rolling, it looks like to me. I can't see how it wasn't. Now, if they didn't have this agreement about the injury, then Kirsten would have had a better point. Then Kirsten could have said, well, look, you know, it, it didn't go... We were betting on the October race... 
someone got injured, it didn't happen just because they redo it in, in late February. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm still on the hook for this. Now, if she's if she's saying she's on the hook on February 28th to Jamie, then she is. But yeah, ignoring that, if that hadn't happened, take away that message, then Kirsten might have a point that she just assumed it was canceled. Now, this sort of thing has to be communicated. That still is wrong to not say anything. If you're if you feel it's canceled, you should be very clear with the other person. But at least there would be some wiggle room for reasonable doubt that perhaps Kirsten really thought that when it didn't go off in October, it was just canceled. But because they already had this covered, that if someone gets injured, that whoever is betting on the injured person loses, then it's over either way. There, there's no way around this. And if you read the text messages, it's very clear. You're seeing Kirsten just trying to rationalize in any way she could, trying to get out of paying. Just it, Her arguments make no sense. And it's, it's just a typical poker player scumbag move to lose a prop bet and then try to get out of paying. And we've seen this many times before. So Danielle called her out yesterday. You might wonder, what did Kirsten have to say back about this? What was her excuse? I mean, all these text messages had been posted, but did she post her own side of the story? Well, no. Did Kirsten post a response? Yes, Kirsten did post a response. Oddly, the only response Kirsten was posting was a picture of Danielle Anderson playing poker with a Trump Make America Great Again hat photoshopped on her head. That, that's in her entire response. Like, like, Danielle lays out this very, very extensive and convincing case. And, like, people are like, okay, Kirsten, anything to say? Uh, yeah, here's a picture of you wearing a Make America Great Again hat that's photoshopped on your head. <laughs> I mean, like, why, why even respond to anything if that's what you're going to respond back? It's not even like Danielle's a Trump supporter. She's not. She's the opposite. I think that's the whole point. But... Uh, all, all Kirsten responded back was at D Moon Girl. Can you please make this your profile pick? Thanks. Now there was a response in her defense from Kirsten's husband, named Ryan Weatherman. Not Ryan Leatherman, not Amanda's brother, but uh, Ryan Weatherman. I hadn't heard of before either. Ryan wrote this: Why did you CC these groups? And referring to how she. Uh, um, when Danielle posted these accusations, she also at did the at SHRT poker and at poker league nations. The tr- these, I guess these were, uh, companies that Kirsten had won some tournament drawing to play in a tournament for free. So he was mad that he was, that Danielle was trying to bring this to the attention of, of anything that might be associated at all, even with something that, uh, Kirsten had won. Which I agree, you know, you could say that looks kind of petty and, and vindictive, but at that point when someone screwed you out of 2K and just is totally unreasonable, I, I understand why they're doing that. In fact, I, I did this once myself to someone where they, they were screwing me and I decided to make it clear not just to them, but also to one of their sponsors what was happening. And I there's nothing wrong with that really because you're just letting them know the true and correct story of what's, what's occurring. You're, you're not As long as you're not lying, then if someone's trying to screw you or cheat you, or scam you, and you make a company they're associated with know about that, that's completely fine as long as you're truthful. 
Anyway, so he wrote, why did you CC these groups? Because my wife is lucky enough to win a poker group, uh, a poker trip through the, through the luck of the draw. This is petty on a whole other level. It also affects Kirsten's income. Careful. We aren't litigious, but this is close to defamation. Oh. Legal threats. He also writes, uh, that wouldn't work, but if you bet a sporting event and it, a sporting event and it gets canceled, guess what? You get your money back. Bet is null and void. Thanks for chiming in, groupie. That was referring to someone on Danielle's side. That, that's the argument he was trying to use. Of look, something got canceled. If you bet on a sporting event, if it gets rained out, you get to get your money back. But that's not what happened here. They, they had something in place for if this gets canceled due to injury. So that doesn't apply. He also wrote. Lily never said she was injured. We never heard from Lily about an injury. We also didn't see the race live, nor was there a video made. We were out of the loop after the first of the year. I have no more to say. Lawyers will be speaking for us from now on, which I doubt. I doubt they can afford a lawyer. People love to say that. People love to try to scare others with threats about lawyers. And they they say that because... They want the other side to be afraid that they're going to be embroiled in a long and expensive legal case, and they're going to have to hire their own lawyers, or they want to create fear, like you're about to start a whole long, expensive confrontation, and you better back off if you don't want that. That's A lot of times scammers will do that. Scammers love to th- make legal threats. Don't post this about me or I'm going to sue you. That's, that's a very common tactic. In fact, that's even what Firefest did to try to silence people who were trying to expose the truth about them before the whole thing failed. That's what a lot of shady companies and shady people will do. They'll, they'll make legal threats that there's going to be consequences for those who try to call them out, claiming it's defamation or libel or slander. So that, that's what he's saying here. Now, this this is ridiculous because... There's no defamation just by telling a story that really happened. That's true. You, you have a right to tell the truth. If something happens to you, you have a right to tell that story. And if your story you're telling is true, then, and you can prove it's true, then there's really nothing that uh, can be done to you. There's no law against saying unflattering things about someone that may have a consequence to them. If... Uh, Here's an example. Let's say some guy who doesn't like me just comes over and punches me in the face and breaks my nose, okay? And then I find out where he works, and I show up with a broken nose, and I tell his boss, hey, this guy punched me in the face. Let's say I have it on video, too, that the guy punched me in the face for no reason. And I I show the video of this guy walking up and just clocking me in the face for no reason, okay? I show it to his boss, he gets fired. Can he sue me? No. Why? Because I'm, I'm just showing something that, that just happened. I, I'm showing them the truth. I'm telling them the truth. If I call up his next employer and tell them he did this and send them the video, again, every right of mine to do because it's telling the truth. If I were to make a website with that video of the guy punching in my face with the full details of what happened with his full name up there and to SEO the page to where a Google search of his name will make this come up first, would that be illegal? No. Why? Because, again, I'm just directing people to the truth. And any consequence he has from that, he has to live with. You don't have a right to cover up the truth. Now, if I just made the story up 
and accused him of this and he had consequences from it, oh yeah, yeah, then he could sue me and, and he could win. But not if it really happened and I could prove it. So that's why this is foolish, this, this defamation thing. It's, it's, it's stupid. He's also starting to create doubt in people's minds. He's, he's trying to bring in a, a seed of doubt, trying to plant a seed of doubt that maybe the race wasn't legit in the first place. He said, we never, we didn't see the race live, nor was there a video made. Meaning, hey, what if this was a trick? What if there was no race? What if they took a lot of heavy prop bet action on Jamie's side, and then Jamie paid off Lily to lose on purpose or to not even have the race and just say she lost, and then they clean up and then they, you know, everybody makes out except for the poor people who bet on Lily. But there were no terms about this. There were no terms that we have to have the race on video. When you're making a side bet on two people's action, on two people's race, uh, you you just have to trust the information given to you, unless you make that a term. But what what I think happened here is I think they probably had the money to make this bet back in August, maybe even had it in October, and didn't have it in February. So what do you do at that point? You can't back out. So what do you do? So their solution was just to free roll it. And then that didn't go over well. Now what's interesting is Danielle being a, a reasonable and nice person claims that she actually would have worked with Kirsten on the 28th if she wanted out of the bet, even though that wasn't in the terms of it. She said, the frustrating thing is that I'm, I'm an empathetic person. Had situations changed and she couldn't afford the risk, I'd have let her out for free or for hella cheap, despite feeling I had the better end of the bet. She didn't bother, she didn't bother just tried to free roll instead. And that, that's why Danielle is so angry, is that if Kirsten was broke, if Kirsten said, look, I thought this was going to happen back in October when I had the money. Unfortunately, I, I, I've gone broke since then. A lot of bad things have happened in my life. I, I've run terrible at the tables. And, and I'm broke now. I can't afford to lose 2K. So I could have afforded it back then. I can't anymore. That, that's what's frustrating for me here. And, and uh, can you please just let me out of the bet? This is before, before losing, of course. Danielle says that she either would have agreed to that or agreed for some kind of super cheap buyout. But she's mad that instead of taking that approach, that Kirsten just tried to free roll her. And I understand that. That, that, that is frustrating. I had this happen. I'm, you know, I'm going to do this very soon. I'm going to call out a guy very soon who ripped me off, a, a guy who was basically a, a, a local bookie in Vegas who stiffed me at first out of like 2300 bucks, and then he actually paid off most of it, but the final like 580 or something, I have the exact number somewhere, somewhere like 580, uh, he, he never paid. And a few months ago, I made very brief contact with him where he agreed to pay and then disappeared again. He's still in Vegas, though. I, I meant to call him out. I just haven't, but I'm, I'm tired of this. I think I'm going to call him out. I think I'm going to make a thread pretty shortly about this guy. He's not a, a known person in poker, but uh, he does play. But what pissed me off, among other things with him, was that he free-rolled me when he realized he was broke and couldn't pay me what he owed. And he was supposed to pay me every week, or I was supposed to pay him every, every week, depending on who was up on each other. Uh, he claimed he had to go 
on a trip, or not had to, he was going on a trip and would be out of cell phone service so that we'll settle up the following week. And what he was really doing is buying time, hoping I would lose, and then he wouldn't owe me the money he owed. So the plan was, if I lose it back, then he doesn't owe me anything. If I win more, then he just won't pay me. So I was being free-rolled. And that, that's basically what happened to Danielle here, is that Kirsten couldn't pay if she lost. And instead of canceling, it's, eh, well, you know, I could win 2K out of this, and that'll help us out of some of our problems. So yeah, let's just let this go. It's also possible that Kirsten was afraid to say something to Danielle, or was embarrassed, or ashamed, and or maybe thought Danielle was going to say tough luck. Maybe she thought Danielle approaching the whole thing with these terms about if they get injured, you still lose. Like maybe she thought Danielle was just going to say tough luck, you lose. But what's the worst that could have happened? She could have asked, "Hey, can you let me out of it?" And if she said no, okay, the bet's still on. Like nothing happens there. She wasn't really risking anything other than her pride. So bottom line, I I totally understand everything Danielle is feeling. I feel she did get free-rolled. I feel she did get scammed. I think all the evidence is there. It's very clear. And, by the way, Ryan Weatherman, her husband, deleted all his tweets shortly after posting them because uh, there was terrible reactions to them. He just made it worse. He should have stayed out of it. Sometimes, like, a friend or a husband or a relative of someone being accused of scamming tries to come in and defend them and just uses such stupid and nonsensical arguments, they just make it look worse. Sometimes it's better saying nothing in someone's defense if their actions are indefensible. I've had that happen before. I've had people that I've personally liked or been friends with that have made mistakes, and then they're being attacked on social media or on forums, and... If I think about it and there's really nothing I can say in their defense, I just don't say anything. I'm not going to jump on the train attacking them because they're my friend, but I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, make excuses for them. That's a mistake. So he he realized that and deleted his tweets. But these legal threats, I mean, it, it just rip someone off and then threaten legal consequences for calling them out is really crappy. And I've had it before where people have threatened legal action against me for stating things about them which would be true or very likely true, even if I can't prove it, that if it were to go to a court of law, I could prove it. So... When I've gotten those, I've, I've always made it clear to people that these threats don't scare me. And that if that's the way they want to go, then they can go that way. I, I don't want to have a legal hassle with people. I don't want to have to uh, engage in pointless legal battles over friv- frivolous lawsuits, but I'm not going to be pushed around. And I tell people, if there's something you want me to take down or retract and, and you can convince me to do it, without making threats or you want me to soften something um, fine or I've had people who've said hey you know you know they come at me all angry about something that happened that I wrote about them and I say look uh, I'm not gonna re- I'm not gonna remove anything that's true that for sure occurred 
But, uh, you know, if you'll stop acting crazy and stop uh, making these threats to me, I will compromise with you and I'll, I'll remove my speculation. I'll remove my speculation of I think this, I think that when, I, when I'm just guessing at them. Even though I'm always clear when I'm guessing at something, but I'll, I'll remove it, I'll tell some of these people, to try to you know, make peace and, and put an end to it. But not from, not from the legal threats. I'm, ne- I'm never worried. In fact, most of the people making the legal threats to me cannot even afford to do so. There's no way they could afford to hire a lawyer to sue me anyway. Nor would their case be good enough for anyone, any lawyer to take it on contingency. So I'm not even worried about that. I just I, I try to say, look, let, let's just be reasonable here. You know, I understand why such and such bothers you. What I think, what I wrote, I believe is true. But since I don't have proof, what I wrote is all true, even though all the evidence seems to point to it. Um, I'll remove this part of it, but I, I'm leaving such and such other part of it up there because it needs to be there. Uh, I have moved or removed. I, I've I've killed years old stories that aren't relevant anymore, especially like story about just drama that's not that important that people don't really need to still know. It's not about like covering up for a scammer. It's more for you know. Someone said something stupid on social media back in 2014, and there was a, you know, maybe a one-page thread about it. And then when people Google them, they find it, and they, you're having a hard time getting a job. I, I, I say, okay, I understand. I, I don't want to ruin your life. I don't want my site to be a thorn in your side because you said something dumb on social media in 2014. I get it. I'll remove it. So, you know, if people come up and approach me rationally, I'll remove it. But I, I don't want to cover for scammers. I don't want to. Uh, remove things that make a scammer look bad in the future, unless it's a while later, a long while later, and the scammer has made everything right, and they don't have a habit of doing it, and they don't appear to still be a danger to the community. Then sometimes I'll agree to, to take it down. But I always just, I don't delete anything permanently. I move it out of view to where no one can see it except me. And then if they were to ever be a problem again in the community, I can put it back. But anyway, uh, this is going to be following around Kirsten Oliberg, which is not a very common name. I don't know if there's any other Kirsten Oliebergs anywhere. It's not like her name was uh, you know, Jennifer Smith, and she didn't have to worry about being Googled. I mean, what are you going to... I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to Google Kirsten Oliberg. And see if we get anything else other than her. No. In fact, in fact the third result is Poker Fraud Alert. <laughs> By the way, you may wonder, is she aware of the Poker Fraud Alert article? That's funny. The, the next result under Poker Fraud Alert is a, a, a Tasty Steaks. She's got an account on Tasty Steaks. Here, I'm going to read this. I, I didn't notice this until now. It's kind of embarrassing. I mean, it's not Calwatt's fault, but it's, it's funny. Like, I, I have this whole write-up about how she's probably a scammer, and then right under there, she has an account on Tasty Steaks asking to be staked <laughs> <laughs> on, on Calwatt's site. <laughs> but, you know, Calwatt doesn't vet this. Anyone can sign up for it. It's not his fault. But she wrote this uh, two years ago. I'm a 27-year-old med student. I play about 20 to 30 hours of poker a week, mostly 5-10 no limit and 5-5 PLO. I mostly play cash. I've had pretty good success in tournaments I've played. I'm going to be a featured player on Poker Night in America, on, uh, I guess it was written last year, on Saturday, 8-11 at the Hard Rock. Oh, this is where it all began. This is where the trouble began. Hmm. That is where 
all the problems started. Uh, there's also some who blame the victim, and I hate that. Some people blamed Danielle. Well, this is your fault for being stupid enough to do a 2K bet with someone you barely knew. Well, Danielle acknowledged this. She said, yeah, this was my fault for being too trusting, but still, she needs to be called out. And it wasn't her fault. I don't even agree with that. It was something stupid and careless she did. Much like if I were to walk down the street late at night in a bad neighborhood with money hanging out of my pocket and someone comes up and mugs me. This would not be my fault. It would be the mugger's fault. The mugger would still go to prison if caught. And that would not be a defense that I was walking around with cash hanging out of my pocket. That's, that's never a defense to commit a crime. However, it could also be said that I was stupid and careless to put myself in a position where it was much more likely I would be victimized. And that's what happened to Danielle here. She put herself in a position to be victimized and was victimized. But it's not her fault. Others said something even dumber, that she's ruining someone's reputation over 2K. And I absolutely despise that type of argument. First of all, 2K is not nothing. 2K, $2,000, that's not nothing. That's, that's real money. If it was $20, I could see the point. You know, don't, if someone owes you 20 even if they really do and don't pay you for whatever reason, you do, do you really want to go after their whole reputation over 20 bucks? I, I can understand that argument. But 2000 If someone scams you out of 2000 and appears they did so in a free-roll manner, which is very obnoxious, Of course you have the right to call them out and ruin their reputation after they will not deal with you. Of course you have that right. There's no minimum amount. There's no high minimum you have to set. You can only ruin someone's rep if it's 20K or more. No, No one said that specifically, but some were giving Danielle a hard time for ruining Kirsten's rep over 2K. No, Kirsten was refusing to pay 2K she owed. Despite many ways that Danielle tried to work with her. So, tough luck. That's what happens. That's the consequence. You should never tell someone that they shouldn't suffer a consequence or they shouldn't make someone else suffer a consequence because the harm they caused to you wasn't enough. If something malicious is done, and it harms you, anything but very, very tiny and inconsequential, you definitely have a right to call them out and ruin their rep if possible. You definitely do. It's called actions having consequences. I've heard the same logic before when some uh, employee of uh, some company I'm dealing with just does something malicious and nasty to me because they don't like dealing with me. And then I track down their boss and they get fired. And people ask me, how can you get that person fired? I go, look, I wasn't getting someone fired over a, a careless mistake. I was getting someone fired over using their job as a malicious, in a malicious way to harm me. So that's a consequence of their action. That's it. Whenever someone feels that their actions shouldn't have consequences, that's really a a moral flaw 
And it's a moral flaw to believe on behalf of others that their actions shouldn't have consequences. And when they don't have consequences, then the person will keep on doing it. Rarely is a scam a one-off thing. Usually, when you find out about something like this, it turns out that there's others who have been victimized as well. So far in this one, we haven't seen it yet, but uh, so many times we've seen it where someone who rips someone off, it turns out they've ripped off a lot of people. And if they're not called out, then if they haven't ripped off anyone else yet, they will. Because the first experience ripping someone off was good. They got away with it. It's positive reinforcement. That's such a stupid way of putting things. Uh, It's only 2K. Why are you ruining a rep? Why are you making such a big deal? Because it's $2,000 he got stolen from you? It's a great reason to ruin someone's rep. I would have done the exact same thing. And if you wouldn't do the exact same thing, then you're a chump. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is our number. If you want to call in, I'll take a call. Otherwise, we will move into the move on to the next topic. Trader Risky, are you here? You know what's weird? I see a I see like a beating heart on Skype. It's actually showing like a, a heart beating. When I say a heart, it doesn't look like a the heart is still beating. I'm here. Okay, <laughs> just couldn't hit, find the fucking mute button. I, I don't even know what that heart is supposed to mean. It's uh, it, it's like a, a heart, the same type of heart you see like for Valentine's Day. It's not like a human heart, but then it's beating like a human heart. And I don't know what it means. I don't know if I think maybe it's emojis. I don't, oh, I don't see it on my end. Uh, you're lucky. I, I don't want a beating heart. I, I don't. I want a beating heart. I don't want it on Skype. I don't want Skype to have a beating heart. In fact, I, I would like to actually pull the plug on Skype. All right, we're going to move on to the next thing here. Do you have any comments on this whole uh, Danielle Anderson, uh, Kirsten Oliberg thing? Um, I think the segment was long enough, but no, I think she had every right to do it. She verified it after the fact, and it'll be interesting to see what comes up over the next week if there's other skeletons in that closet. Yeah, uh, one other thing I, I did... Uh, at one point, Kirsten was saying that uh, Danielle's followers were th- harassing and threatening her. At which point, I was getting a little suspicious that this was just being made up in order to make herself into the victim. So I asked her, I actually asked Kirsten there on Twitter, "Can let's see proof. Let's see proof this actually happened. Well, surprisingly, she posted proof. She responded, posting a screenshot for Twitter, which I think is authentic of one person named Robin H 0775185 who wrote you are going to get your ass beat and someone else named uh, Mr Parmigiano wrote pay up ho <laughs> so those were the two messages uh this robin bunch of numbers looks like someone's second account had like 15 followers and 15 followings and is, you know, barely tweeted it was not i had wondered if maybe Kirsten made the account herself to threaten herself but Probably not because it was created back in 2017 and didn't seem to have any connection to Kirsten, but I guess it's still possible it could have been an account she had sitting for a while, but I have a feeling that maybe just some troll made that. I, 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 my gut feeling is that, yes, these were two authentic messages she got from randoms who wanted to hassle her. One just said, pay up, ho. The other one saying she could get her ass beat. The pay up, ho is no big deal. That's just a comment. Uh, it's kind of a rude comment, but whatever. Uh, the, the, you're going to get your ass beat, I admit, is inappropriate, but 
that's, this is the type of thing that happens when you scam someone who's who's popular, and then the big brouhaha follows it. So that's where it stands at the moment. We will move on. Well, if there's any conclusion to this next week, I'll let you guys know. All righty. I want to talk about the the consequence one faces if caught playing on one of the legalized online poker sites from a different state. Uh, I, I kind of... I don't want to say I considered this, but I, I did run it through my head. And I'll take it. You know what? I'll take a call here. Uh, Trader Risk, I'll, I'll, connect you, I'll connect you back on. Oh, no. You know what? I don't have to... You know what? Look, 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 new feature. New Skype feature. All right. You know what? We have a new feature on Skype. Let's see how this works. Uh, call, are you there? Caller, you can you can call back if you're not here. Why don't we have the caller? The caller's here. No, the caller's here. I'm still here too. Caller, and the caller hung up. Okay. Now, now, now he's gone. He's gone. Uh, Skype just added a feature on this new version. Finally, something good happened where you can actually take calls. Wow. Okay. By the way, uh, Trader Risky, can you hear the sign- sound effects I play through Skype, or you can't hear them? I haven't heard any of them yet. Okay, so it's, uh, that's still missing, but at least I can merge calls in now. That's that's we're slowly seeing an improvement. I saw a new button. I go, wow, there's making a progress, making a slow progress. Okay, whoever this was, please call back in. Uh, but since since they probably aren't going to for whatever reason, our callers are very temperamental. I'm actually happy this could be done now, though. It's so tilting us to be able to do that. Talking about the thing with legalized online poker, I, I considered it. I considered, like, what if the Nevada games are good? This is years ago. What if I find a way to play on these Nevada games when I'm really not in Nevada? Like, could I? Should I? What's the chance I could get away with it? Well, it turned out that it was a fail site anyway, so it was even, wasn't even worth considering. But even if it was good, I would not have bothered because there were too many potential consequences, I thought. I thought, okay, here's the consequences. One, they could just confiscate my money. Two, they could ban me from all Caesars properties. Three, they could put out a warrant for my arrest. Now, if I didn't return to Nevada, they this wouldn't be serious enough to extradite me. But uh, then, then I'd be afraid to go back to Nevada at any point, which would kind of suck. It's not like I can't go back to North Dakota. This is, uh, this is Nevada, a place I'd want to be going a lot. This is the state I spend the second most amount of time in, beyond California. So I said this isn't worth it, and I never even seriously considered doing it. But I did wonder what would happen if you do it and you're caught, and I just had never heard of a case of this happening, mainly because these sites weren't that good, so there, people didn't have much motivation to do it. But someone did have motivation to do it, and that was a guy named Vin Dow in California, someone I haven't heard of before. This guy used the New Jersey sites from California, which is illegal. And this actually occurred back in 2014. So how come we're talking about it now? Did I just forget to cover it five years ago? No. This has taken a long time to handle legally. So this was discovered in February 2014, more than five years ago. 
And there were two sites where he was playing, both New Jersey sites, BorgataCasino.com and WSOP.com. At the time he was caught, he had $79,539 in BorgataCasino.com. And 10574 in WSOP.com. This totaled over 92 k And the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement got involved to facilitate this forfeiture. But what happened from there? This is back in 2014. Why, why did it take five years? Well, I'm not exactly sure why it took five years, but this was not disclosed. This was not made public anywhere. No one except for Vin Dow and these companies and the New Jersey Department of Gaming Enforcement were aware of this. Really, no one knew about this at all. Uh, It's kind of weird it took so long. And at some point, very soon after he got caught, Vindau agreed to cooperate. It's not clear exactly what the cooperation entailed. Some believe it's possible that the cooperation involved him showing them and explaining to them what he did to get around the location tracking. The it's possible that they just wanted to know how he did it, and this way they could try to close whatever loophole he was doing to get around it. Now, there's some ways I can think of that are pretty obvious. You could use a VPN with an IP address in New Jersey. You could set up an account. You, you, you can set up a computer at somebody else's house you trust in New Jersey and just use a program like TeamViewer to connect to their computer. But it's not made clear how he did it, and it's not exactly made clear what he did to cooperate. What is interesting is of the $92,613, they actually gave him a little bit of the money back. Of that money, he got back $2,500, which sounds like nothing, but it's still $2,500, and this was given to him for his, quote, long-term cooperation. So at some point in 2014, there is an agreement that he will cooperate with this investigation and that they will return 2500 of that 92613 My guess is the 2500 might be what he originally deposited. I'm wondering if he was asking, hey, I don't want to keep my winnings, but at least give me my original deposit back. This is just my guess. I don't have any information of that being true. In January 2019, the Division of Gaming Enforcement in New Jersey came forth with a stipulation of settlement. And it it basically outlined these terms of uh, what's going to happen, including the 2500 and that he's going to keep... What is this sound I'm hearing? This is really weird. No, that was my bad, Jeff. Okay. I hit a button. <laughs> it, was really, it showed like both of us, our pictures together. It was really weird. 
Okay, so it says in number 14 in this document, in recognition of respondent's cooperation in this case, and in order to bring the matter to conclusion, the parties agree that respondent Dow shall be entitled to retain a total of $2,500. So that's, uh, that, that's kind of weird, too. Now, is there anything in this document, which is it's like five pages, is there anything in this document that mentions part of the settlement, which was signed in the middle of January 2019? by both the Deputy Attorney General in New Jersey and Vin Dow's attorney on his behalf. Is there anything in here about criminal either uh, settlements that they're not going to charge him or pending charges against him? Just anything criminal. Is there anything mentioned in this five-page settlement, in this five-page settlement they have? No. It's as if the possibility to charge him criminally does not exist, at least in New Jersey. I don't know if it exists or not, but there is nothing mentioned in this entire matter that he is or is not going to be charged. Presumably, he's not going to be charged. Presumably, they're fine with just keeping his money, minus 2500 and that's it. It seems like they're fine with him just signing the rest of it over to them, saying, okay, I give up, keep it. Let's be done. Just give me my 2500 back. Whatever that 2500 whether there's just a small amount to give back to him or there was what he deposited. Now, where does this money go? Trader Ruski, where do you think this 90000 or so is going to go that got forfeited? Is it going to go back to the players? Do you think so? I think it'll go right into the casino's pocket. Well, you know what? You are actually incorrect. It is not going to go to the casino. I bet you're surprised by that. It's not going to the casino, and it is not going to the players he played against. And it is not going to him. So who's left? Who could possibly get this money if it's not going to the casino's? It's not going to him, and it's not going to his opponents. Who could possibly get it? 800, stop gambling. Close. The New Jersey Department of Gaming Enforcement. That is pretty outrageous. That is pretty outrageous that the government keeps it. This was one against players there. A player who was not supposed to be there won... $90,000 against legitimate players on the site. Now, he won the money legitimately in the way the poker games ran, but he wasn't supposed to be there. So if they're going to take the money from him, wouldn't you think the right thing to do would be give the money back to the players he won it from? Apparently not, and apparently New Jersey law does not require that's done, nor can the casinos keep it. No, the government gets it. It makes sense the casinos can't keep it because they don't want to reward the casinos for not catching a guy playing illegal on the site. But why should the government keep it? That's screwed up. I don't like that at all. (laughs) One of the the calls here was uh, from Bobby Orr. He said it was, sorry, that was me calling in. Uh, I meant to call the call to listen line. (laughs) 
So that's at least in New Jersey. Now I can't speak for Nevada. Nevada's different state, different laws. But in New Jersey, from this, it appears at least in this case that dragged on for five years between 2014 and 2019. If you play from out of the state and sneak on there, if you get caught, they'll take your money, but they won't charge you criminally. Interesting. And there's nothing there about him being banned from Caesar's properties or Borgata properties, which was MGM. Like It's not like MGM and Caesar's banned him from this either. That's all I can see is that he gave up the money. Weird. I expected the consequences to be more harsh. And where was he playing from, Draft, did Ca- they say? From California. Oh, the way from California. Wow. The other weird thing is nobody knows who Vin Dow is. He's not a known player. Nobody can seem to figure out who this guy is in poker. So it might just be a longtime online player that's been under the radar. It is a fairly common name. I think it's a Vietnamese name. And there are a number of Vin Dows that come up. But if you Google Vin Dow poker, you really don't come up with anything conclusive of who this is. So that's the other weird thing. Is this wasn't a pretty well-known poker player. In fact, if you Google Vindal Poker, the first two results are FlushDraw.net, which is Haley Hintz's article about it, and Poker Fraud Alert. There is a Vindal, which may or may not be him. And there's a picture of him, too, if it's really the same guy. He calls himself Vinny. And it's on PokerVIP.com. You'll see that's one of the results if you Google Vindao Poker. That's V-I-N-H space D-A-O. Uh, it says, Vindao, small stage ca- cash game coach at PokerVIP.com. I work in the software industry, and back in 2007, I was introduced to poker by a friend of mine who played a lot of, low limit, a lot of limit poker in the golden days, pre-UIGEA. I played the game for a bit. What was a huge nit, didn't play a ton, and just messed around when I had a chance. A bit later in 2009, I decided to put in a bit more volume and play more seriously. I put in ample time at small stakes, no limit, and, and made a solid move to medium stakes, no limit, no limit games. I grinded a decent amount of the mid-stakes games until Black Friday and had to move my play elsewhere since. And so basically he just talks about his poker play for another two paragraphs. So he, He's got to have skills running that 2500 up to... Yeah. 90 plus thousand. I mean, I think you have to be right about that draft. Where else did they come up with that number? Yeah, that's what I think. I think he's, he's, he's like, okay, okay, I won't keep my winnings. Just let me take back out what I deposited. They're like, okay, well, you cooperate with us. We'll give it back to you. Okay, what do you want to know? What would make it more likely that this Vin Dow on PokerVIP.com is the same guy is that... Number one, this guy being a poker coach, you know, at least it's someone who seems to know what he's doing to some degree. And and second, he said he works in the software industry, which would make him more likely to be tech savvy enough to be able to pull off the playing from another state. Not that you have to be a tech genius to do this, but he, like the average player may not know how to do this. So he he definitely would be a prime suspect. Someone who works in the software industry would be a prime suspect of having the capability to do this. Um, I, I think it's a good chance that's the same guy. It's like a black and white picture of him, but he's not known. He's not a, a player that people would say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Uh, 
And you'll see there's there's a number of articles about this. But they're all recent articles from the past week covering this issue. Otherwise, there's, other than that po- pro poker thing of him, there's really nothing else you can see of... Uh, well, this, here, I've just found a poker tube video. Let's see if it plays. Uh, from 2013. From Poker VIP, but it's on PokerTube. Let's see if it plays. Nah, it's broken. It was called Advanced Strategy No Limit Hold'em Flop Play Part 1, but it, it doesn't work. It doesn't really matter. It's it, it, who cares if it's the same guy. It's the same guy. Probably is. Why it took five years? I have no idea. That's the weirdest part. It looked like he agreed to this five years ago. So why would it drag five years? Maybe there's some other piece that we're not aware of here. Maybe like he he agreed to the twenty five hundred, then then tried to go back on it and tried to say, "Can you give me a little more?" And they fought back and forth, and finally he when it was all said and done, he just backed off and took the twenty five hundred. Who knows? I still wouldn't recommend doing it, and, and they, they caught him, so how tilted would that be if you do really well, like this guy did, and then they catch you and take all your money? That's not good. Here's something else not good. Another piece of Twitter drama about another scam that is being alleged. Jessica Dolly, D-A-W-L-E-Y is how you spell her last name has taken the same approach that Danielle Anderson did and is calling out a poker player named John Lee for a PayPal chargeback scam. I actually wonder if Jessica Dolly was the inspiration for Danielle Anderson. Jessica Dolly's tweet, which she called a PSA, public service announcement, was posted on March 11th. And then Danielle Anderson did hers on March 13th. I have a feeling that uh, Jessica may have started a trend, which would be very nice. I actually like to see these PSAs where the scumbags in poker are called out. So this is what Jessica Dolly posted on March 11th. PSA. Don't do business with at Mista, M-I-S-T-A, John, J-O-H-N, Lee. That's his Twitter handle, Mista, M-I-S-T-A, John, Lee. Gave him cash for PayPal. A week later, he had it reversed by his bank. Told them it was a fraudulent charge. I heard he's done this to others as well. Retweet for awareness, please. Don't want others being scammed. Thanks. So I, I did, and so did hundreds of other people retweeted this. I don't know who John Lee is. I hadn't heard of him before either. I have heard of Jessica Dolly. Her Twitter is just Jessica Dolly. Her last name again spelled D-A-W-L-E-Y. She lists herself as Air Force veteran, poker pro, finally a WSOP bracelet winner, lover of all things colorful. I'm not sure what event she won, but uh, she's a bracelet winner, apparently. Uh, I had heard of her name before. I don't really know much about her. I haven't heard anything bad about her. I just haven't heard much about her period. I just knew she was a female poker player. Who I, if like someone asked me before all this, who is that? I say it's a female poker player who's done well recently. That's, that's all I would have remembered. Uh, 
so so what is a PayPal chargeback scam? It's it's pretty simple, and you need to be aware of this if you are interacting with people online or even in a local card room who may try to ask you for money in exchange for PayPal because it can be tempting. But don't do it. The PayPal chargeback scam goes as follows: a scammer asks a victim to or potential victim to trade cash for PayPal. So the scammer wants cash, and they'll send you PayPal. Sometimes there's extra money involved in the offer, such as, hey, you know, I'll, I need cash badly right now, so how about you give me 1,000 cash and I'll send you 1,100 PayPal? That's not always the case, but a lot of times they do add extra money on top to try to make it more enticing. Then the scammer improves the offer by saying that they will also send first. So you don't have to worry about giving them the cash and them just running off with it. They agree you don't have to give them a penny until you see the money in your PayPal account. So then they send you the money as agreed, you verify it, and you give them the cash. And then about a week later, they call PayPal and say it was a fraudulent charge, and PayPal reverses it, and you're out the money. That is the PayPal chargeback scam. Unfortunately, this is... And even if you send it... Sorry, Jeff. Even if you send it friends and family? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, this is more effective than you might think. Now, you can call PayPal and complain. Of course, Jessica called PayPal and complained. Everybody calls PayPal and complains and this happens. But the worst PayPal will do, usually, is just close the scammer's account. They will rarely refund your money. Now, this is for two reasons. First of all, there is no protection built into the friends and family transfers on PayPal. Those are free to do, but since they're free, they are not building in any kind of protection for you. It's kind of just the courtesy they're providing for their customers is the way they see it. So if there's any scam that occurs, tough luck. Second, PayPal usually defers to the scammer's bank for guidance as to what to do. So if the scammer claims that they were defrauded, if they go to their bank and say, hey, you know that money you guys just took out of my account through PayPal? That was actually a scam. The bank just default believes the person because there's a lot there are a lot of scams online like that so the scammer says they were the one scammed the bank just believes them by default they usually don't do much or any investigation then the bank labels it as fraud and then they actually get the money back from paypal so the bank actually takes the money back from paypal at which point paypal says well screw this someone's got to pay for it. it's not gonna be us so once paypal's out the money then they take it back from you. And if you complain, they say, well, only do this with people you trust in the future. Because PayPal, they don't want to lose the money. They'd rather you lose than them. They will take it from the scammer instead of you once you complain if the scammer still has the money in their account. Then they, then they can freeze the scammer's account if, they, if the scammer actually has a PayPal balance and then figure out what to do. But usually the scammers don't. Usually the scammers know that the person is going to complain so they made sure their account's empty. So then the money has to come from somewhere and it comes back from you. And this apparently happened to Jessica Dolly, and she claims it was John Lee who did this. If you want to see a picture of John Lee, you can go to Poker Fraud Alert's thread about this in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum called Jessica Dolly Accuses John Lee of PayPal Chargeback Scam. You can see a picture of both of them, actually. 
if people want to trade cash for some sort of electronic payment, you need to be very wary, unless you can really trust them. And if you can't really trust them, and I'm not saying it has to be someone who's a known scammer, just anybody you just don't really know very well, you should never do this. Now, the other way is fine. Like if someone went up to me and said, uh, hey, Todd, uh, I'm going to give you cash. Can you send me PayPal? Well, sure, I can't get screwed because I'll have the cash in my hand and they have to trust me to send them PayPal. I won't screw them. I'll send them exactly what I promise. I'm never going to charge back. But that direction's fine because it's, it would be only me who could scam them. And I wouldn't. But the other direction where you're the one receiving the PayPal, as I said, it's easy to get scammed. But what about other forms of payment? What about Venmo? What about the Cash App? What about uh, electronics funds bank transfers, EFTs, you know, like, or Zelle, which is essentially an EFT? What about services like that? Are those okay to do? The answer is still no. Now, they're not as bad as PayPal. And the reason for that, well, for Venmo, I don't know. They may be as bad as PayPal. Uh, and, and the Cash App, I don't know, but again, they might be as bad as PayPal. The, the, when it involves an electronics fund transfer, uh, there it's still not good because the person can claim fraud. But there you can raise a bigger issue with your bank because it was a bank-to-bank thing and claim that uh, they don't have a right to take it back and that they uh, – yeah, basically they're, they're having the other bank reach back into your account and take it back and you can raise issue about that. But you can still lose. It can be your word against the other person's. They can say whatever was agreed to, it wasn't them authorizing it, you're just out. Let me give you an example of an actual fraudulent transaction. Let's say I was pretending to be someone else. Let's just say a, a poker player, a fictitious poker player named Joe Smith. Okay, And I'm in a card room, and I happen to have Joe Smith's banking information. And I see someone in a card room, and I say, Hey, hi, uh, my name's Joe Smith, and I'd like to do a electronic funds transfer, like a Zelle payment to you. Uh, in exchange for cash. I just really need cash right now. And the potential victim was, oh, I don't know about this. I don't really know you, Joe. Sorry. I go, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. How about this? I will send you $1,200 on Zelle. You just give me $1,000 cash, so you make 200 bucks, and you don't have to send me a penny until you actually see the, the Zelle transactions confirmed. They say, okay. And sure enough, they see Joe Smith has just sent them $1,200 through Zelle. So then they go, okay, looks good, and hand me $1,000, and I run off. In reality, my name is not Joe Smith. Well, then the real Joe Smith looks at his bank account and says, what the hell happened here? Where's my $1,200? Who's this person that got paid to? Like, what is this? Calls up the bank, says that someone accessed their Zelle without their permission, and they charge it back. Then you say, whoa, 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 whoa hold on, Joe. He, I met him in a card room. We did this exchange. They say, no, you didn't. Joe says you didn't. And indeed, Joe didn't. It was someone pretending to be him who had his information. So in that case, you'd be out the money. So the problem is it's hard for them to verify. It's hard for them to verify if it really was Joe, or if it was someone pretending to be him, so you, you'll often lose those. 
So what is safe? Well, Bitcoin's safe, provided you make sure it's received before giving the cash for it. It can't be reversed. And what used to work, but you can't do anymore, is cash deposited to your bank. So I used to tell people that, uh, um, like I'd have people who would want to buy Bitcoin from me, and I'd have to worry about the same thing. How do I receive payment from them for the Bitcoin and know that they won't reverse it? So I tell them, go down to my bank, put money in the bank, and then when I verify the cash has been put in, then I will send you the Bitcoin. Because I, I knew that they, you, you can't withdraw, you, you can't reverse cash you put in somebody's bank account. Actually, you sometimes can, but not after like an hour. After like an hour, it's just stuck there. The reason in like the first hour you can is you can go back and go, oh, wait, I put this in the wrong account. I'm so sorry. Can you get this back? I was just here. Like They'll sometimes do it for you. But like after an hour, they'll never do it. So what I would do is I'd like wait an hour, and then if the cash is still in the account, then I'd know there's no way they could reverse it, and I'd send them the Bitcoin. I didn't do this often. Just you know, once in a while, if someone needed to get you know, Bitcoin off of me and wanted to give me cash, and I wasn't physically there to get it. But the, you can't do that anymore because there's no way you can put cash into somebody else's account. All the banks don't allow that anymore. So really, the, the only options that you can do, and then another thing that you can do that is reliable is, uh, but, but this wouldn't make sense why they would need cash on the spot, is if, uh, well, actually it could be. Like, like, here, here, let me give you an example of what could work. Western Union or the equivalent at Walmart, they have like their own internal Western Union that's called just send, send cash through Walmart at, at, at Walmart locations. So let's take the Walmart example, Okay. Let's say that uh, someone says they want to buy Bitcoin from me, for example. They say, hey, Todd, I, I want to deposit into this game online, and I need 1500 Bitcoin. Can you send it to me? And I go, well, okay, I don't know you very well. They think, well, I'll, I'll send it to you electronically. And I tell them no, and I give my concerns. One option I might give them, if I'm willing to go through the trouble, is that they could send it to me through the Walmart system where I just go down to Walmart and pick up $1,500 cash. And there's no way that can be reversed either. Once I have the cash in my pocket, there's nothing Walmart can do. So if I go down to Walmart, I receive the 1500 cash that they send and I have it in my pocket, then I'll send the Bitcoin to them. Like that's, that's the way it can be done. But basically never, ever, ever do any kind of trade with someone you don't trust super well Unless you have cash in your pocket from them already or Bitcoin from them that has been verified. One of those two. Or someone you just really trust. Uh, a, a long-time poker player with a stellar reputation who's never known to have money problems or gambling problems. Someone like me. Who you're doing some kind of reasonable transaction with. I say reasonable because you know, people change. Sometimes people can surprise you, so you don't want to make a gigantic transaction. But uh, you know, like, like you could, I'm sure you know you could trust me if you if I was going to do a trade with you and you sent first to me for a thousand dollars. You, I, I think you'd figure by this point I'm not going to stiff you out of a thousand dollars. I think you guys know I wouldn't throw away my reputation in poker for two decades or a thousand dollars, even if I did change. 
even if I even if I woke up today and became a scammer, that that wouldn't be the way I would do it. I, if I woke up today and became a scammer, I, I'd go for something big. I wouldn't go for a thousand dollars. So someone like me, in, in such a case, you you can do it. But other than that, you can't trust it. So beware, and not just with PayPal. It's got to be something that can't be reversed. And don't listen to people say, "Oh, it can't be reversed." Like uh, they'll write you a check. They'll, they'll do an electronic fund transfer. They'll send you Zelle. They'll send you Venmo. D- don't No, these can all be reversed in some way. They'll sometimes say, oh, no, they can't. Yes, they can. If they argue with you, say, well, tough luck. I, I believe they can. I don't want to do it. You're not, you don't owe this to anybody. All right. Moving along. On a recent show, I called out Jeff Boski for the situation where he got a double cash, or shall I say he collected a double cash for a World Series event in 2018 for almost $5,000. He went and collected it twice, once on July 1st, once on July 14th. I know about this because he admitted this in his own vlog that he did. He, He actually made an entertainment product about this. He actually went and did his own vlog, which he does regularly, but he made a whole topic about just this. That he was banned temporarily. Here, I'm bringing it up here. Uh, he was banned temporarily from all Caesars properties until he paid back that $5,000. And then he was pondering the video. Should he return it or should he just keep the 5000 you remember, this is how it started. 86th, banned. Right, let, me get, let me get back to the part where he starts here. Let's fast forward it. Here we go. Let's go somewhere different. Let's play a two... Uh, I, don't, I don't feel like... I forgot it's somewhere in the middle here. Anyway, the 86 banned thing, that's, that's his little intro where he talks about how he got banned. The, the, most of this video is about him getting banned from Caesars Properties because of double collecting on a cash from the World Series. Very clear he did it intentionally. And again, this wasn't me nosing into his business. This was him making a vlog about it, one that now has almost 36,000 views. He did this for his 17,000 subscribers. This is something he was very public about and made a big spectacle about on his own. He could have said nothing about this and none of us would have ever known. This was between him and Caesars. And once he got it taken care of, we would have absolutely had no way to know this. But he made it public so he could get more views and so people could find his vlog to be more interesting. That's why he did it. So when you do that, you open yourself up to scrutiny. And if your story does not make sense or has contradictions, then the people watching your video should have a right to respond and call you out. And if you censor those responses that are critical or that point out that you're not being truthful, then you are being a a hypocritical piece of crap. You can't run a vlog like this where you brag about how you were banned and talk about the entire situation as if you're proud of it and then tell a story how it happened, contradict yourself, 
and then disallow commentary on it. He's not disallowing all commentary, he's disallowing any commentary that can really poke holes in the story. I mentioned this on the segment we did about this, but I'm going to read this part once again. This is a pinned comment that is something on the very top of all the comments. There's 705 comments here. The very top comment is pinned there on top by him to explain how this all happened. He wrote, when you cash a WSOP event, a dealer walks you over to another employee that has a computer, they take your ID, and they input what uh, tournament you cash in and what place you got. They also give you a payout card that you can keep as a souvenir to give to the person at the payout cage. You do not need permission... Sorry, you don't need to be... You don't need... possession of your payout card to get paid since they already have all your info you just need a passport or driver's license historically when i cash events at the world series i don't get paid out right away for various reasons there may be a long line from the recent min caches or maybe i just need to register for another event at the very end of every wsop i go to the cage to get a printout of my buy-ins and caches for tax purposes and to claim any unpaid caches as far as i know if you don't claim them the world series of poker keeps them they said i didn't get paid for my tag team cash so I got paid cash. I didn't think it was possible for the computer system to pay me twice for the same cash. That's, that's his written explanation as to how this happened. Why he got paid both on July 1st and July 14th over the same cash on June 28th. This is what I wrote on the Poker Fraud Alert account in response to that. Sorry, but your story is both absurd and contradicts what you said in your video. You bragged about the, quote, Boski rule they just instituted, which eliminates the payout cards. You claim that this elimination of the payout cards was due to your situation, which obviously had something to do with the payout card itself. However, your story above seems to indicate that you simply showed up at the end of the World Series and asked, hey, did you pay me everything you owe, and they accidentally paid you again for the tag team finish. If that were true, the payout cards would not have been involved in this at all. So in the video, he bragged about the payout cards. They don't use them anymore because of him. It's called the Boski rule. Well, that, that contradicts his story is what I'm saying. Uh, furthermore, you had just three caches in the 2018 World Series, with this being the largest and final one. There's no way you would have forgotten whether they paid you or not, especially over a matter of almost $5,000. If you had 13 caches, your story would be a bit more believable. Look, I realize you can't openly admit to trying to fuck Caesars out of an extra 5K since you want to remain in good standing there. That's fine, we can read between the lines, but please don't insult our intelligence by telling such an outrageously BS explanation. That's what I wrote there. His pinned comment got only 8 likes. My pinned comment got 13 likes. So my my response to his comment got uh, close to twice the likes his did. (laughs) So he saw this, and he saw that what I wrote back was convincing some people that he was dishonest, not just with Caesars, but also with the viewer. It's one thing to try to screw Caesars out of another 5K. It's another thing to do a whole video about it and lie about it. It's okay if he doesn't want to admit to the whole thing and, and, and uh, give them evidence to ban him for life. I understand that. He doesn't have to come out and say, hey, everybody, I just want to let you all know that I tried to screw Caesars. I tried to cash twice. I, I tried to double collect on this one cash and I got away with it for some time and it's too bad I was really trying to steal from them. I can see why he doesn't put that out there because that would result possibly in him getting banned for life. But he can if he wants to do a video about this, he can just leave it open for interpretation. He can admit nothing. He can just give the facts of the current situation of whether he should return the money or not. But he, he once he bridges into lying to you then the viewer should have a right to call this out. Why? 
Because he's putting it out there in the first place. And it's really shitty move to put out a BS story and then try to censor anyone who calls out the inaccuracies and contradictions. Very, very shady to do that. Very, very dishonest to do that. If this is something you don't want discussed, then don't bring it up. Don't make it a subject of your vlog. Just don't. There's no reason he had to make this a subject of the vlog. He could have kept it to himself. This was, this was his private business, and he chose it not to be anymore so he could get more views. So he's like, yeah, I want you guys to know about this funny story. Oh, but don't. I'm going to lie to you. Don't you dare question it, or I, I'm going to censor it. So he censored it. And I tweeted to him asking why he did and reposted a screenshot of what I had posted, which you can see on Poker Fraud Alert now, by the way. What did he do? What was his response to my asking why he deleted my comment? And this is on Twitter. He blocked me on Twitter. (laughs) He blocked me. No response, just block me. Now, I know he doesn't position himself as a pillar of the community, but he's supposed to be a guy that you like and you enjoy following his antics on his YouTube channel. And It just doesn't sit well with me that someone who does that then tries to hide any criticism of their own material they voluntarily put out. I would understand it if I found this out through a friend working at Caesars. And I said, hey, Jeff, I heard about how you double collected on the cash last year. You haven't told anyone that. So, Jeff, what about this? Why didn't you tell us about it? If he blocked me and if he deleted my comments mentioning that, that would still be kind of crappy because he's putting himself out there as kind of like a public figure in poker. But at least you could say this is his private business between him and Caesars and that uh, it's not really my business. But when he makes a vlog of it and then censors people calling out lies in his own vlog, that is really bad form. So I tweeted that out too, which he can't see because he blocked me. So if you're a fan of his, you may want to reconsider it. And hopefully if you're not a fan of his, you don't start watching it now because I just brought attention to it. (laughs) But I just wanted to mention that. I just wanted to mention that was pretty shitty. And I I think much worse of the guy now. I I didn't have an opinion of him before, really. But... Now, I have very little respect for him after he did that. Just wanted to give that little update. I'm dropping it from here, unless he does anything further, which I doubt. It seems like he wants to avoid this whole thing. That just didn't sit well with me. I want to talk about the Sugar House Casino as we pass midnight. You taking your, you're drinking your tea yet? Trader-Risky? Maybe he already drank the tea. Now he's here. Is that tea I hear being made? It, it is. It, I, th- I thought I was hearing you sleeping already. I was hearing like breathing here. I, I, like, wait, he unmuted himself to show me he's sleeping? No, no, no. I was, I was actually brushing the teeth. Oh, so. you're brushing teeth. Okay. Caught me in the middle of that. But the yeah. tea has been made. How, how many... Uh, how many radio co-hosts do you think are, are, are brushing their teeth on the air? You think that's common? Well, it's trying to give people a look behind the scenes of what goes on. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let me Before we get to the Sugar House, actually, I want to see what text messages we got. 
at 775-372-8355, which you can text before, after, or during the show. From the 916, I bet the Nevada Gaming Commission would also keep the illegally obtained online funds like New Jersey did. I would not be surprised if that were true. Uh... From the 661, if you don't like playing shorthanded, buying in a little bit late isn't a bad idea. I rarely do, though. He's referring to the fact that at the beginning of World Series events, sometimes the table isn't full and you're playing shorthanded. And he's right that if shorthanded is, makes you uncomfortable, that uh, you're better off buying in about half an hour in when the table's likely to be full. I don't mind shorthanded. In limit games, I like it. The problem with the limit games is the first level is usually so meaningless that Doing well is not going to help you much anyway. From the 760, what is the email address or phone number to buy a piece for the World Series of Poker 2019 via Zelle? That is a good question. I don't want to give that out publicly on the radio, but I will text you back after the show and give you that address. From the 513, what do you think of Raymond Davis's Fox Poker? Do you think it will end well? I need to explain this one a bit. Fox Poker is a private poker site. It uses the same software as the No Fraud Online Poker Room. And it's for real money. And it's just done informally. They collect money when you buy in, and they pay you out manually when you cash out. Raymond Davis has been promoting the hell out of it. it is, he does not physically run it. It's run by somebody else, but he's the one of the main promoters of it. It's promoted all over Real Grinders. A lot of people play on there. So far, there have not been any bad incidents there. Would I play on it? The answer is no. Nothing against Raymond Davis. I just don't trust any of those private poker sites because you're just trusting one individual who is not Raymond Davis, by the way. It's, it's just some other guy that's that's gotten Raymond to promote this. And no matter who is running it, no matter who's promoting it, I don't trust them. And even if you totally trust the person running it, there's still the issue of the software, of how secure it is. And I, I'm not convinced that this software is secure enough for real money games. It's not really made for that purpose. It's fine for our free roll, but as far as real money poker, even if the person running it is legitimate, you don't know if the software has any ways it can be exploited, even by the developer of the software himself. Too many unknowns here. I just don't trust it, and the biggest danger is that the person running it just makes off with the money. So I, I don't think Raymond Davis is approaching this in any dishonest way. I believe he's promoting it because he believes in it and he believes in the person behind it but sometimes people surprise you so maybe the person running it could end I don't even know who it is so I'm not going to comment on that person specifically I really don't know who runs it I haven't looked into it but what if that person seems trustworthy on the surface and and then screws everybody and Raymond's shocked by the whole thing that could happen. So I I don't trust sites like that. No site is perfect. People say, okay, well, if not that, then what? And they all have flaws. Ignition has flaws. American Cardroom has flaws. They all have flaws. But I think the least flawed option is one of the bigger sites. 
Do I completely trust any of these sites? No. But the the smaller the site, the less I trust it. That's the general rule of thumb. Uh They claim that for the 505, they're claiming that from that uh, fight at the talking stick, that they had that the Dat Poker podcast, that is with uh, Daniel and uh, Adam and Terrence, that they have a drop. They drop in there now of I'm a I'm a berate stupid motherfucker, and. That guy, the one who's texting me, wants me to take the sound effect from uh, um, Fuck you, black bitch. He wants me to use that as a drop, as a little sound effect. I don't know when I'd use that, though. What would be the occasion to use that one? Now, by the way, the, the one texting me this is black himself, so it's not a racist here. He just thinks it's funny. There was a funny clip, of the fuck you, black bitch. That was said by another black guy, by the way. Let's see here. Anything else? Uh, no. I, I guess I got a little bit of a shout-out from Adam Schwartz of the Dat Poker Podcast. Someone from the 805 has texted me that at the 49-minute mark of the last Dat Poker Podcast, Adam says, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I listen to the Poker Fraud Alert Podcast. <laughs> I think he has to put that in there. It's not everybody's cup of tea. I, I think it's because Terrence doesn't really like it. Terrence has said before he doesn't like this show because he just doesn't care for my personality too much. He's like Terrence doesn't have a problem with me, but he just he just doesn't like my personality type, so he doesn't listen, which is fine. But uh, <laughs> that guy puts that qualifier. But okay, yeah, thank you, Adam, for promoting it. And as I mentioned, there was even a listener who texted me. I think I had two people text me that. They found the Dat Poker podcast from Poker Fraud Alert. So okay, fine. You know, I, the the Dat Poker podcast is another poker show, and that's with Daniel Negreanu, Adam Schwartz, and Terrence Chan. And uh, it's not as long as this one. It's a, a shorter podcast. Definitely has uh, more star power than this one. And it's kind of a continuation of the old 2 plus 2 poker podcast, except with Negranu as well. So if you have an interest in listening to that, then it's there. Let's uh, talk about the Sugar House thing now. It's kind of an interesting story. And it shows you, this story actually shows you how poker rooms really have to adhere to regulations. Sometimes you don't think about that when you go play, but they do. The Sugar House Casino in Pennsylvania, which sometimes hosts Poker Night in America, got in some trouble. And the trouble came from the gaming commission there in Pennsylvania. And it really had some consequences for both the casino and some employees there. This occurred because of one hand that took place after Poker Night in America was done. 
Doug Polk and Jeremy Kaufman wanted to do a $42,000 flip. What is a $42,000 flip? Well, each of them agreed to put $42,000 in blind before the cards were dealt. They're doing a blind bet on each side, heads up, of 42000 each. And then whoever is dealt the better hand wins. Now, they decided to do this in stud format, not in hold'em format. But to make it a little more interesting, they decided to do this flip in 10-card stud format. Now, you may ask, what is 10-card stud? I've never played 10-card stud. Well, you, you haven't. The game doesn't really exist. They just made it up on the spot. It's the same as 7-card stud, except it involves 10 cards. You're just very simply taking 10 cards and finding the best 5-card poker hand you can make from it. They made a 10 card just to make it a little bit more fun, so it's not immediately apparent when they're dealt of who wins. They've got to you know, kind of go through there and see which is the best hand they can make out of the 10 cards. So this was actually recorded and later uploaded to YouTube. This was not a part of the Poker Night in America broadcast. It was at the Sugar House Casino, but it was just recorded on a phone by, I think, Sean Deeb. Sean Deeb was kind of narrating it as it was going on, but he was not part of the bet. He was just a heads-up bet between Doug Polk and uh, Jeremy Coffin. And Doug Polk got the better of it, and I think after a certain number of cards were dealt, Jeremy realized he was probably screwed, and they uh, negotiated a buyout where I think Doug kept about half of it. And Jeremy only lost like 20-something K instead of 40-something. It was still possible for Jeremy to catch up, but it was looking pretty bad for him. So that's why he bought out. But that's not what's important here. What's important is the aftermath of this. I'm going to play you a little bit of this video here. It's a seven and a half minute video, which I'm not going to play anywhere near that. But this is what was being recorded by Sean Deeb as it was happening. So I wasn't. There we go. There we go. Right. You're alive. Okay, so. Oh, so you're doing Google. You're not doing Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So oh. we're doing 40. So wait, who's announcing this? You or me? Sean Deeb is announcing. Okay. I will be. What's up, guys? Doug Polk betting 42,000. <laughs> That's someone imitating Doug Polk, by the way. It's not Doug Polk. I'm not really bad with the donkey. All right. So Doug, Doug, explain to the crowd what, what are we playing. We're doing a $41,000 flip. 42. 42,000. 42,000. Even, okay, yeah, that's too even. Too even. All right. Because that's what 42 means. This is, this is up there. This is my second biggest flip, I think. So, guys, Doug can't read the chat. This is Sean Deeb here commentating. So, should we do 70? No. <laughs> 42 is healthy. All right. What's up, guys? All right. So, we're doing what's called 10 cards, 7. 10 cards stud. We just get 10 cards. Highest 10 wins the whole, the whole enchilada. Right, I'm feeling lucky. Let's do this. Good luck, Jeremy. Liam? All right, let, let me get back so you can see both. Can we turn sideways? Is that okay with you guys? Yeah, that's better. All right. So do we get to decide which cards we turn over, or do Take we any just... Card. You can, any card you want. All right, 10 cards. Don't so look. Let's do this. Is it... All right, I've got, I got 10 cards. Do you have 10 cards? You want to open? That is an important element. Do you want to open here? All right, go for it. I like, I like his I play. I also have 10 He's cards, so- Liam. You've done everything we need. So far, so good. Liam, is this the biggest pot you've seen go down you've ever dealt? Yes. Yes. I'm starting in... Liam is the dealer. So it sounds like what they're going to do here is they're going to turn over one card at a time. 
in the lead. The five of diamonds. Yeah, that's what's happening. And then they go through it, and eventually Polk realizes he's ahead, and that's when they buy out. I'm not going to play the rest of it. You can you can go find it. If you want to, go find it on YouTube. It's called 41K Flip with Jeremy. It's actually a 42K Flip, but the title is 41K Flip. So it's called 41K Flip with Jeremy. You just type that into YouTube, and you can watch this 7-minute, 46-second video if you care. But this was pretty illegal. You may wonder why. What, what was wrong with this? What was wrong with this? Nobody got cheated. There was no victim. There really was no victim here. So what was wrong? Why, why did the Sugar House Casino get in trouble here? Well, it's because well, of... Well, it's the, probably paying like a, playing like a non-sanctioned game or right, something, right? Right. Ten-card ten stud is the problem. If, if they played seven-card stud, oddly enough, this would have been fine. If they just went all in with seven-card stud, this actually would have worked. It, the problem is, is, since it was 10-card stud, that is a game that is not approved by the state of Pennsylvania to spread. So uh, this is something that every state makes a big deal over, that every game running in any casino is an approved game. And this is to prevent casinos from starting games that uh, could be unethical in some way or... Something that uh, the, where the rules are too open for interpretation, where people can get screwed. Basically, every state wants full control over every game that runs, and they want to say, "Okay, before we approve this game, we want to see an outline of what the game is. We want to see what the rules are, and then we want to decide if if we want it to be spread." And some states don't even want to bother with exotic games that aren't played very often. So Texas Hold'em, that's, that's pretty easy once the state allows poker to get approved. That's a very straightforward game. The rules are very well known. They're easy to find online. Uh, that's, that's pretty easy to quickly put together uh, a proposal to have Texas Hold'em to be a legalized game in your state if, if, if there is legalization of poker there. But 10-card stud is a game nobody plays. Like nobody. I'd never heard of it before this. I don't think anyone has heard of it. So they made it up on the spot, and that automatically becomes illegal. What's surprising is that I, I didn't expect the players to think of this, though this is somewhat known among poker players. So, like, Trader Ruski knew it right here. I can understand why the degenerate gamblers at the table, like Polk, did not actively think of this, but I can't believe that the supervisors there didn't realize what was going on, or even the dealers didn't realize that they can't just invent games on the fly. This is a pretty strict rule, a very strict rule, in casinos everywhere in the U.S. You cannot just invent games on the fly and play them. Well, it was done anyway. So and You would think the dealer would have turned around and asked somebody right. if it was okay to do it, right? Did they show that at all? No, yeah, he didn't. He just sat there and let it happen. So that the dealer made a big mistake not saying something. And then somehow these supervisors got in trouble, too. I guess they're supposed to be supervising that this doesn't happen. That's kind of unrealistic that they have to see every... Well, that is why they're called supervisors, because yeah. they should be supervising. But it's, it's hard to see. I don't know how many tables they have running there, but it can be hard to see the, all the action going on if a dealer's doing something they shouldn't be. But the, but the way it's, it's, it's considered in, in most of these casinos, that that's no excuse, that the casino and employees can get in trouble if, if they are managing games that if they're supervising games that uh, do end up going that shouldn't be, even if it's a lot to watch at once. 
So that's what happened here. So over this matter, two supervisors ended up resigning over the matter, presumably because they would have been fired if they did not resign. So either way, two supervisors are gone over this. And in addition, Sugar House agreed to pay a $30,000 fine over this single hand that was dealt. Actually, this and one other incident, which I'll talk to talk about in a second, that's totally separate from this. Here is a little bit of a, a clip from the February 6th, 2019 Gaming Control Board meeting in Pennsylvania. If I wanted to really piss off the audience, I could play the entire, what is it, uh, one hour, 27 minute, 46 second gaming control board meeting in Pennsylvania. Could could that be worse radio? Well, I'm going to be nice, and I'm going to play from the relevant mark at the one hour, 15 minute portion. Board's consideration is a consent agreement reached between the Office of Enforcement Council and Sugar House Casino in regard to two incidents in the Sugar House Poker Room in which unauthorized poker games were played. The Bureau of Casino Compliance referred two regulatory violations that occurred when Sugar House personnel permitted unapproved poker games to be played in the Sugar House Poker Room. In the first incident, Sugar House Poker Room personnel dealt a game of poker that was unauthorized by the board. The improper hand was recorded and uploaded onto the Internet website YouTube. It was also recorded on Sugar House's surveillance coverage. Yeah, if they hadn't uploaded this to YouTube, then this probably would not have uh, reached their attention. I think what happened is someone watched this on YouTube and goes, wait a minute, this shouldn't be happening, and probably reported it. Probably some tattletale reported this to the uh, Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board. An investigation by the board's Bureau of Investigation and Enforcement revealed that the incident occurred at Sugar House after Sugar House hosted an episode of Poker Night in America. A review of the YouTube video and the Sugar House surveillance coverage revealed that the illegitimate hand was 10-card stud poker. The coverage showed that two patrons remained in the poker room after Poker Night in America was over. The patrons requested to play one hand, <coughs> excuse me, one hand of 10-card po- stud poker for $42,000 each. A poker supervisor instructed a dealer to deal the unauthorized game while... Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know a poker supervisor actually inst- instructed... I didn't see, that wasn't on the video where they were instructed. A third patron recorded it on his cell phone. Before the hand was complete, one patron offered the other patron a, tr- a chance to concede the hand for a lesser amount. The conceding patron paid the other patron $25,000. Sugar House took disciplinary action against the employees. They were issued written warnings and coaching memorandums. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I didn't expect that. <coughs> Excuse me. I guess I can't talk here. This happened to me tonight, too. But it is kind of funnier when it happens at the PA Gambling Control Board. The supervisors subsequently resigned and are not presently employed in Pennsylvania's gaming industry. In the second incident, Sugar House Poker and Dealers dealt five hands. Right, so let me stop here. So something else happened, too, uh, separate from the Doug Polk thing. The They also had, I don't know when this was or who this involved... But apparently they also had a situation where five games of open-faced Chinese poker were dealt, and that's also not approved there, even though that is a real game. That's not approved in Pennsylvania. So five games of open-faced were dealt at some point. And they were dealt, this time without permission, from what they say at the gaming board was by a dealer who went rogue. (laughs) 
Can you picture that? Okay, I'm going rogue. I'm going rogue. Open face Chinese. Who wants it? Uh, aren't you not supposed to do that? Yeah, but I'm going rogue, man. I'm going rogue. Who wants open face? Who wants it? I'm a rogue dealer. That, that's kind of what happened. <laughs> a, a dealer went rogue and dealt five hands of open face before supervisors realized this and stopped it. So that's also part of the same action. The open face Chinese poker, a game that has not been authorized by the board. The surveillance coverage showed that two patrons on the poker table convinced a dealer to deal the unauthorized game. The other patrons at the table did not participate. The relief dealer continued the unauthorized game. Before the fifth hand of the open-faced Chinese poker was completed, a poker room supervisor stopped the game after he was advised by the initial dealer that open-faced Chinese poker was being played. Sugar House took disciplinary action against the employees. Both dealers were issued written warnings. Commissioners, the Office of Enforcement Council and Sugar House request that the board approve the consent agreement and stipulation settlement entered between the parties. The terms of the settlement include a provision that Sugar House shall reinforce its policies and provide training and guidance to its poker dealers, which will minimize the potential for these violations to occur again. And Sugar House shall pay a civil penalty of $30,000 and an administrative fee of $2,500 for course incurred by the board. That was actually 32500 They also had to pay uh, 2500 for quote, costs incurred by the board to investigate this. So there's been talk about this. You know, was this wrong, what the Gaming Control Board did? I mean, yes, technically a law is violated, but uh, was there much ado about nothing? Was this government overreach to make such a big deal over this? Um, this was more of idiocy on Sugar House's part this may seem stupid to you, but the way the government takes this is, look, we have rules in the books that we have to be strict about for casinos to only spread the games that have been approved, and, and we can't give wiggle room there. So if they're dumb enough to do it, then we have to punish them in some way. And it's unfortunate, and I don't think anybody meant badly, and it would be a nice story if just everybody got a warning, everybody went back to work and there was no problem, and I, I wouldn't be outraged if that happened, I'd say that's fine, but I, I can see the other way too. I, I can see where if the Gaming Control Board has little tolerance for this, and this is known in the industry, that it's up to the employees to all be knowledgeable of this. So one thing that Sugar House also agreed was that they're going to train employees to be very careful that they only deal games that are approved, and to never deviate from that. And that should have already been in their instructions beforehand. I can't believe it wasn't. And unfortunately, it resulted in two supervisors being fired. And I don't know what happened to these dealers, but maybe they were fired too. Sucks people had to lose their jobs over this. Doug Polk expressed regret for this on Twitter, stating that I don't have it in front of me, but he was basically saying that he had no idea this would be the consequence. He just thought it would be fun. And he's sorry for anyone that... uh, faced a consequence over this, and I believe he legitimately feels bad about this. That I don't think anyone was thinking they were going to cause anyone to lose their jobs, and the, the thing that is kind of sad is that everybody was doing what, what they wanted. There were no victims. Everyone was having a good time, and people got in trouble for it. But this, when you're in a regulated environment like a casino, you have to be careful if you're the casino, and you may say, well, why have these regulations? Why does it have to be so strict? Well, the reason it has to be so strict is that if unauthorized games are allowed 
to run there. As I was saying earlier, there can be ways that patrons can get cheated. And it could be a big problem if uh, people could just invent games on the fly and then people would play them and get ripped off in some way because uh, yeah, the, the, the house has leeway to interpret the rules a different way depending on who is in the hand and, and which, which way the hand's going. There's a lot of bad things that can happen. So either they've got to be enforcing these rules strictly or not have these rules at all. And there's really not much in between. And that's why they have to do it. And it kind of sucks when it's the situation like this where nobody got hurt. Uh, I, I would understand, you know, they do have the authority to just give a warning. And I would have no problem with that either. But I, I think that the Gaming Control Board was mad that this could have happened in the first place, that this is something pretty basic that all employees should have been trained about beforehand and the supervisor should be watching for, and that this should never have occurred. They were annoyed that something very obvious like this happened. Trader Roos, do you have any opinions on this? No. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Trap. I was just... I'm leaving on a trip tomorrow, finishing my packet. Remind me, sorry. Just about whether the government should have done this or not. Are they being too hard? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, well, I don't know how many warnings they would have had. I mean, that certainly seems like a brutal first offense. Well, but 30000 is not that much for a casino, even one of that size. That's that's pretty small. Yeah, well, but I think it's, I mean, it's a decent amount. Fire, you know, fire, and then the two... The two guys had to resign, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they... I don't know if they had to, but they did. They probably were pressured to. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. There were, there were more problems, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. It could have been. It could have been that they they had made other mistakes, and this really was uh, the end of it. Or, or maybe Sugar House just did it so it made the situation easier, where they didn't have to worry about convincing the board that these guys are going to behave from now on. They're like, well, we're not going to have a problem with them anymore. They are gone. So it could have been something like that. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I, true. I, like, I don't take pleasure in this story. Sometimes when employees misbehave and get fired, I'm happy about it. There was that guy at the Rio that was refusing to start sit-and-goes unless people bribed him. Like he was demanding tips before the sit-and-go started or he wouldn't start them. And that was totally against the rules there. And the guy was just a greedy asshole. And uh, it got back to Seth Polanski and they got fired. So that, the guy got fired, so that was I was happy to see that. That's what should have happened. Uh, but in this case, I'm not happy to see these supervisors get fired, but I, I understand how it did happen. Sometimes these things just kind of have to happen, even if it's not something you take pleasure in seeing, just because they're trying to maintain some sense of order. So I, I understand it, but as I said, if, if they didn't take action and just made it a warning, I wouldn't say, oh my God, how could they let them offer this? I, 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 I could kind of go either way on what would have been the right thing to do at that point. But that's... It's pretty serious business about running unauthorized games. And... I actually was in a casino where a game was made up on the fly and an unauthorized game was run. And that was in the infamous 2006 Party Poker Cruise. And Brett Ritchie and a few other guys made up a game called Beat the Ruski. It was actually a pretty good game, and it, it was good enough to where uh, 
the guy who takes the Ruski side, I'm not sure... I, I can't tell you the way this game runs anymore, because they just kind of made it up and it never went anywhere. But it was a, a well-enough-conceived game to where it wasn't even clear if it was good to be the Ruski in the game or to be the other players. We were kind of trying to figure that out. But they actually spread it in the casino there. But the reason they could do this is it was on a cruise ship. There's no rules. The cruise ship can do what it wants. It's on the, in the middle of the ocean. That's the same reason a, a 12-year-old played 400-800 limit hold'em, who, who now plays the World Series of Poker. I, I, I had that 12-year-old to my left, who's now over 21, uh, in 2018 at the 3K 6 Max Limit Hold'em event. And I, and I told him, I said, I've played poker with you before, but not when you think. I played it against you when you were 12. And then uh, I told him, I, you know, he remembered it, not as well as I did, actually. And I told him I knew who he was because of his dad, who's named uh, David G. And then his dad actually came up shortly after that story. And he said, hey, you know, this guy here just told me about the party poker cruise. And David said, oh, yeah, I know this guy. Yeah, he was right there when it happened. So that, that was a weird story. I, I love telling the story that I played 400, 800 limit hold'em against a 12-year-old. I knew, I knew when I saw that, I knew we, I'd never see anything like that again. And I knew that this guy definitely was the highest stakes, 12, highest stakes playing 12-year-old ever and probably would, that would be a record he'd hold forever. I just couldn't picture that ever again would there be someone 12 who would play higher than that. Ever in poker. I think we'll never see that again. Unless there's like so much inflation that $400 doesn't mean much. But when I saw that happen, I'm like, this, this is the highest game a 12-year-old is ever going to play in the history of poker, before or after. And as far as I know, that's still true. And I, t- I told him that. I said, you, you know you hold a record there. You, you played the highest uh, live poker ever that a 12-year-old has ever played. It's probably one of the very few 12-year-olds that even play live poker in, in a, any kind of card room. Though Benjamin played live digital poker as... Uh, a one-year-old. In fact, he had just turned one. He was, he was 13 and a half months old, and he played live digital poker on a cruise ship. And boy, I, that pissed people off <laughs> when I did it. I waited for the floor men to kind of walk away. I wasn't wor- that worried about the consequences. We're in the cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. But what happened, I, I put Benjamin on, on my lap, and I used his hands to tap the buttons. So it was actually, you know, I'm, I'm directing what gets tapped, but it was actually his hands tapping them. And boy, one guy was really pissed. And the funny thing, I, I was only going to do it for one hand, and it just so happened I got dealt pocket nine. So I really had to play the hand out. And then the hand came, like the flop came all low. So I knew I was going to be playing this out. This is no limit, like one, two, no limit at a digital poker machine. And I say digital, I, I don't mean video poker. I mean digital poker, where real poker against real other people sitting next to you, you're just on a digital machine. So, but the guy to my left was really irritated by it, and he was the last one in the hand who finally folded, and Benjamin won the hand. This was in, in uh, December 2011. And the guy looked really pissed, and then I said to him, what's the problem here? You don't like getting beaten by a baby? And he didn't think that was funny. He like, gave like a really angry look. And then someone had the nerve to say at the table that this is child abuse. Not him, but someone else said this. And I said, come on, what do you mean it's child abuse? He has no idea what's going on here. He doesn't understand. He can't understand. And it's not hurting him. And I'm not making him sit with me for hours. You know, my, my parents were on the cruise, too. They brought him over 
and they knew what I was doing. They brought him over, and I let him sit on my lap, and I, I manipulated his hands to press the buttons for one hand. There, there, there's no harm to him at all. It's not like this is going to get him to a lifetime of gambling. He, he couldn't understand what gambling was or what money was. as a, a, a kid who just turned one. So there's no harm to the baby. Stupid. But uh, I, I didn't care. I just uh, Anyone who tried to talk trash to me about it, I just gave it right back to him. Told him they're just taking it way too seriously and no harm to anybody. It's just funny. We're taking a picture to show him later when he gets older. Um, anyway, let, let's move on here. Trader, are you going to stay with us or are you going to retire now that you've, you've uh, drank the tea? Yeah, I'm probably going to have to go during this segment, but I'll, I'll hang out uh, a little okay. longer. What is the next segment? The next segment is a segment about death. That's a good segment for you to finish on. The, I will be out cold. Let me come dead, I'm sure, before it ends. You might. Well, it's not going to be that long of a segment, but it's about Mickey Kraft, a poker player who apparently has passed away. I haven't seen any f- full confirmation on this, like an obituary, but everyone says it's true, so it's probably true. Mickey Kraft was a fairly well-known tournament player who uh, let's see if I can find how old he was uh, he, he did well at the 2017 main event that's where people got to know who he was since we're just starting let's take this call here Call, you're on the air. Hey, Todd, I just wanted to give you a heads up of a big terrorist uh, thing in New Zealand that just happened. Really? Well, that's not good. 40 dead. Uh, yeah, 40 dead and multiple injuries of shooting at a mosque. Wow. That's too bad. Yeah, I sent you a link anyway in your... Uh, yeah, I, I, I see. I just brought up CNN. Okay. Yeah, it is a trip because the guy videotaped the whole thing wow. like as he was driving down the streets with the guns on the passenger seat. Crazy, huh? Well, I, yeah. I see. I see. It was at. Uh, it was in the city of Christchurch, where I've actually been. That's an actually interesting place. That's too bad. I was there yeah, back awful. in uh, '94. Okay. Well, thanks. thanks oh, for I was me. just wondering, are you going to mention uh, Wisco? You, you've mentioned that. Who is Wisco? I don't even know who that is. Really, he was a huge online player back in the day. No, I don't even know who that is. Huge on stars, yeah. Yeah, I know he's big friends with Phil Helmuth. If you type in Wisco Phil Helmuth, you get the story. I guess he OD'd. Oh. Oh, I see. It says yeah, uh, it says Phil Helmuth remembers Mike Wisco Murray, who unexpectedly, unexpectedly pay, passed away at age thirty-seven. Yeah, I hadn't heard of him for some reason, but uh, yeah, I see that. Yeah, no, he was big player on Stars back in the day in tournaments. Okay, that's probably why I didn't pay that much attention to the tournament world there. But uh, it said he, he, you know, kind of tying this in with my depression and anxiety segment at the beginning. I guess he had depression. And this led to addiction. Some people who suffer from depression and anxiety will then kind of self-medicate with illegal drugs, and then this is a bad spiral. Yeah, now that's, and that's yeah. Then you just down the hole. And so I guess he started with I guess the depression came to him about twelve years ago in his mid twenties. Like what I was saying, like it just seems to hit people around that time in their life usually. So it was, he was thirty-seven when he died. Now, so. 
starting 12 years ago. He yeah, so another one I thought I'd throw in because you were going to mention... Um, Mickey Craft, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, Mickey Craft, yeah. Okay, well, thanks for letting me know. Okay. All right, have a good trip, uh, right. Trader Ruski. Thanks, brother. Okay, okay, talk to you guys later. Bye. Thank you. That was Bobby Orr. I'm not sure if he said who he was, but... Uh, yeah, look, getting back to the... Well, since I'm talking about this Wisco guy, let's talk about him, then I'll talk about Mickey Craft again. It says he's struggled for dep- with depression and addiction for 12 years. On December 4th, 2018, he began his recovery journey. He was three days shy of receiving his 90-day chip when he relapsed. We'll never know why, in the true spirit of Michael Murray, his last acts were to take blankets and food to a homeless encampment. Then he called his mother to apologize for taking all the chicken and biscuits from the fridge and to tell her how much he loved her. An hour later, he used heroin for the last time. That kind of sounds like it's a suicide. That's a little bit weird. I mean, it's an OD, but was it maybe a suicide OD? Because, like, why call your mom and tell you loved her and apologize for something stupid like taking chicken and biscuits from the fridge? So, yeah, so apparently he had a heroin addiction and an opiate addiction. And he was in recovery. But didn't get far enough with it and uh, ended up dying. And unfortunately, this plagues a lot of poker players, drug problems. And apparently it got uh, another person. So that's too bad. And Mickey Kraft, who passed away, uh, this was reported by his sponsor, Suited Poker Gear. They said it is with a heavy heart that we say goodbye to a good friend. Your positive, upbeat attitude will be missed. All we know is he passed in his sleep last night. I'm getting, guessing probably a heart attack. Uh, apparently, a guy who claims he was a relative of Mickey Kraft posted in a 2 plus 2 thread that, indeed, Mickey is gone. So I, I'd be shocked if this isn't true. I mean, it's very likely, it's almost sure, that he is uh, not with us anymore. Um, in the main event, because he was very aggressive and aggressive poker-wise, not personality-wise, and kept ordering drinks and, and made some funny quotes at the table, people really liked watching him on TV. Uh, it seems like he's more of a recreational player. He only has 135000 in live caches. He also appeared on Poker After Dark after that 2017 main event TV appearance. And he did win a lot in one of the episodes that he played on there. So he, he was, this is someone who is well-liked, or was well-liked. Just, you know, he was kind of a more of a recreational player who had fun at the tables. I see Danielle Anderson, getting back to her, she actually posted that Mickey Kraft's son messaged her that uh, he had passed away. He said, my father, Mickey Kraft, passed away today. And he said, I, I know he loved playing poker with you and enjoyed your friendship. Thank you for that. So that pretty much confirms it. Uh, he had, pretty much out of nowhere in the 2017 main event, he ran up chips big time 
and finished day 2AB, which is the A and B flights together, with the second biggest stack, even though it was the first time he ever played the main event. When they asked him how that happened, he said, this is my first main event and I got hit in the face by the deck. On day three, he also did well, probably because he was playing aggressively with a big stack and it worked out for him. He got himself up to the uh, the seventh biggest stack at the end of day three, which is not a given after finishing with the second biggest in day two. The blinds keep going up and he actually uh, was able to keep it going. He said, of course, there's way better players than me. There's no doubt if I get to the final table and there's Daniel DeGranu over there, Jesus Ferguson over here, and What's-Her-Face over there, I'm going to be the one with the beer in my hand. I like to have fun when I play poker, and I feel like I do better when I'm having fun. The money does mean something. Anyone who says it doesn't is crazy, but the fun in poker means more than anything anyone can ever buy. He ended up busting in 146th place and actually put it in with seven deuce. He flopped a pair and couldn't catch up in an over pair and busted 146th place. But he actually left after he busted, and instead of, uh, instead of just walking away frustrated or disappointed, he went to go get a full tray of tequila shots for everybody who had played at the table with him. And he said, I just want to thank everyone for everything. I just wanted to make a little fun of poker. Whether you go out with a king, queen, or seven deuce, it's all fun. So this was... Uh, this was... Uh, kind of a beloved recreational player and someone who if they get chips happy even though he's recreational can be tough to deal with because he likes gambling he likes playing very aggressively and it can be hard to put him on hands and in uh in tournaments that can be tough when sometimes you have to try to play more conservatively especially in a format like the main event where it's deep now eventually players like that can be their own undoing because it's deep and the players can just kind of wait to pick them off and wait to hit big spots against them. But occasionally they get really, really far, like John Hesp, who had a similar format, or similar style, and uh, also a recreational player. He got to fourth that year. I think it was 16, actually, he got fourth. I forgot what year it was. Maybe it was uh, 17. No, it was 17. He got to fourth. Same year. Interesting. So Mickey Craft was really an unknown prior to that 2017 appearance, and then really became beloved. It's not clear how old he is. Let me see if I can figure this out. I should have done it before the show, but what the hell. I'm going to try to look this up. Let's see if I can figure this out. Unfortunately, Mickey Kraft is probably a fairly common name. Um... Here, I mean, yeah, I figured it. No, it's a different one. That's fine. A uh, Mickey Kraft died in February, late February 2019. I was sure that was him, and it wasn't. Some old guy. Uh, I can't find it. At least not right now. But, uh, whatever. The guy wasn't really old, so. He looks older than me, but he doesn't look that old, so. Definitely he died early. And he probably never knew. He went to sleep one night, just didn't wake up.
you know, with a big poker world like this, this happens, unfortunately. You just lose people. Earlier this year, Gavin Smith died, and, and now Mickey Kraft, and neither of them were particularly old. He looks like he's in his 50s from this picture. Definitely doesn't look like someone that you'd picture uh, is going to be dead soon. He does look like he was somewhat overweight, but he wasn't obese. But it happens. Males over 40 have a heart attack risk. It can hit them at any time. So, unfortunately, it got Mickey Kraft. If it was a heart attack. It was something sudden, whatever it was. Speaking of the World Series of Poker, before we begin, let's see if Trader Risky is still here. I see him. I'm here, oh, you're here. I haven't lost I gotta, you. But I'm going to sign off. Oh, okay. I got to get up way early. You made you made it through the Mickey Craft topic and the, and the other death topic. Good job. Now I can start and listen while I'm driving up north tomorrow, where we left off. How long is the drive tomorrow? Two and a half, three hours. Two and a half, three hours. Okay, that's not long. Okay. Yeah, San Luis Obispo. Okay. Okay. All, All right. right. Well, well, have a good night. Thank you. And, uh, I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Thank you. All right, bye. Now it's just me. I'm alone. As I commonly do at this point in the show, since I've had my LPR issues, I'm going to play an Eric Penzamokin ad so I can take a short break. Hopefully it works out like it does every week where I, I need the exact amount of time the ad takes to play. In hindsight, I probably should have made a slightly longer ad. I would like, you know, maybe after I sit back down in the chair another 15 seconds to get ready to speak. But at least I, I, I've always had time to get back. But if there's a little bit of dead air afterwards, that, that's the way it happens. So far, I've been able to avoid it. Somehow, it just it just always works out. So this is an ad for attorney Eric Benzamokin. Highly recommend him. And I've gotten to know him personally. Very generous to the show, and a very nice guy and a knowledgeable attorney, as you've heard on here. You've actually heard him in action, not in court, but you've heard him give his legal advice here and his legal analysis, and you can tell the guy knows what he's talking about. So here is his ad, and I will be right back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money... Or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally. And he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar. And he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. 
And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Worked out exactly again. I don't know how this always happens, but it worked out exactly. Got my butt right in the chair seconds before that ad ended. All right, next topic. As I complete the show, all on my own. This is something that came up back in February, but I didn't cover it for whatever reason. But it's just as relevant today. It's a question about these min caches or small caches that one might make at the World Series of Poker, should the staff of the World Series of Poker congratulate you after you make such a min cash? Someone brought this up, and I had always noticed this. I, I always had was kind of mildly annoyed by this, where I would have high hopes for getting very deep in the event. I would min cash, and then I, they would walk me over there and tell me congratulations. And I'd go, ah, you know... Like, what do I say? Thank you. Like, I'm just kind of like, kind of in a bad mood, kind of a little bit pissed off, kind of not pissed off at anybody, but just kind of pissed off at the way it shook out and disappointed. And I wonder, you know, when's the next time I'll get a stack of this size, this deep. And like a good example was when I was the chip leader in the Limit Hold'em event in 2016, the 1500 Limit Hold'em with 42 people left. This is out of like... Yeah, 800 or whatever entered that event. So I thought to myself, okay, this this is pretty big. Chip leader with 42 left. And I was just owning everybody. I, was, I wasn't big stacked the whole event. I kept going up, down, up, down, up, down. But I was really kicking ass at the table. Then they moved me to a new table. And then I just ran super bad from the first hand of the new table. So I went out 40th. I went from chip leader with 42 left to being out 40th. I cashed, but I was not in a good mood. I wasn't the old, yes, I'm in cash. I was I was pissed. But they said, congratulations. And I kind of felt like strangling that person, but of course I didn't. I just said, thank you. <laughs> Collected the money, but that's not what I wanted. That was not what I was hoping for when I had... The most chips that 42 people left is to be out 40th. That was not a happy moment for me. Well, 
I've brought this up on occasion, but it's not something I talk about very often. But I guess someone else finally decided to make a bigger issue of it. And that is Aaron Massey. It's known by some people as Never Miss Massey. This is what he tweeted. And this, this really brought out a controversy. This is back on uh, February 19th. Aaron Massey... Who, by the way, was kind of a dick in my one time dealing with him in person at a tournament. He, I'll, I'll, I, I've told it before, but since you'll hear he gets into a confrontation on Twitter with some people, I will recap my story, or at least retell my story that I had with him personally. It's not a very long story. But let's go over what happened here. February 19, 2019, he tweeted, Hey, WSOP, please train your staff not to say congratulations when someone busts. If they cash for a loss, cash for less than two buy-ins, or get their heart broken in third for 250k, etc., it will always be annoying as fuck. Well, I don't know about the thing cashing in third for 250k. I can understand congratulations there. It's still, anything but first is disappointing, usually, but still, you won 250k. It's... There I can understand congratulations, but he wants just no one to get congratulated except for the winner, which I think is a bit extreme. Uh, but I do understand the sentiment for sure. Uh, the belief is that he probably got angry because he finished 21st at the $400 Turbo No Limit circuit event at the Rio, and he earned a whopping $700. And if he fired two bullets, then he actually lost money. So that if it, this is just a guess, of course, but he mentioned about cashing for less than two buy-ins, and you could buy in more than once at this one. So if he bought in twice to this four hundred dollar event, it would be eight hundred dollars, of course. And if he cashed seven hundred, which he did, then he lost a hundred dollars, and he probably got congratulated, and it was mad. But some people thought that he was being kind of an asshole by writing this tweet. Matt Salzberg, also known as Salty, also known as M. Salzberg on Twitter. Uh, Now, he agreed with him, Salty. He said, I voiced this during the World Series last year. should only congratulate the winner. It's actually rude. But there were others who did not agree, like... uh, a person named uh, Miranda Tipton said, uh, so let's make sure not to clap or congratulate anyone at the final table of the main event this year because it's rude. That was, of course, being sarcastic. And then uh, Salzburg says back, first place or 500K plus score, in my opinion, everything else runs the risk of a needle. Uh, the, the sad thing is I think Salty there is being serious. This is too extreme to say if you cash 400k, you shouldn't be congratulated. Of course you should. That makes sense. There, there you've, you've still walked away with a lot of money. When you cash 700 in an event you could have easily bought in for more than 700, there I can see where you, you shouldn't be congratulating people. Like I, I can even see you know in these smaller events just not to congratulate anyone who made less than the final table. Uh. Rada Wilanowski said, okay, but it, 
but if there is ever a time to give people the benefit of the doubt, someone congratulating you on your cash is definitely a good spot. So she's basically saying they're trying to be nice here. Even if they're not trying to irritate you or needle you, you should just give them the benefit of the doubt. They're just trying to say something to make you feel good. So then Salzburg says back, good run is a much better thing to say than congratulations. No player ever says congratulations to each other when they bust or min cash or get fucked in a very high equity spot. Well, good run, it's kind of all the same thing. I wouldn't have wanted to hear good run either if I finished 40th after, when I finished 40th, when I was chip leader at 42. Whatever's said to you, you just don't want to hear anything positive. If someone's going to say anything to me there, I, I, I want to hear like commiseration, like, oh, wow, that, you really got screwed there. I feel bad for you. Like that, that would make me feel good. Or nothing. Just say nothing's good too. Or maybe even a positive comment. Like if someone, of course, the cashier couldn't know this, but let's, let's say someone was observing and afterwards came up and said, oh, man, you were really kicking ass there. You, you're, you're playing great there. It's just too bad the way the cards fell. But uh, you know, the way you're playing, I'm sure you'll do well you know, sometime really soon. Like that, That's encouraging to hear. But of course, the cashiers can't say that. They didn't see the way you play. They didn't see what happened to bust you. They just see what you cash and what they're going to pay you. Daryl Fish said this. If poker hasn't thickened your skin enough to handle someone congrats when you get less than an ideal result, you've got no hope. Okay, fair point. And then Salzburg said back, I don't get tilted from it, but I don't think it's an appropriate thing to say when something like good run is more appropriate, fuckface. <laughs> This kind of turned into Salzburg going back and forth with people. But then came the tweet nobody expected. So far, we have some fairly known, somewhat known poker players going back and forth with each other about this. Some on one side, some on the other. Kind of an interesting discussion, right? But it's not nothing that shocking, right? Well, this is going to shock you. This is going to be something that you're not going to expect unless you've already read it. Because it is back in February. But this is from Alan Cunningham. Now, it's not the side Alan Cunningham takes with this. It's the language he uses. Listen to this. This is really from Alan Cunningham. This wasn't from someone hacking his account. Pussy-ass entitled snowflakes who can't take a congrats for any place other than first in a tournament. Please grow some pairs, World Series. Uh, please grow some pairs, World Series of Poker. Feel free to congratulate me on any cash. It all adds up to your EV in the end. Wow. Alan Cunningham calling Salzburg and others there, like uh, like Aaron Massey, pussy ass entitled snowflakes. Can you picture Alan Cunningham talking like that? This is a very quiet, soft spoken, just. Very non-confrontational guy. If someone said, name a hundred poker pros who could have possibly written that tweet back, Alan Cunningham for sure wouldn't be in there. They said, name a thousand poker pros. And I had a big list of all the poker pros. I didn't have to name off the top of my head. Say say they listed a thousand poker pros whose names I would have heard of. I would not have put Alan Cunningham in that thousand. I would never think Alan Cunningham would say, pussy-ass entitled snowflakes. That's what he said. I can't believe it. So people were shocked. They were asking, was his account hacked? Is this really him? Is this possible? But yeah, something set off Alan Cunningham 
that he thought they were pussy-ass entitled snowflakes and told them so. Wow. Alan Cunningham speaks up. By the way, uh, Alan Cunningham, this guy has always looked way older than he is. It's so strange. Like when he was in his late 20s, I remember looking at him and I thought he was in his 40s. Well, now he's in his 40s and he looks way older than his 40s. There are some people who look old at a young age, but then they kind of just stay the same for a long time. In fact, Ken Scaler was like that. Ken Scaler, he got to look old quickly in his late 20s and early 30s, and then he just kind of stayed the same. So now he doesn't look old for his age. But Alan Cunningham, he's always looked old. In fact, Alan Cunningham, believe it or not, go, go take a look at a recent picture of him. Not, not pictures from the, from the 2000s, but look, look at a picture of him from uh, recently, if you can find one. He's born in 1977. He's not, he's not even 42 yet. Like there's one from High Stakes DB. I'm not even sure when this is taken, but there's a, a picture of Alan Cunningham from the High Stakes database. It says Alan Cunningham wins 14K and something. I don't know. If you find that picture, just Google, go to Google Images and type in Alan Cunningham wins 14K and you'll see a, a picture pop up. <laughs> and you'll say, how is this guy? I, I don't even know when this was taken, but even today he's not 42. This guy has always looked old. I mean, he's gray now, but... It's not just that. He just always looked old. And back when he was younger, that's when he looked like he was 42. So weird. I kind of just thought he looked old when he was younger because he went bald early. So I thought maybe that's what's doing. Maybe it's kind of an optical illusion. Maybe when he's in his 40s, and where being bald doesn't really make you look that old in your 40s, that he'll just look like a normal guy is in 40s. <laughs> now he looks way older than 40s. So weird. This this discussion broke out on Real Grinders, too. Like, people saw a picture posted of him, and like it was kind of like half and half the posted picture, the comments there. Some of them were like, oh, cool, Alan Cunningham. Like, a lot of people were... Uh, I think someone took a picture with him. So, like, a lot of people said nice things about him or what a great player he is and how it's cool they, they found him there. It was cool that he played some kind of fairly low tournament and, you know, whatever. But then there were other people going, wait a minute, how old is he? Then someone's like, I can't believe he was born in 1977. I, I kind of think the same thing. I, I don't usually look at pictures of guys and say, oh, this guy looks old. But I, Alan Cunningham is just always struck me as someone who is way older than he actually is. Um, You know who's really like that, but is finally kind of aging into it, is Bernie Sanders. Go back and look up appearances on TV or other recorded appearances of Bernie Sanders in like 1981. And you won't believe it. You, you, like Bernie Sanders, I think he's like 76 now or something. So in 81, he was in his 30s, right? And you'll look, you go, I can't believe this guy's in his 30s. He looks like an old man already. There's a, a video of him in 89 I saw. He seems like an old man. This is 30 years ago. I even tweeted to someone talking about Bernie Sanders. I actually tweeted to Bernie directly in, in a thread he created. 
of, of himself talking in 1989. And I said, does anyone feel funny about voting for a guy in 2020 that looked like an old man in 1989? I said, looked and sounded like an old man in 1989. He did. Bernie looked and sounded like an old man in 1989. And people are going to vote for him in 2020. <laughs> Think about that. You're voting for a guy in 2020 that looked and sounded like an old man in the 80s. I guess Cunningham's kind of like that too. There's just some people who just always seem old. Now, no matter how old I get to look, I think I'm always going to sound young. I know I sound younger than I am. Because I've sounded the same for like 30 years. So at least I have that going for me. At least no one's going to say I sound like an old man. I, I know I don't look like an old man either. Like, I don't have people thinking I'm in my 50s. I never get that. I'm 47, but I, I never I never get that people think I'm in my 50s. Even, like, behind my back. Like, even where they, they're not trying to be polite. Like, nobody guesses me as 50. Okay, let's... Uh, but then get back, getting back to this, I don't know how I... How do I get off on this tangent about Cunningham and looking old? I, I don't know. Well, here's where Massey... And Matt Berkey go back and forth. Matt Berkey writes to Aaron Massey in response, I get it, but come on. Poker is insanely volatile, emotionally draining, and mentally taxing. You're upset at an onlooker, likely a temp doing entry-level work, congratulating you. What chance do you have against a German half-man, half-solver staring into your soul after you check? Well, I understand these points. It's... They're all fair points Matt Berkey's bringing up here that this is so minor. Why do you let it really frustrate you? And that's, that was the attitude I took. Like, it was mildly irritating, but I wasn't going to let it ruin my day. Like, even in that really frustrating meltdown from 42nd to 40th, I, I wasn't, like, grumbling the entire day. I can't believe this person said congratulations. Oh, I want to kill him. Congratulations this. You know, like, I, that wasn't me. It was like, at the moment... At the moment, like, I wasn't going to, but part of me wanted to go, congratulations, you know what happened to me? Like, I, I wanted, I, like, a little of me wanted to yell that, but I, I knew it's not their fault. They're trying to be polite. They're just trying to say something they think is polite. So I just quietly said thank you and moved on and didn't think of it after that. Maybe thought of it for a few minutes, but it didn't really get to me, nor does it ever. But uh, And so what he's saying is this is so minor with all the frustrations in poker. If this is what's getting to you, then how are you going to handle anything? At the same time, though, it wouldn't be a lot for the management at the World Series of Poker just to instruct the employees there, hey, uh, don't say congratulations for anyone who finishes, say, less than 18th place. Or... Or even don't congratulate anybody who doesn't make the final table. That's, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Then they don't have to calculate anything. It's just very easy. Just final table, congratulate. Not final table, don't. They can say that. I think that would be reasonable. I, I don't think people who cash, who wouldn't get congratulated, would be angry. They wouldn't walk away. How rude! That cashier didn't congratulate me for my 113th place finish. No one's going to think that. Like Nobody's going to think that. 
they're not even expecting the cashier to congratulate them. Like this isn't something people are hoping happens or expecting should happen. If they're expecting it, they're usually expecting it in a bad way. Like, oh, I don't want to really hear this right now. So I, I kind of get it. I, I kind of agree. I, I, if I, if making the policy, I would tell them don't say it if you didn't make the final table. That's what I would tell them. Well, Aaron Massey, who gets kind of hot-headed and easily offended, and you'll hear from my personal story with him that that happened as well, will get snappy with people and get nasty with people sometimes. So this is what Aaron Massey wrote to Matt Berkey. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you tattooed dots on your head so you don't look bald. What? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you maybe you put girls in the game to to try to get laid, and maybe you keep a thesaurus with you at all times to compose tweets with five syllable words out of context. Wow. The dots on the head so he doesn't look bald, he's talking about, and I I tried to look up some pictures of Matt Berkey to figure this out. I I generally know what the guy looks like, but I needed to look again to see what he was talking. I didn't remember dots on the guy's head, but what he was talking about is there are some pictures of Matt Berkey, I think more recent ones, where he his head looks like it's shaved. It kind of looks like the opposite. It looked like instead of tattooing dots on his head, it looks like that Matt Berkey probably lost enough hair to where he decided to shave his head. And then there's dots on his head for the hair follicles starting to grow back out. That I think that's what he's talking about, the dots on his head. I think it's possible that Aaron Massey just Googled him. Uh, I don't know about the comment about putting girls in the game to try to get laid. I don't know if he's just saying this because he's assuming that he would do something like that from the way he looks or something, or if he really heard some story of Matt Berkey putting girls in the game in order to get laid. I, I can't comment on this because I've never heard these rumors, but is it possible Matt Berkey does this? Yes. Is it also possible Aaron Mar- Aaron's making this up? Yes. Is it possible Aaron heard some false rumor about him? Yes. It could be any of these things. I, I, I don't know too much about that. Uh, guys do this in poker all the time. This is a common thing. There are, uh, you know, there's the, I don't want to go too much on a tangent here. But there are female poker players who definitely get put into games because desperate guys want to get laid. There are some female poker players who are very good and very responsible and are able to fund their own poker play. And there are others who, either due to poor bankroll management or poor game selection or just not being as good as they think they are, go broke. And they are surrounded by a lot of horny and desperate and lonely guys who have money and want to put them in games. And it's not like a straight-up sex or buy-ins thing. It's often just the guy does it you know, puts them in with some kind of staking arrangement, hoping it's going to get themselves in the good graces of this girl, and then they will get laid. This never works this way, by the way. Like, it never works out. The girl's never going to have sex with you because you're putting her into the game, unless unless she knows that you're expecting that, and that's the only way it can continue, and she's willing to do that to make it continue. But other than that, it's not going to happen. You're usually going to get friend zone, and the girl will may, maybe even delude herself that you're putting her in because you think she's a great player. 
Some will be very aware of why you're doing it, but because there's no agreement that they have to put out for it, they'll just keep taking from you and never put out. In general, this is not a good idea to do. In general, if this is really what you want to do, then just why not just go to a prostitute and just buy sex directly? <laughs> you know, that's uh, probably a better way to go about it. But yeah, there are a lot of girls, in, especially the pretty ones who are under 35. There's a lot of guys looking to do favors for them. That's for sure. Uh, but I, I don't know if Matt Berkey is one of them. Back to what Aaron Massey wrote. Uh, it, it was overly aggressive and inappropriate because Matt was not insulting him personally. Matt was questioning what he said. Matt was bringing up why he didn't agree and was critical of why Aaron was so bothered by this. But he, he wasn't insulting Aaron directly. And then Aaron came back with a lot of insults about how he looks, about uh, allegedly putting girls in the game to get laid, that he, he keeps a thesaurus with him to try to make himself seem smarter than he is. By, by the way, reading Matt Berkey's tweet, I don't see anything that's... like He's using big words to come off as intelligent. The, the, these are just These are all very standard words. In fact, I could bring Benjamin over here, who's eight years old, he could read that tweet and he'd understand it. He, he, the only thing he probably wouldn't understand is volatile. I don't think Ben knows that word. But everything else here he would understand. So it's not like Matt Berkey is using SAT words and trying to show off. I, I don't see where that is. Uh, Aaron Massey is one of these kind of street smart type of poker players, and Matt Berkey's one of the intellectual type poker players. And in modern poker, you have both. So you have the guys who aren't particularly well-educated, but uh, are good at the game. They kind of play by feel. And they are good at what they do because they have developed a feel for the game and have a talent for the game and, and know where they are in hands and can read players well. And they're successful that way, despite not really having a, a math background and without really having that much of an education. And I don't know Aaron Massey that well, but it seems like he's one of those guys you can see in this tweet he's writing. Now is he mocking Matt Berkey for using, quote, five-syllable words when he wasn't. But uh, when he wrote, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, he used the wrong you are. He wrote, why are you are? Uh, and Matt Berkey... He, he's definitely one of these, one of the nerd poker players, one of the smart guys who succeeded in poker due to uh, intelligently analyzing the game. And, and he looks like a guy who succeeded that way. Uh, I had a little confrontation with Aaron Massey. It was stupid. It was at the table at a World Series event. And Aaron Massey limped in early position. He opened, limped in early position. And I think it just folded to me. He, he, he like limped early position, went fold, 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 fold. And I was late position, I know that, across the table from him. And I looked down, and I saw some kind of hand, which was like, I didn't exactly know what I should do. 
the King Three suited, something like that, where like if it's a fish limping like that, uh, then I'll isolate with that type of hand a lot of times. But if it's a pro like Massey, like what does that even mean? Why would he limp in early position? It's yeah, I know he's not just a fish limping, so there's got to be some point to this. And so I, I kind of like ran this through my head, and then I said, ah, what do I do to go? Uh, you know what? This is too weird. And I folded. I said something like that. I said, like, you're limping there? Uh, you know, this is too weird. I'm getting out. I folded. I was just kind of, I was trying to be just engaging in table talk there. Yeah, I'll say things like that. I, I don't want to just, once in a while, I'll be in a quiet mood and I don't want to say anything to anyone at the table. So now just be, and sometimes it has to do with the table makeup too, where there's, everyone's just quiet and it's kind of a, a table where everyone just quietly goes about their business and that's it. But, this was a more talkative table and there was a guy at the table who was very lively and there are a few guys like that. So it, it was kind of a talkative environment there. So I was contributing to it by just saying that I, I, I legitimately wasn't sure what I should do. And when I made the comment about, uh, this is too weird. I had already decided to fold. I, I wasn't going to go, Oh, what do I do here? I wouldn't say that if I'm going to enter the hand or else it gives away my hand strength. But once I knew I was going to fold, I pretended like I'm still thinking about it and then folded. I made a little speech. Just for no other reason, just to kind of participate in the table talk. And so I, he was really mad about the comment, you, know, you limp, this is too weird. Which is, I didn't think there's anything wrong with that because it's not like I said, oh, Aaron, I've seen you play many times. I've seen when you limp that it means you only have aces, so I'm folding this hand here that wouldn't play well against aces. It's, it's not like I made that statement and folded here I go, this is too weird. Well, it is weird. The guy just limping in early position. So I folded and I forgot what happened. But then when the hand was over, he went off on me about oh, this is a, this is inappropriate. I have no idea why he's doing what he did. It's not what I think it is, which means you know he thought I thought he had aces. Uh, that I should shut up, that I should know enough about this to shut the fuck up. And he, he, he started, so basically he's trying to tell me, I know you're another pro too. When I want to limp in early position, just if you don't want to join the hand, just shut the fuck up, say nothing. Now, I can understand that's what he wants and prefer, but I could say this is weird to the limp. You know, I can say that. You can make comments like that. Um, you're not allowed to make comments to encourage or discourage action behind you. Like if, if I got to, if it folded to me and I said, oh, that limp there, I know that means you have aces. Okay, forget it. I'm folding then that could discourage action behind me to where people with marginal hands uh, uh, are not going to want to play against. Or let's say someone's ace four offsuit or something, they're going to toss it. Okay? But but I say this is too weird. That can mean a lot of things. It's just weird. And he said it wasn't what I thought it was, so it must have not been aces, unless he was lying. So in that case, I should have been helping him that I was saying that this is too weird and implying it's aces, he, he thought, when it wasn't aces. That should have been good to him. But he really went off on me. He didn't just politely say, hey, you know, if, if you don't mind, please don't comment during the hand if you're going to fold or something. like." I would have respected that. If he just said, please don't do that again. Please just, you know, whatever play I make in front of you, if you're just going to fold, please just don't say anything. I would have said fine. In fact, I would have said, I'm sorry. I'm fine. But this, I, I argued a little bit back. I forgot what I said to him. I said, I said something like, there's nothing wrong with what I said. I just said it's weird. And he still went off on me, and then I just dropped it. And apparently this, this must have put him on tilt. There's something put him on tilt, because 
there was a guy at the table. This this was really surprising to me. There was a guy at the table who dressed up in this ridiculous, like over patriotic outfit, like like he's wearing like an American flag shirt and uh, like it looked like he was trying to look like uh, an over patriotic hick who you're going to assume is a fish. And after some time at the table, when I noticed – and he was very talkative, this guy too. So at first I, I kind of believed the act, but then I watched him play and he was really tight. Now, I wasn't going to say anything, but someone else said something like, hey, when I saw you sit down here, I was sure you were going to play a different way, but you seem pretty tight to me, something like that. You seem pretty solid. And so at that point, the guy admitted – he said, "Yeah, yeah, you caught me. You know, this is what I do. You know, I I dress up in this get up here not because I'm like a, a super patriotic nut. I do this so people get the wrong impression of me. And uh, but yeah, you guys figured it out. Good job. And he, and he was serious about it. He and he wasn't mad. He was, and it wasn't me who made the comment. By the way, it was somebody else who commented that they noticed he's playing solid and they expected him to be uh, you know, a lot different. So that discussion had occurred, and Aaron Massey saw the whole thing. He didn't." participate in the discussion, but he he had seen the whole discussion. He heard the whole discussion. It was pretty loud. You couldn't miss it. And uh, then Massey, like, I don't know, there was an underflop against the guy who had raised preflop from early, and then there was an underflop, and uh, anyway, action got put in, and then this guy in the American flag get up, uh, re-raised him, and then Massey put them all in. So I, I was sure Massey flopped a set or something was going to crush him here. No, uh, Massey just had like a pair or something, and he was trying to run the guy off the hand. The guy turned off que- over queens for an over pair, and, and, and the board ran out, and the, and the guy won. So in one hand, it was all gone, and it was in the hands of the American flag guy. <laughs> so it was weird because there, there had just been that whole discussion about how this guy isn't really a fish and how he's just doing this to get action. And, and how he it seems like he's pretty tight. And then he puts action back against Massey, and Massey, for some reason, still tries to blow him off of it. And the stacks weren't deep enough to where the guy was going to let go of Queens at that point. Like, he, he was pretty much pocket-committed with Queens there. So it was like Massey mistook it. Like, the guy was uh, trying to play back at him. It was weird. I was very surprised. It was kind of like a blow-up. But yeah, I've seen Massey's been successful at, at a lot of tournaments, so I... I'm not saying he's he's a fish. I'm not saying he's bad. I, I think there was just one moment he misplayed it. But I, I wonder if I tilted him <laughs> that whole that whole uh, limping discussion because this was almost shortly after that this happened. But I thought the guy actually looked kind of like a dick to me. Anyway, what did Matt Berkey say back to that whole thing? He just wrote back, "Who hurt you?" They, there wasn't much further discussion after that. I expected like a lot of back and forth after that. They're really like nobody really paid much attention to it. It was enough to end up in a poker news article, but there wasn't much else on Twitter about that particular exchange between the two of them. Who hurt you? I don't think is the best best response. I, I, I don't know. How does that even really fit in here? Who hurt you? Who hurt you is more like what you say back if. Uh, Someone of the opposite sex goes off on you about how awful you are. It could be either way. You know, like a, go, a guy goes off on a girl and tells her what a slut she is, or a girl goes off on a guy and says what an asshole he is, and he probably screws over women all the time. Something like that. And then the guy, that's where saying who hurt you is a good answer. This, 
it didn't really apply. I think just Berkey didn't know what to say about the dots on his head. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I I agree with Massey in in general sentiment here, but it's not a big deal. Major League Baseball has really done an about-face in recent years regarding gambling. Big-time about-face. Now, you might remember that Pete Rose was banned almost 20 years ago for life because he bet on baseball. Now, I know there is more to it than that. Uh, Pete Rose did this while he was a manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Pete Rose actually bet on the Reds. He claimed he never bet against the Reds. But he bet on the Reds, which is also problematic. because He could have made in-game decisions based upon his bet rather than the long-term success of the team. Sometimes you, you don't want to throw everything into one game. Like you don't want to burn all your pitchers just to win this one game if it's going to screw you for the rest of the series. Sometimes at some point you just have to sort of concede the game. You you don't want to destroy everything coming up. So that could influence a a manager even betting on his own team that he has to win this particular game as opposed to it just being one of 162 games in the season. So given that Pete Rose was violating the very clear policy that he was not allowed to bet on baseball, they he ended up getting banned for life from baseball. By the way, I've seen Pete Rose, I haven't checked recently, but when I used to walk around in the forum shops occasionally when I would stay at uh, Caesars, there was this uh, sports memorabilia store where they would have sports figures there signing autographs, and two who often appeared there signing autographs were Mike Tyson and Pete Rose. I don't know where Pete Rose lives, Tyson lives in Las Vegas, so that makes sense. I don't know where Pete Rose lives, but he was there a lot too, signing autographs. So still, keep this in mind. Keep in mind that Major League Baseball was very anti-betting on their sport. They, they really didn't like the fact that gambling was being done on their games, but there was nothing they could do to stop it. And I told you recently on this show, they were trying to get states to agree not to allow spring training betting. And some states are actually considering that. But despite all that, we heard a surprising statement from Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. He was at the Boston College Chief Executives Club luncheon. And the Boston Business Journal reported that he made some interesting comments regarding gambling. He said that sports betting is, quote, a great source of fan engagement, and in general, we see it as a positive. Wow. He said, would I prefer to have a single integrated structure from the federal government? That's referring to how there's different states with different laws about sports betting. Yes, because it would be easier for us to deal with one set of rules. But the reality is, given the course of the Supreme Court litigation, 
the federal government wasn't going to get 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 there in time and the states were were going to proceed we'll figure out a way to manage it so he's he's referring to the fact that all the states are going to have different gambling laws and it's going to affect baseball but that while they'd prefer it's just everything handled by the federal government he's okay with the current way and they'll figure out a way to handle it and overall he's still happy it's there By the way, New Jersey and Nevada have apparently now come out against uh, ref- refusing to ban spring training betting. Before, it was just Nevada, New Jersey wasn't sure. They, they they are now they've refused it too. So that is interesting. Major League Baseball has finally decided to embrace gambling, a great source of fan engagement. They're calling it. That's another way of saying it's a reason for people to want to watch our games. That's what that really means. It's a reason people want to watch our games and follow our sport. It's another reason beyond just pure fandom. So they've really changed their minds on this. Baseball does have a problem that's eventually going to come. And I don't know if I'll be alive to see the full effects of this because it's going to take a long time. But much like poker, the fans of baseball are getting old. Young people are just not all that into baseball. The average fan age is getting older and older every year. So what's going to happen in 30 years when a lot of the existing fans are dead? And in 50 years, when most of the existing fans are dead, what are they going to do then? If they did not get new fans replacing them, they'll get some, but what if, if they don't get enough new fans to replace the ones that die off, then they're going to have a problem. But no one wants to think that far in the future. But this is a real problem that the baseball fan base is rapidly aging, and they haven't done a lot to fight that, in fact, it's been kind of the opposite. The, the stupid TV deals, which are providing short-term money, but soon enough are going to end, make it difficult for fans to watch their own team on mobile devices. Even if you are a cable subscriber and can watch your team at home, you can't just take your phone and watch it on your phone. You have to watch it on TV at home. If you try to watch it on your phone, you'll get a blackout message. And younger people like watching things on their phone. And Major League Baseball is not addressing this. All they're obsessed with is protecting this TV money. They don't want to allow people to watch the games in the same market not on TV, because then people won't want to subscribe to cable. So to appease the cable companies, they don't allow this. And all that's doing is driving away young fans. There's also been a concern that the long games are a big problem, and the slow pace of some of these games are a problem, especially because the attention span of younger people is 
a lot less than it used to be due to the instant gratification people get in their online entertainment. And this is different than it used to be. So they're, they're not adjusting there. And, and as I've mentioned before, poker has an age problem too. In poker, look around. The next time you go play live poker, go look around the room. You'll see a lot of middle-aged and old people and not many young people. Look around and, and you'll ask yourself, where are the young people? You'll see a few, but not like there used to be. It's, it's mostly middle-aged and old. The fastest growing event by far at the World Series of Poker is the seniors event. Every year it's going to grow because every year more and more poker players are turning 50. There's a lot of poker players who are playing the game right now that are close to 50. So every year you get another group of them entering the seniors event. But not many young people to join in behind them. So baseball is supportive of gambling now. We'll see what happens. They don't have that much control of it, though. It's gonna the betting's gonna happen whether they like it or not. That's the other problem. All right, finally, I'm gonna do an editorial. My editorial is about a topic in the news. Nothing having to do with poker. Nothing having to do with gambling. It's about the celebrity college admission scandal. You may say to yourself, I don't want to hear more about this. It's oversaturated in the media these days. And it is. The last few days have just had so much about this. Way bigger story in the media than it really should be. But there are certain elements of it that are very fascinating to people. And people can't stop talking about it. But I feel that the main point, the main takeaway from this, the main things to be learned, are not being discussed. And I feel that the wrong things are being focused upon. Quick recap for the few of you who don't know about this. There is currently a scandal where about 50 people have been arrested involving bribes for parents to get their kids into college. And in one case, the bribe was as high as $6.5 million, which is insane. But the bribes tend to raise range from like 10000 to $6.5 million. I, I don't know why it's such a variance, but I guess it's whatever they could squeeze out of the parents. And there were a lot of tricks that were being used. These are all through uh, insiders at various colleges, various uh, prestigious colleges around the country. And one guy was facilitating it all, but he was he had his contacts at various colleges. So they would they would get kids admitted based upon being athletes, elite athletes when they really weren't. Uh, they, they would have people show up and take the SAT for them and get a much higher score than they otherwise would. They had proctors that were being bribed to erase incorrect scores on the SAT and put the correct answers instead after the kid was done with the test. 
So there were various people involved in this. Some were parents who were paying the bribes and some were the people facilitating these kids getting admitted to these elite schools without having earned their place in there. The thing that's really getting everybody's attention is that two of the people arrested are famous. One is Felicity Huffman, an actress best known for her long-running appearance on Desperate Housewives in the 2000s. And Lori Laughlin, going further back, who played Aunt Becky on Full House. They were both arrested. They both paid bribes to get their daughters into the schools of their choice. Felicity Huffman only paid uh, 15000 to uh, falsify SAT results. Lori Laughlin paid $500,000 to get her kids into USC through a uh, false athletic admission. There is something in this story for pretty much everyone to hate and be angry and outraged about, and that is why it's getting so much play. That and the fact that it involves two celebrities. For those on the right, they can direct their hatred at the Hollywood elite because this involves two actresses. Now, they're just two of like 50 people arrested, but since two actresses are involved, the right looks at this and says, up, typical hypocritical Hollywood limousine liberal elites that pretend like they're all for helping the everyday average person, but when it comes down to it, they're using their wealth to cheat. So that's the narrative that the right is enjoying about this story and sticking to and putting this story out front and center. But the left has a lot to criticize, too. The left says, oh, look, this is an example of how wealth and privilege stacks the deck unfairly for those who have a lot already, while the average person has to work much harder to get to the same place or loses out on positions they should have because the wealth and the wealthy and privileged cheat. So the left can point to this and say, oh, look, this is wealth and privilege once again giving people unfair advantages. And even the apolitical can find outrage and anger in this story because a lot of people applied to college at some point in their lives, even if it was a long time ago, and got rejected, or even if they didn't get rejected, some worked very, very hard in high school to be able to have the qualifications to get accepted to the top schools. And it enrages them either that maybe they got rejected because of something like this, because someone else took their spot who bribed their way in, or even if they did get in, why should I have to have worked so hard when there's people like Felicity Huffman's daughter, Lori Laughlin's daughter, who don't perform well at all in high school, and just their rich parents bribe their way in. So it's a sense of unfairness that almost everybody can feel if they've ever applied to college. Either, why did I have to work so hard when these people didn't? Or, oh, I bet this is why I got rejected. So everybody can relate to it. And 
the fact that it involves two Hollywood actresses, that makes it even easier to get outraged. Because it makes it feel like the elites feel like they have one set of rules for them and another set of rules for everybody else. That's why this is getting so much attention. I've seen a lot of talk on Twitter of, boy, no wonder it was so hard to get into college. No wonder I kept getting rejection letters. It was stuff like this. This is why. It explains it now. Well, thinking like that is missing the point. This should not be happening. This whole situation is reprehensible. I'm not defending it in any way. But the truth is that this was probably a very small percentage of admissions to these schools. A very, very tiny percentage. Even if it's been going on for decades. Which, there's no evidence it has. But even if it has been going on for decades, this is a tiny percentage of students admitted to these colleges. So, you did not miss out on your spot because this was going on. This really isn't a major issue in how it was impacting the average person applying to college. And anyone who thinks that isn't looking at this realistically. Is this really an example of the Hollywood left and their hypocrisy and how they rail on about how much they care about the common man when in reality all they care about is bending the rules for themselves using their own wealth and fame. No, it's not really about that. I mean, it's somewhat here that's what happened, but most of the people involved in this are not famous at all. They were rich, but not famous. Hey, what about the left's narrative about wealth and privilege buying unfair advantages? Well, Yes, that does happen, but not just here. This, uh, and, and that's somewhat of their point, but it's inevitable. It is inevitable that those who are wealthy and have a lot of influence or can buy influence, that they will often use that even when they're not supposed to or even when it's against the law. This is going to happen. You can try to say it shouldn't or it's so wrong or so terrible, but no matter what you do, you're not going to stop it. You can, you can raise taxes you can do whatever you think you can to stop it. It's not going to stop. The, the, the wealthy, the famous, they will always have additional privileges. Hell, look at poker. The, the well-known players, just because they're well-known players, get additional privileges. Like I talked about how Phil Ivey doesn't bag his own chips. Phil Ivey, when he's done, he just stands up and walks away and the floor man bags the chips. I can't do that. You can't do that. So the wealthy, the famous... They have additional privileges, and it's, it's wrong, but that's the way it just happens and it's the way life is. That by itself is not a big story. What I think everybody's missing here, because there, there is a big story in this, but everybody's missing it. And the big story in this is that college admissions have been a joke for a very, very long time. The entire process of college admissions is a joke. It's unfair. It's arbitrary. It's ridiculous. It screws a lot of people. It benefits people who don't deserve it. And there is no attempt to reform it or make it fair or make it equitable. 
This is one of these things that people just have come to accept is just the way it is. I've talked before about the city of Chicago. This isn't a story about Chicago, really, but the, I've talked about in the city of Chicago, there's such corruption there in the, in the city government there that have, has existed for many decades, well before I was born. And people in Chicago are so used to it that it doesn't even bother them. Most of them are not even outraged by it because they grew up in Chicago watching that this goes on, and to them, that's just the way life is. The government's corrupt. The government does certain things which it shouldn't be doing and uh, that, that other city governments don't do. But that if, if this is all you see growing up, you kind of get used to it. That's kind of how people have come to regard college admissions. There are a lot of crazy and outrageous facts about college admissions that most people know. If you tell most people about these things I'm about to list to you, they're not going to be shocked. They go, yeah, I know about this. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Like, I'm not going to reveal to you shocking things here. But yet, if you stop and think about them, they should be shocking. Number one, Asians are discriminated against in 2019 because of the color of their skin. Asians are discriminated against. If you are Asian, if you have an Asian background, if you identify your race as Asian, you will be discriminated against. For only that reason. This was very, very cleanly shown by data presented in a lawsuit, I think it was against Harvard, involving discrimination against Asian students, but it's not just in Harvard. Basically, what colleges and universities around the U.S. have decided is that they want to create a community that is representative of the actual population. So whatever the population is of black people in the U.S., they want that to be the percentage of black people that is that, that are admitted to the college. Same with Hispanics, same with whites, same with Asians. And if the number of qualified applicants of these races doesn't match that, then they adjust it through discrimination. And what they found was that there is one group, there's one racial group that is very, very, very much overrepresented compared to their population in the U.S., and that's Asians. That if they admitted people upon merit only, that there would be way, way, way more Asians percentage-wise in the school. I'm talking about every school, not just a particular school than there are in the U.S. population. But at the same time, there would be a smaller percentage of black people, smaller percentage of Hispanic people. So they decided, well, we have too many Asians, too many qualified Asians are applying. Why don't we just deny most of them? They're perfectly qualified to, in fact, in some cases, very qualified to have a spot in this school. But we're going to cut off a very large number of them and reject them anyway, simply because they are Asian. This is happening. This is not a conspiracy. This is easy to find. You can find the numbers. So in order to get accepted to college as an Asian, you must have much, much, much higher credentials than if you're any other race, including white. They're basically saying to Asians, 
It's not that we don't want your kind around here. We just don't want too many of your kind. There's too many of you. Too many Asians here. So we're going to just cut some of you guys off just because you're Asian. This is happening in 2019 at just about every school. People are asked to put their race on their college application, and then that race is used to either discriminate against them or give them a boost. Not their financial status, not their life story, not any hardship they have had to overcome, but just their skin color. So a the son of a multimillionaire black guy has a big edge over the son of a poor Asian. Now, this is not the fault of the black people applying. It's not the fault of anybody except for the college administrators who are committing these acts of racism. And this is racism. I would think the proper way to prevent racism in college admissions is to not have your race stated when you apply. This way you don't know who you're admitting. And then whatever it happens to be, it is. Now, if you want to also have some kind of outreach program to give special consideration to those who grew up in poverty, grew up among you know, in hard circumstances and in uh, lousy or dangerous neighborhoods, may not have had the same tools to succeed as those who grew up in the suburbs, and you want to give extra allowances to those that seem promising anyway, yeah, I could understand that somewhat. But this should be in addition to those already admitted. And there should not be a particular race targeted to make room for them, which they have done to the Asians. Honestly, the most fair policy is just simply to admit on merit only and those that cannot get in, even if through not as much fault of their own, such as growing up in a in circumstances where you're just not uh, given as many tools to succeed by uh, your family structure or whatever it might be, or that the environment you went to school wasn't very conducive to learning due to uh, the other students there that were causing a lot of trouble, whatever it was, that uh, that still that you can then go to community college. And if you're serious about school, you do well there, and, it, and it's much easier to get in as a junior, as a transfer student. And, and when you're finished, uh, nobody looks at anything but where your degree is from and what your GPA is. You being a transfer student doesn't really... It's not really held against you anywhere when you go to apply for jobs, to be honest. And if they want to make community college free for, uh, for people, fine. You know, I'm, I'd be okay with that. Or at least free for people of a certain income level and below. In fact, I, I believe it already is. I think Kent Scaler goes for free for that reason. But anyway, there's actual factual racism in college admissions against Asians. In 2019, it's insane. Why this is even legal is mind-boggling. But that's what's happening. 
Here's something else that's also outrageous, but also just kind of accepted. Athletics. Now, I know this is a whole second complicated subject, but there are a lot of students admitted to these schools who are very, very talented athletes, but very, very poor students. These are students who barely were able to finish high school, let alone go to an elite college. So how are these students with horrendous GPA and SAT numbers getting into these top elite schools just because they're really good at football or basketball? How is that happening? Well, it's because college athletics generates a lot of money. It generates a ton of money. And what they are doing is they are exploiting these students for they're basically playing as unpaid pros. And these college programs also serve as the unpaid minor leagues where these students tend to be recruited out of these colleges by the top-level sports, such as the NFL or the NBA. So these students are really the ones who get screwed, as well as other students who don't get admitted because these athletes are being admitted who don't have any academic credentials to support it. But they will admit people simply because they are very good at a sport that the school wants to win at because the school makes a fortune from their athletic programs, especially basketball and football. And I've always felt bad for these student-athletes because they're making a fortune for these schools. They're not getting much out of being there aside from it being kind of like a unpaid minor leagues to get up to the next step of their career that they're pretty much required to go through for the most part. And the education they're getting there is really not valuable to them because they really don't have the prerequisite skills to succeed and the school the schools found find shady ways to push them through so that they pass when they're really not learning much and really the school is not appropriate for their academic background and they would flunk out if they were not having their hands held there to manipulate their grades so they stay in so they can keep playing football or basketball or whatever sport they're, that they're in. So if this is what the schools are doing, they should pay these people. They should pay them a lot of money because they're making a lot of money for the school. And they're not there to get an education. And if they were, the education they're trying to get is way above their head uh, academically. You can't go from being a, a D student in high school with, with a 890 SAT score and, and be dropped in a class with uh, you know the smartest kids from, from all the classes around the country. Just like those smart kids uh, are probably not going to do very well if they were dropped on the football field with you. Everybody's got their talents. So they're taking advantage of these kids that they admit simply because of their athletic ability. They deny actual kids who do qualify based upon their academic record in order to admit these athletes And then these athletes don't really learn anything there. 
other than the sport they're playing. The whole thing's a joke. The whole thing's a sham. That has been accepted practice for a long time. So that's that's something ridiculous. College athletics itself needs to be confronted and say, what is this really? This is really just another form of the pros. Except they're not paying anyone. Then there's also the nepotism angle. This one's not as well known, but it's still somewhat known. Everybody knows about the racism and everybody knows about the athletic situation, but people don't know so much about the extent that the nepotism occurs. But if you work at a college in anywhere that's like a mid-level position, if you're a janitor at the school, you're not going to be able to do this, but like a a mid-level administrator, you will. You are given the ability to get people accepted to the school who are related to you, even if the relation is not that close. For example, at USC, which is in the center of this whole scandal, I knew someone decades ago who was smart, but they didn't show it in high school. They screwed up pretty badly, and basically their academic record was pretty bad. But their stepmother worked as a mid-level administrator there. Again, not someone really high up, but just kind of a mid-level administrator. They did not live with the stepmother. Obviously, the stepmother was not related to them in any blood manner. Uh, This was their father's second wife. This girl did not live with her father. But it didn't matter. The stepmother was able to get her in to USC if she wanted and she took her up on it. She she went to USC because the stepmother got her in. Why should that be? Why is that okay? Now, if the school doesn't want to charge tuition to relatives of employees, that's fine. If they want to have a discounted tuition. But why should the kids... Just get automatic acceptance. Or wh- why should there be additional relatives that aren't even kids? Uh, stepkids or, uh, uh, I, I don't know, each school has a different policy, but it can be cousins, it can, it can be nieces and nephews, it can be, uh, it can be grandkids. Why is that okay? If the school wants to take the financial hit and not charge tuition, fine. That's, that's their business, but that doesn't screw anybody else. That just takes money away from the school, but if the school's willing, fine. But it does screw people if, through nepotism, they can be admitted to a school they don't qualify for in place of others who are qualified. Why, why should that be okay? Why should schools do this? And everything I've talked about here so far is legal. These are not other scandals that haven't been discovered yet. These aren't arrests that uh, will eventually take place. These are all legal. And these result in far more admissions 
then this bribery scandal, which was really bringing in a relatively small number of students. These matters actually affect a lot of people and have been going on for many decades, including before I was born. And it's just been accepted as normal practice. It's just kind of known college admissions ain't fair. If you know someone there, you get in. If you donate money to the school, you get in. Your kid gets in. That's another one. People say, oh, this is so terrible. People bribe their way in. What about the people that say, okay, I'm, I'm going to fund a new building or partially fund a new building that you guys want here. Okay, thanks a lot. Hey, you got any kids you'd like to have come here? Like, that's really what happens. That's also legal. That if somebody donates to the school, then their kids can go attend there, regardless of whether they qualify or not. The only reason this was illegal is that this was not done by the schools. This was done by certain rogue employees who were taking personal bribes in order to sneak people in under false pretenses. So they were screwing the school too. But I'm talking about the schools themselves. I'm saying the schools themselves have no room to complain because they have been playing fast and loose with the whole admissions process for many years. Here's something else. Let's talk about the admissions process. What do you have to do to get admitted to college? Well, you have to have a certain GPA. You have to have a certain SAT or ACT score. You have to write an essay. Well, hold on. An essay? Well, where do you write this essay? Do they make you come down to the college and write this in a room with other students writing their essays so they can supervise that it's your own work? No. Do you have to write this essay in front of a proctor who is making sure you're doing your own work? No. Do they have any idea of who really wrote this essay? Or could the essay have been written by your parents or by a professional coach that your parents hire? They have no idea. They have no way to tell. But yet, that essay is used to judge, in part, whether you will get admitted or not. So, we have a student who is you know, has a good SAT score, has a good GPA. When it comes to the essay, unfortunately, their parents are not very good at this sort of thing. And their parents are not rich enough to hire a separate coach to write the essay for you. So you do your best as a 17-year-old, write your essay. It looks like something a 17-year-old would submit, and they get it, which if in competition with essays by other 17-year-olds written without help, it would stand up pretty well. But unfortunately, your essay is judged against those whose essays were written by their parents, who might be very educated and sophisticated and very good at writing these sorts of things, or parents who are wealthy enough to be able to buy coaching, or essay writers, how do you think your essay as a 17-year-old would stand up against those? It would probably look terrible. It would probably look simple. It would probably say some stupid things. It probably would pale in comparison to the 
essays written by professionals or by adults in their 40s and 50s, right? But that's the reality. And I noticed this in 1989. I noticed this when I was applying to college and my mom was guiding me through the process and she told me to work on the essay and showed me the essay and what's expected of it and then she said when I'm done to show it to her and she'll uh, read it and give me some suggestions and well that's what I did and she read it over and pointed out some stupid things I wrote that we needed to remove and uh, made some suggestions to add some things it was my essay but she helped out she gave me a lot of advice because She was a better writer than me at the time when I was a a 17-year-old and she was in her 40s. She could write a lot better essay than I could, so at the very least she uh, assisted me and helped me edit mine. And I I said to her, this doesn't seem very fair. I wasn't guilty I was doing it because I knew everybody could do this and probably a lot of them were doing it, but... I said, this doesn't seem very fair on an absolute basis. What if uh, what if you weren't good at this sort of thing? Or, you know, what about people that might be paying someone to write essays for them? I thought of this as a 17-year-old. I said, they have no visibility whatsoever who actually wrote this. How can they be judging a student based upon something they don't know if the student produced? It would be like if you submitted your own SAT test. If you, if, if you could make a, a take-home test out of the SAT, well, how would they know that you took it fairly? How would they know you didn't Google the answers? How would they know you didn't have your parents take it for you? They wouldn't. So, so could you imagine if they judge people based upon their SAT scores on a take-home test? Well, it'd be the same thing. It's the same thing as judging the essay that way. It's crazy. But yet, the essay has been a big part of college admissions for decades, and nobody questions it. And yes, it disproportionately favors people who are more wealthy because they can afford to hire the coaches to write those essays for them or very much direct them in the right way to write the essay. I never had any coaches, by the way. What about extracurricular activities? You may say, well, extracurricular activities at least... You really did those, right? Well, not necessarily. Extracurricular activities are often puffed up or lied about on college applications. Now, again, the typical student doesn't know to do this. If if a typical 17-year-old student is filling out his application, he's going to probably put down what he really did. But what if the parents are actually doing the application for the kid? Or what if the parents have hired, again, a coach to help them with the application? Well, they're going to search for everything that they can use to state and exaggerate to make it look like the kid did a lot more than they really did as far as extracurricular activities are concerned. There are even parents that pre-plan this and that come up with certain activities only for how they will look on the college resume. Some of these activities, in fact, uh, very little is actually done. Just they had to have some kind of cursory participation. Sometimes they'll take their kid down to volunteer to do something, you know, two times, and then they'll get to claim they 
volunteered to this noble cause that uh, in reality they did very little work and barely ever did it, but they were able to get the signature from the uh, director of the place that they volunteered. And then the parents write, you know, help the kid write their own story or they write their own story for the kid. And all of a sudden it looks like the person was, was volunteering all their time, helping the blind or whatever. This whole thing is, the whole thing is a big fraud. And a lot of parents know how to play the game really well. And, and, and if they don't, they get coaches to help them. And the ones who play by the rules get screwed. And this is not something that has been tricking college administrators. They are very aware of this. Do you think, you think the administrators who set these policies, you think the administrators who decide who to accept and who to reject, do you think that they're unaware of these things I'm saying? Do you think they don't know about these coaches or that the parents help? Do you, do you think that they're not aware of the fact that the students who do, do this on their own come out looking much worse and get rejected? Do, do you think that they're all ignorant to where this has been going on for decades and they just don't know? Of course not. Of course they know. So so why is this continuing? Why is it this way? Why, why haven't they done away with the essay or at least changed the way the essay is written where it's written under supervision where they can see if the student's real thoughts written without help? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the goal is not fairness. The goal is not an equitable admissions process. The goal is not to do the right thing. The goal is just to feel like you're doing the right thing. And that's a very different matter. Doing the right thing and feeling like you're doing the right thing are often very different from one another. Let's look at the essay. What's the point of the essay? The essay is to make a personal statement to not only state why you want to attend the school, but also what you've done with yourself, your feelings about life, the journey you've taken to get to where you are today, etc., etc., etc. That's the purpose of the essay. So they can read it and get to know you as a human being, not just numbers on a paper. And what's the point of the extracurricular activities? Well, that's to show them that you're not just a student. You're not just a good student, but you're also a well-rounded human being. Because these schools, they want to feel like they are not just admitting good students, but that they are admitting a wide range of well-rounded people. They want to create their own little community of well-rounded people from different walks of life who have fascinating backgrounds. And ones who have shown already a spirit of altruism. Ones who are constantly dedicating themselves to learning new things and doing new things and reaching for the stars. That's what they're looking for. And hey, they can do this through the essay. And through the extracurricular activity list, they can look and say, oh, wow, this guy, he looks really interesting. We're going to let him in. Oh, this other one here, you know, he's got the same grades. In fact, a little bit better grades than this one we just let in. But nah, it looks pretty boring. Doesn't really do much other than uh, just go to school. And uh, essay's kind of boring. Seems like just a typical kid. Nah, we'll pass on him. A little bit better academically than the other one, but nah, we'll pass on him. But yet, it's very possible that this interesting guy 
were just manufactured by coaches or parents who helped them apply and did everything for them. And the reason they don't care is because all they, the administrators, they just want to feel like they are doing this. They want to feel like they are admitting a well-rounded student body. They care about that more than whether they actually are doing that. And unfortunately, this is very typical of the academic left, which very much favors symbolism over substance. Everything is about how it looks and how you feel as you're doing it rather than what you're actually doing, rather than what you're actually accomplishing. And if there are downsides to what you think you're accomplishing, you need to close your eyes to those. You need to only look at the upsides and not the downsides. That's another hallmark of the academic left. It matters more what you think you're doing, what you're trying to do, what you feel you're doing, rather than what you're accomplishing or what you might be harming. Or who you might be harming. And these things need to be discussed. Especially because who are the victims here? The biggest victims here in all of this are people who are not as wealthy. People whose parents are not particularly sophisticated or educated already. You know, those with the the blue-collar parents are probably less likely to hire the academic coaches or be able to write a good essay themselves. So it's those kids who are getting screwed. It's not the privileged kids who are getting screwed. It's it's the blue-collar kids and lower who are getting screwed here. And then the Asians, too. Just for being Asian, they get screwed, too. And the college athletes, they're being screwed. They're being taken advantage of. And many of them are from humble backgrounds themselves. Many of them from difficult backgrounds. And they're being taken advantage of. Also, these academic institutions can just keep the status quo. And at the same time, pat themselves on the back that they're admitting a diverse and well-rounded community into their school. Doesn't matter if they actually are, just as long as they feel like they are. That should be the discussion here. And not from a political standpoint. You know, if you want to drop the part about the academic left this, the academic left that, I understand. Just look at it from a fairness standpoint. How about no more nepotism? How about, you know, how about nobody gets in anymore because they're related to somebody who's important at the school? Or even not that important, just works there. How, how about that's done away with? How about a reform as far as college athletics are concerned. And that if maybe it's time to just treat them as pros and have them represent the school. The same way that uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers, they don't work for the city of Los Angeles, do they? But we still root for them here in, in Los Angeles because they represent Los Angeles. They don't have to work for the city. So, so why not just admit student athletes who are paid what they should be paid and stop the whole sham that they're students. Now, if they also qualify as students and get it, can get admitted to the school that way, great, then let them also be students and take classes if they want, but uh, they shouldn't have to be students, and it shouldn't take up the space that other students should be taking. And these athletes should be compensated for everything they're doing. 
There should not be racial discrimination of any sort. Nobody should be denied based upon the color of their skin, nor should anybody get a leg up in admission due to the color of their skin. It should be colorblind. That's that's what we're shooting for, right? Aren't we shooting for just not caring what color someone is? Letting them succeed or fail upon their own merits? How can we have this discrimination against Asians and they say it's okay? And do away with these silly extra requirements like the essays and the extracurricular activities, which are very difficult to verify or impossible in some cases to verify, and which clever or well-informed parents can manipulate to give their child a big edge over kids that are applying honestly and without help. The college admissions process should not be about whose parents know the most about it or have the means to hire someone who knows the most about it. It shouldn't be. It's unfair. And that should be the discussion we have here. This whole scandal is just a symptom of that. This whole scandal is just an example of why this can happen. I mean, look, look at these fake athletes that were admitted through this scandal, through the bribery, where like Lori Laughlin's daughter, who was admitted suppo- supposedly as uh, a, a uh, because of her credentials from the rowing crew team, but uh, never really did this and wasn't actually on the team at school. Let's look at that. How did that work? That worked because she was admitted as an athlete. So they were able to bypass her less than stellar academic record. So when it came time to decide whether Lori Laughlin's daughter gets admitted, they say, well, her academics aren't very good, but oh, she's, look, look how, look what a good athlete she is. She's going to be big on our crew team. Okay. We'll let her in. Same way we let these other great athletes in, except she wasn't really a great athlete. That was just a a trick. Well, okay, but is that really much worse than just letting someone in because they're a great athlete, but they also shouldn't qualify academically? I mean, it's, it's pretty close, right? Yeah, one requires bribery, but it's still kind of close if you think about it. So admissions in colleges in the United States are a complete joke. And and there's people from outside the U.S. watching this, and they're scratching their heads. They're saying, why is this news? I, I thought everybody in the U.S. knew, everyone in the U.S. was aware that college admissions were corrupt. I thought they've known this. Why, why are they acting outraged? They're right. <laughs> we, we shouldn't be outraged. Or if we're going to be outraged, let's be outraged at the whole thing, not at this individual scandal because it happens to involve two actresses from shows that have been off the air for a long time. But no one wants to go there. Everybody just wants to go towards their own narrative. Hypocritical Hollywood, wealth and privilege, gaining yourselves unfair benefits. That's what people want to talk about. They don't want to talk about college admissions just being a joke 
and they've been a joke for a very long time. I was hoping this might lead to a discussion that would change that. I was hoping that maybe this would start a revolution where colleges stop doing this and they make rules against this sort of thing. Maybe even laws made against this sort of thing. And then by the time Benjamin applies to college in 10 years, that this will all be gone. But I have a feeling it won't be. Colleges do not like being told they're wrong and being forced to change. They think of themselves as their own little dictatorships and they will only change if absolutely forced to change. Even if there's injustice going on. Well, that's it. I'm still not sure what day we will be on next week. Might be on Wednesday, might be on Thursday. It should be one of those two days. I just looked at the ratings. I expected a big drop in the ratings. And amazingly, right now, it's 2.22 in the morning. We're six below our peak for the night. Pretty amazing. Six below our peak at 2.22 a.m. That is interesting. Maybe we have some Europeans turning it on. Maybe that's what's going on. It doesn't matter that much. I know you guys catch it in the archives. I like, I'll look at the ratings for a night, and I'll go, oh, wow, we're doing well, and get excited. And I go, wait a minute, why do, why do I care? It's like 95% of you listen to the archives, so does it really matter what the live ratings are? I just like having live ratings. I, I think it goes back to my love of radio since childhood and having yourself heard live versus having yourself heard in podcast format. To me, it feels better when people listen live, but I'm happy to have the podcast listeners too. And if we didn't have them, then this show would be much lower rated. In fact, if it was only the live listeners and nobody else, I probably wouldn't do the show because the ratings wouldn't be high enough to justify spending the time. Since I'm not making money from this, I've got to, I'm only going to do it if I, I think people are listening. And if we don't have enough people listening, it's not worth the trouble. So thank you for joining us. Check Twitter, PokerFraudAlert.com. Not Poker, you can do check that too. Check Twitter.com slash PokerFraudAlert. And you will eventually see an update as to when we will be on. I can always count on Twitter drama to fill in the gaps in, in slow news weeks. It seems like I, I just got to look at Twitter and then there's some people fighting there that just always makes it worth talking about. And as I was noticing these stories popping up on Twitter last night, I was saying, oh, wow. Right in time for radio. Perfect. But I I don't think it was necessarily the timing of yesterday. I I think it's just always going on on Twitter. So much drama there. Especially among poker players. Have you ever stopped to think how much drama there really is in the poker community? There actually is a lot. 
And in that way, I'm kind of used to it because I came from an online community way before poker. I was on computer bulletin boards. I was in chat rooms. And then like the exact same type of drama I'm seeing in poker. It's really not very different at all. In some ways, it's even kind of the same mixture of people. A lot of the same issues I saw then, I'm seeing now. Less scamming, I guess, but other than that. And I always find this stuff interesting to talk about, to analyze, to dig into, to call out the bad actors. It's just something I've always enjoyed. And that's part of the joy of doing this show is that we can be here together and discuss these matters even if it's mainly me talking I know people are listening and people comment to me via text via email via Twitter by the way any comments about this show text it to me 775-372-8355 send it to me on Twitter at Todd Wittelis W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S DM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff. Email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Talk to you next week. Good night. Shalom.